Daenerys. The dancers shimmered, their sleek, shaved bodies covered with a fine sheen of oil. Blazing torches whirled from hand to hand to the beat of drums and the trilling of a flute. Whenever two torches crossed in the air, a naked girl leapt between them, spinning. The torchlight shone off oiled limbs and breasts and buttocks. The three men were erect. The sight of their arousal was arousing, though Daenerys Targaryen found it comical as well. The men were all of a height, with long legs and flat bellies, every muscle as sharply etched as if it had been chiseled out of stone. Even their faces looked the same, somehow, which was passing strange, since one had skin as dark as ebony, while the second was as pale as milk, and the third gleamed like burnished copper. Are they men to inflame me? Dennis stirred amongst her silken cushions. Against the pillars, her unsolid stood like statues in their spiked caps, their smooth faces expressionless. Not so the whole men. Resnick Mo Resnick's mouth was open, and his lips glistened wetly as he watched. His dar, Zoloric, was saying something to the man beside him, yet all the time his eyes were on the dancing girls. The shaved pate's ugly, oily face was as stern as ever, but he missed nothing. It was harder to know what her honoured guest was dreaming. The pale, lean, hawk-faced man who shared her high table was resplendent in robes of maroon silk and cloth of gold, his bald head shining in the torchlight as he devoured a fig with small, precise, elegant bites. Opals winked along the nose of Zaro Zoandaxus as his head turned to follow the dancers. In his honour, Daenerys had donned a carthine gown, a sheer confection of violet samite, cut so as to leave her left breast bare. Her silver-gold hair brushed lightly over her shoulder, falling almost to her nipple. Half the men in the hall had stolen glances at her, but not Zara. It was the same in Karth. She could not sway the merchant prince that way. Sway him I must, however. He had come from Karth, upon the galleous silken cloud, with thirteen galleys sailing attendants. His fleet, an answered prayer. Marian's trade had dwindled away to nothing since she had ended slavery, but Zaro had the power to restore it. As the drums reached a crescendo, three of the girls leapt above the flames, spinning in the air. The male dancers caught them about the waists and slid them down onto their members. Danny watched as the women arched their backs and coiled their legs around their partners while the flutes wept and the men thrust in time to the music. She had seen the act of love before, the Dothraki mated as openly as their mares and stallions. This was the first time she had seen lust put to music there. Her face was warm. The wine, she told herself, yet somehow she found herself thinking of Dario Naharis. His messenger had come that morning. The storm crows were returning from Lassar. Her captain was riding back to her, bringing her the friendship of the lamb men. Food and trade, she reminded herself. He did not fail me, nor will he. Dario will help me save my city. The queen longed to see his face, to stroke his three-pronged beard, 
to tell him her troubles. But the storm crows were still many days away, beyond the Kaizai Pass, and she had a realm to rule. Smoke hung between the purple pillars. The dancers knelt, heads bowed. You were splendid, Danny told them. Seldom have I seen such grace, such beauty. She beckoned to Resnick Mo Resnick, and the Seneschal scurried to her side. Beads of sweat dotted his bald, wrinkled head. Escort our guests to the bars, that they may refresh themselves, and bring them food and drink. It shall be my great honor, magnificence. Daenerys held out her cup for Iri to refill. The wine was sweet and strong, redolent with the smell of eastern spices, much superior to the thin Gascari wines that had filled her cup of late. Zaro perused the fruits on the platter Jiqui offered him, and chose a persimmon. Its orange skin matched the color of the coral in his nose. He took a bite and pursed his lips. Tart! Would my lord prefer something sweeter? Sweetness cloys tart fruit, and tart women give life its savor. Zaro took another bite, chewed, swallowed. Daenerys, sweet queen, I cannot tell you what pleasure it gives me to bask once more in your presence. A child departed Karth, as lost as she was lovely. I feared she was sailing to her doom, yet now I find her here, enthroned, mistress of an ancient city, surrounded by a mighty host that she raised up out of dreams. No, she thought out of blood and fire. I, I'm glad you came to me. It's, it's good to see your face again, my friend. I will not trust you, but I need you. I need your thirteen. I need your ships. I need your trade. For centuries, Marine and her sister cities, Yonkai and Astapor, had been the linchpins of the slave trade, the place where Dothraki Karls and the corsairs of the Basilisk Isles sold their captives and the rest of the world came to buy. Without slaves, Murrain had little to offer traders. Copper was plentiful in the Gascari hills, but the metal was not as valuable as it had been when bronze ruled the world. The cedars that had once grown tall along the coast grew no more, fell by the axes of the old empire or consumed by dragonfire when Gis made war against Valeria. Once the trees had gone, the soil baked beneath the hot sun and blew away in thick red clouds. It was these calamities that transformed my people into slavers, Galaza Galari had told her at the Temple of the Graces. And I am the calamity that will change these slavers back into people, Danny had sworn to herself. I had to come, said Zaro in a languid tone, even far away in Karth. Fearful tales had reached my ears. I wept to hear them. It is said that your enemies have promised wealth and glory and a hundred virgin slave girls to any man who slays you. The sons of the harpy. How does he know that? They scrawl on walls by night and cut the throats of honest freedmen as they sleep. When the sun comes up, they hide like roaches. They fear my brazen beasts. Skarhaz Mokandak had given her the new watch she had asked for, made up in equal numbers of freedmen 
and shave pate Miranese. They walked the streets both day and night in dark hoods and brazen masks. The sons of the harpy had promised grisly death to any traitor who dared serve the dragon queen, and to their kith and kin as well. So the shave pate's men went about as jackals, owls, and other beasts, keeping their true faces hidden. I might have cause to fear the sons if they saw me wandering alone through the streets, but only if it were night and I were naked and unarmed. They are craven creatures. A craven's knife can slay a queen as easily as a hero's. I would sleep more soundly if I knew my heart's delight had kept her fierce horse lords close around her. In Karth you had three blood riders who never left your side. Wherever have they gone? Argo, Jaku, and Akaro still serve me. He's playing games with me. Danny could play as well. I am only a young girl and know little of such things. But older, wiser men tell me that to hold Marine I must control its hinterlands, all the land west of Lazar, as far south as the youngish hills. Your hinterlands are not uh, precious to me. Your person is. Should any ill befall you, this world would lose its savour. My lord is good to care so much, but I am well protected. Danny jested toward where Barristan Selmy stood, with one hand resting on his sword hilt. Barristan the Bold, they called him. Twice he has saved me from assassins. Zorro gave Selmy a cursory inspection. Barristan the Old, did you say? <laughs> Your bare knight was younger and devoted to you. I do not wish to speak of Jara Mormont. To be sure, the man was coarse and hairy. The merchant prince leaned across the table. Let us speak instead of love, of dreams and desire, and Daenerys, the fairest woman in this world. I am drunk with the sight of you. She was no stranger to the overblown courtesies of Karth. If you are drunk, blame the wine. No wine is half so intoxicating as your beauty. My manse has seemed as empty as a tomb since Daenerys departed, and all the pleasures of the Queen of Cities have been as ashes in my mouth. Why did you abandon me? I was hounded from your city in fear for my life. It was time. Karth wished me gone. Oh, the pureborn? <laughs> they have water in their veins, the spices. There are curds between their ears, and the undying are all dead. You should have taken me to husband. I am almost certain that I asked you for your hand, begged you even. Only half a hundred times, Danny teased. He gave up too easily, my lord, for I must marry, all agree. Achillese must have a cow, said Erie as she filled the queen's cup once again. This is known. Shall I ask again? wondered Zorro. No, I know that smile. It is a cruel queen who dices with men's hearts. Humble merchants like myself are no more than stones beneath your jeweled sandals. A single tear 
ran slowly down his pale white cheek. Danny knew him too well to be moved. Carthine men could weep at will. Oh, stop that! She took a cherry from a bowl on the table and threw it at his nose. I may be a young girl, but I'm not so foolish as to wed a man who finds a fruit platter more enticing than my breast. I saw which dances you were watching. Zaro wiped away his tear. The same ones your grace was following, I believe. You see, we are alike. If you will not take me for your husband, I am content to be your slave. I want no slave. I free you. His jeweled nose made a tempting target. This time Danny threw an apricot at him. Zaro caught it in the air and took a bite. Whence came this madness? Should I count myself fortunate that you did not free my own slaves when you were my guest in Kath? I was a beggared queen and you were Zaro of the Thirteen, Danny thought, and all you wanted were my dragons. Your slaves seem well treated and content. It was not till Astapor that my eyes were opened. Do you know how unsullied are made and trained? Truly, I have no doubt. When a smith makes a sword, he thrusts the blade into the fire, beats on it with a hammer, then plunges it into ice water to temper the steel. If you would savor the sweet taste of the fruit, you must water the tree. This tree has been watered with blood. How else to grow a soldier? Your radiance enjoyed my dances. Would it surprise you to know that they are slaves, bred and trained in Yonkai? They have been dancing since they were old enough to walk. How else to achieve such perfection? He took a swallow of his wine. They are expert in all the erotic arts as well. I had thought to make your grace a gift of them. By all means, Danny was unsurprised. I shall free them. That made him wince. And what would they do with freedom? As well give a fish a suit of mail. They were made to dance. Made by who? Their masters? Perhaps your dancers would sooner build or bake or farm. Have you asked them? Perhaps your elephants would sooner be nightingales, eh? Instead of sweet song, Murin's nights would be filled with thunderous trumpetings, and your trees would shatter beneath the weight of great grey birds. Zaro sighed. Daenerys, my delight, beneath that sweet young breast beats a tender heart. But take counsel from an older, wiser head. Things are not always as they seem. Much that may seem evil can be good. Consider rain. Rain? Does he take me for a fool or just a child? We curse the rain when it falls upon our heads. Yet without it, we should starve. The world needs rain. And slaves. You make a face, but it is true. Consider cars. In art, music, magic, trade... All that makes us more than beasts. Car sits above the rest of mankind, as you sit at the summit of this pyramid. But below, in place of bricks, the magnificence that is the queen of cities rests upon the backs of slaves. Ask yourself, if all men must grab in the dirt for food, 
how shall any man lift his eyes to contemplate the stars? If each of us must break his back to build a hovel, who shall raise the temples to glorify the gods? For some men to be great, others must be enslaved. He was too eloquent for her. Danny had no answer for him, only the raw feeling in her belly. Slavery is not the same as rain, she insisted. I have been rained on and I have been sold. It is not the same. No man wants to be owned. Zaro gave a languid shrug, as it happens. When I came ashore in your sweet city, I chanced to see upon the river bank a man who had once been a guest in my manse, a merchant who dealt in rare spices and choice wines. He was naked from the waist up, red and peeling, and seemed to be digging a hole. Uh, not a hole, a ditch to bring water from the river to the fields. We mean to plant beans. The bean fields must have water. How kind of my old friend to help with the digging, eh? <laughs> and how very unlike him. Is it possible he was given no choice in the matter? No, surely not. You have no slaves in Marine. Danny flushed. Your friend is being paid with food and shelter. I cannot give him back his wealth. Mirin needs beans more than it needs rare spices, and beans require water. Would you set my dancers to digging ditches as well? Sweet queen, when he saw me, my old friend fell to his knees and begged me to buy him as a slave and take him back to Karth. She felt as if he'd slapped her. Buy him, then, if it please you. I know it will please him. He put his hand upon her arm. There are truths only a friend may tell you. I helped you when you came to Karth, a beggar, and I have crossed long leagues and stormy seas to help you once again. Is there some place where we might speak frankly? Danny could feel the warmth of his fingers. He was warm in Karth as well, she recalled until the day he had no more use for me. She rose to her feet. Come, she said, and Zaro followed her through the pillars to the wide marble steps that led up to her private chambers at the apex of the pyramid. Oh, most beautiful of women, Zaro said, as they began to climb. There are footsteps behind us. We are followed. My old knight does not frighten you, surely. Sir Baristan is sworn to keep my secrets. She took him out onto the terrace that overlooked the city. The full moon swam in the black sky above Marine. Shall we walk? Danny slipped her arm through his. The air was heavy with the scent of night-blooming flowers. You spoke of help. Trade with me, then. Marine has salt to sell, and wine. Giscari wine? Zorro made a sour face. The sea provides all the salt that Karth requires, but I would gladly take as many olives as you care to sell me. Olive oil as well. I have none to offer. The slavers burnt the trees. Olives have been grown along the shores of Slavers Bay for centuries. 
but the Miranese had put their ancient groves to the torch as Danny's host advanced on them, leaving her to cross a blackened wasteland. We are replanting, but it takes seven years before an olive tree begins to bear, and thirty years before it can truly be called productive. What of copper? A pretty metal, but fickle as a woman. Gold now. Gold is sincere. Cars will gladly give you gold for slaves. Marion is a free city of free men. A poor city that once was rich. A hungry city that once was fat. A bloody city that once was peaceful. His accusations stung. There was too much truth in them. Marine will be rich and fat and peaceful once again, and free as well. Go to the Dothraki if you must have slaves. Dothraki make slaves. Giscari train them. And to reach Karth, the horse lords must needs drive their captives across the red wastes. Hundreds would die, if not thousands, and many horses too, which is why no Karl will risk it. And there is this. Karth wants no Kalisars seething round our walls, the stench of all those horses, <laughs> meaning no offense, uh, Kalisi. A horse has an honest smell. That is more than can be said of some great lords and merchant princes. Zara took no notice of the sally. Daenerys, let me be honest with you, as befits a friend. You will not make Murin rich and fat and peaceful. You will only bring it to destruction, as you did Astapor. You are aware that there was battle joined at the horns of Hazard? The butcher king has fled back to his palace, his new unsolid running at his heels. And this is known. Brown Ben Plum had sent back word of the battle from the field. The young Kay have bought themselves new sellswords, and two legions from new guests fought beside them. Two will soon become four, and then ten. And Yunkish envoys have been sent to Mir and Valantis to hire more blades. The company of the cat, the long lances, the wind-blown, some say that the wise masters have bought the golden company as well. Her brother Viserys had once feasted the captains of the golden company in hope they might take up his cause. They ate his food and heard his pleas and laughed at him. Danny had only been a little girl, but she remembered. I have sail swords too. Two companies. The young Kai will send twenty against you if they must. And when they march, they will not march alone. Tolos and Mantares have agreed to an alliance. That was ill news, if true. Daenerys had sent missions to Tolos and Mantares, hoping to find new friends to the west to balance the enmity of Yunkai to the south. Her envoys had not returned. Mirin has made alliance with Lazar. That only made him chuckle. <laughs> the Dothraki horse lords call the Lazarine the Lemmen. <laughs> when you shear them, all they do is bleat. They are not a martial people. Even a sheep as friend is better than none. The wise masters should follow their example. I spared Yunkai before, but I will not make that mistake again.
If they should dare attack me, this time I shall raise their yellow city to the ground. And whilst you are raising Yonkai, my sweet, Murian shall rise behind you. Do not close your eyes to your peril, Daenerys. Your eunuchs are fine soldiers, but they are too few to match the hosts that Yonkai will send against you once Astapor has fallen. My freedmen, Danny started, bed slaves, barbers, and brickmakers with no battles. He was wrong in that, she hoped. The freedmen had been a rabble once, but she had organized the men of fighting age into companies and commanded Grey Worm to make them into soldiers. Let him think what he will. Have you forgotten? I have dragons. Do you? <laughs> in Kars, you are seldom seen without a dragon on your shoulder. Yet now that shapely shoulder is as fair and bare as your sweet breast, I observe. My dragons have grown, my shoulders have not. They range far afield, hunting. Hazael, forgive me. She wondered how much Zyro knew, what whispers he had heard. Ask the good masters of Astapor about my dragons if you doubt them. I saw a slaver's eyes melt and go running down his cheeks. Tell me true, old friend, why did you seek me out, if not to trade? To bring a gift for the queen of my heart. Say on, what trap is this now? The gift you begged of me in Carth. Ships, there are thirteen galleys in the bay. Yours, if you will have them. I have brought you a fleet to carry you home to Westeros. A fleet? It was more than she could hope for, so of course it made her wary. In Kars, Zaro had offered her thirty ships for a dragon. And what price do you ask for these ships? None. I no longer lust for dragons. Oh, I saw their work at Astapor on my way here, when my silken cloud put in for water. The ships are yours, sweet queen. Thirteen galleys and men to pull the oars. Thirteen? To be sure. Zaro was one of the thirteen. No doubt he had convinced each of his fellow members to give up one ship. She knew the merchant prince too well to think that he would sacrifice thirteen of his own ships. I must consider this. May I inspect these ships? You have grown suspicious, Daenerys. Always. I have grown wise, Zaro. Inspect all you wish. When you are satisfied, swear to me that you shall return to Westeros forthwith, and the ships are yours. Swear by your dragons and your seven-faced god and the ashes of your fathers, and go. And if I should decide to wait a year or three? A mournful look crossed Zaro's face. That would make me very sad, my sweet delight. For young and strong as you now seem, you shall not live so long, not here. He offers the honeycomb with one hand and shows the whip with the other. The young Kai are not so fearsome as all that. Not all your enemies are in the yellow city. Beware men with cold hearts and blue lips. You had not been gone from Carth a fortnight when Piet Pri set out with three of his fellow warlocks to seek for you in Pentos. 
Danny was more amused than afraid. It is good I turned aside then. Pentas is half a world from Merin. That is so, he allowed. Yet soon or late, word must reach them of the Dragon Queen of Slaver's Bay. Is that meant to frighten me? I lived in fear for fourteen years, my lord. I woke afraid each morning and went to sleep afraid each night. But my fears were burned away the day I came forth from the fire. Only one thing frightens me now. And what is that you fear, sweet queen? I'm only a foolish young girl. Danny rose on her toes and kissed his cheek. But not so foolish as to tell you that. My men shall look at these ships. Then you shall have my answer. As you say. He touched her bare breast lightly and whispered, Let me stay and help persuade you. For a moment she was tempted. Perhaps the dancers had stirred her after all. I could close my eyes and pretend that he was Dario. A dream Dario would be safer than the real one. But she pushed the thought aside. No, my lord, I, I thank you, but no. Danny slipped from his arms. Some other night, perhaps. Some other night. His mouth was sad, but his eyes seemed more relieved than disappointed. If I were a dragon, I could fly to Westeros, she thought when he was gone. I would have no need of Zaro or his ships. Danny wondered how many men thirteen galleys could hold. It had taken three to carry her and her calisar from Karth to Astapor, but that was before she had acquired eight thousand unsolid, a thousand cell swords, and a vast horde of freedmen. And the dragons, what am I to do with them? Drogon, she whispered softly, where are you? For a moment she could almost see him sweeping across the sky, his black wings swallowing the stars. She turned her back upon the night to where Barristan Selmy stood silent in the shadows. My brother once told me a Westerosi riddle. Who listens to everything yet hears nothing? A knight of the king's guard. Selmy's voice was solemn. You heard Zaro make his offer. I did, your grace. The old knight took pains not to look at her bare breast as he spoke to her. Sir Jaro would not turn his eyes away. He loved me as a woman, where Sir Barristan loves me only as his queen. Mormon had been an informer, reporting to her enemies in Westeros, yet he had given her good counsel too. What do you think of it, of him? Of him, little and less. These ships, though, your grace, with these ships we might be home before a year's end. Danny had never known a home. In Bravas there had been a house with a red door, but that was all. Beware of Carthine bearing gifts, especially merchants of the Thirteen. There is some trap here. Perhaps these ships are rotten, or if they were so unseaworthy, they could not have crossed the sea from Carth, Sir Barristan pointed out. But your grace was wise to insist upon inspection. I will take Admiral Grolio to the galleys at first light with his captains and two score of his sailors. 
We can crawl over every inch of those ships. It was good counsel. Yes, make it so. Westeros, home. But if she left, what would happen to her city? Marine was never your city, her brother's voice seemed to whisper. Your cities are across the sea. Your seven kingdoms where your enemies await you. You were born to serve them, blood and fire. Sir Barristan cleared his throat and said, This warlock that the merchant spoke of, uh, Piet Pri, she tried to recall his face, but all she could see were his lips. The wine of the warlocks had turned them blue. Shade of the evening, it was called. If a warlock spell could kill me, I would be dead by now. I left their palace all in ashes. Drogon saved me when they would have drained my life from me. Drogon burned them all. As you say, your grace, still, I will be watchful. She kissed him on the cheek. I know you will. Come walk me back down to the feast. The next morning Danny woke as full of hope as she had been since first she came to Slaver's Bay. Dario would soon be at her side once more, and together they would sail for Westeros, for home. One of her young hostages brought her morning meal, a plump shy girl named Mazara, whose father ruled the Pyramid of Marek, and Danny gave her a happy hug and thanked her with a kiss. Zaro Zoandaxis has offered me thirteen galleys, she told Iria and Jiqui as they were dressing her for court. Thirteen is a bad number, Khaleesi, murmured Jiqui in the Dothraki tongue. It is known. It is known, Iria agreed. Thirty would be better, Daenerys agreed. Three hundred better still. But thirteen may suffice to carry us to Westeros. The two Dothraki girls exchanged a look. The poison water is accursed, Khaleesi, said Eri. Horses cannot drink it. I do not intend to drink it, Danny promised them. Only four petitioners awaited them that morning. As ever, Lord Gale was the first to present himself, looking even more wretched than usual. Your radiance, he moaned, as he fell to the marble at her feet. The armies of the Yankai descend on Astapor. I beg you, come south with all your strength. I warned your king this war of his was folly, Danny reminded him. He would not listen. Great Cleon sought only to strike down the vile slavers of Yankai. Great Cleon is a slaver himself. I know that the mother of dragons will not abandon us in our hour of peril. Lend us your unsolid to defend our walls. And if I do, who will defend my walls? Many of my freedmen were slaves in Astapor. Perhaps some will wish to help defend your king. That is their choice as free men. I gave Astapor its freedom. It is up to you to defend it. We are all dead, then. You gave us death, not freedom. Dale leapt to his feet and spat into her face. Strong Belwas seized him by the shoulder and slammed him down onto the marble so hard that Danny heard Gale's teeth crack. The shave pate would have done worse, but she stopped him. Enough, she said, dabbing at her cheek 
with the end of her tokar. No one has ever died from spittle. Take him away. They dragged him out feet first, leaving several broken teeth and a trail of blood behind. Danny would gladly have sent the rest of the petitioners away, but she was still their queen, so she heard them out and did her best to give them justice. Late that afternoon, Admiral Grolio and Sir Barriston returned from their inspection of the galleys. Danny assembled her council to hear them. Grey Worm was there for the unsolid. Scar has Mokandak for the brazen beasts. In the absence of her blood riders, a wizened Jackoran, called Romo, squint-eyed and bow-legged, came to speak for her Dothraki. Her freedmen were represented by the captains of the three companies she had formed, Malono Yasdob of the Stalwart Shields, Simon Stripeback of the Free Brothers, Marcellin of the Mother's Men. Resnick Mo Resnick hovered at the Queen's elbow, and Strong Belwas stood behind her, with his huge arms crossed. Danny would not lack for counsel. Grolio had been a most unhappy man since they had broken up his ship to build the siege engines that won Marion for her. Danny had tried to console him by naming him her Lord Admiral, but it was a hollow honour. The Miranese fleet had sailed for Yonkai when Danny's host approached the city, so the old Pentoshi was an admiral without ships. Yet now he was smiling through his ragged, salt-streaked beard in a way that the Queen could scarce remember. "'The ships are sound, then,' she said, hoping. "'Sound enough, Your Grace. They are all ships, aye, but most are well-maintained. The hull of the pure-born princess is worm-eaten. I'd not want to take her beyond the sight of land. The Naraka could stand a new rodder and lions, and the banded lizard has some cracked oars, but they will serve. The rowers are slaves, but if we offer them an honest oarsman's wage, most will stay with us. Ruin's all they know. Those who leave can be replaced for my own crews. It's a long, hard voyage to Westeros, but these ships are sound enough to get us there, I judge. Resnick, Mo Resnick, gave a piteous moan. Then it is true. Your worship means to abandon us, he wrung his hands. The young Kai will restore the great masters the instant you are gone, and we who have so faithfully served your cause will be put to the sword, our sweet wives and maiden daughters raped and enslaved. Not mine, grumbled Skaha's shavepate. I will kill them first with my own hand. He slapped his sword hilt. Danny felt as if he'd slapped her face instead. "'If you fear what may follow when I leave, come with me to Westeros. Wherever the mother of dragons goes, the mother's men will go as well,' announced Marcellin, Mercedes' remaining brother. "'How?' asked Simon Stripeback, named for the tangle of scars that ridged his back and shoulders, a reminder of the whippings he had suffered as a slave in Astapor.' Thirteen ships, that's not enough. A hundred ships might not be enough. Wooden horses are no good, objected Romo, the old Jacaran. Dothraki will ride. These ones could march overland along the shore, suggested Grey Worm. The ships could keep pace and resupply the column. 
That might serve until you reach the ruins of Morish, said the shave pit. Beyond that, your ships would need to turn south, past Tullus and the Isle of Cedars, and sail around Valeria, whilst the foot continued on to Mantares by the old dragon road. The demon road, they call it now, said Malono Yostob. The plump commander of the stalwart shields looked more like a scribe than a soldier, with his inky hands and heavy paunch, but he was clever as they came. Many and more of us would die. Those left behind in Murrine would envy them their easy death, moaned Resnick. They will make slaves of us, or throw us in the pits. All will be as it was, or worse. Where is your courage? Sir Barristan lashed out. Her grace feed you from your chains. It is for you to sharpen your swords and defend your own freedom when she leaves. Brave words from one who means to sail into the sunset, Simon striped back, snarled back. Will you look back at her dying? Your grace, magnificence, your worship, enough. Danny slapped the table. No one will be left to die. You're all my people. Her dreams of home and love have blinded her. I will not abandon Marine to the fate of Astapor. It grieves me to say so, but Westeros must wait. Grolio was aghast. We must accept these ships if we refuse this gift. Sir Barrison went to one knee before her. My queen, your realm has need of you. You are not wanted here, but in Westeros men will flock to your banners by the thousands, great lords and noble knights. She has come, they will shout to one another in glad voices. Prince Rhaegar's sister has come home at last. If they love me so much, they will wait for me. Danny stood. Resnick, summon Zaro Zoandaxis. She received the merchant prince alone, seated on her bench on polished ebony, on the cushion Sir Barristan had brought her. Four Carthian sailors accompanied him, "'bearing a rolled tapestry upon their shoulders. "'I have brought another gift for the queen of my heart,' Zaro announced. "'It has been in my family vaults since before the doom that took Valeria.' "'The sailors unrolled the tapestry across the floor. "'It was old, dusty, faded, and huge. "'Danny had to move to Zaro's side before the patterns became plain. "'A map? It is beautiful.' It covered half the floor. The seas were blue, the lands were green, the mountains black and brown. Cities were shown as stars in gold or silver thread. There is no smoking sea, she realized. Valeria is not yet an island. There you see Astapor and Yonkai and Murin. Zara pointed at three silver stars beside the blue of Slaver's Bay. Westeros is... Uh, uh, somewhere down there. His hand waved vaguely toward the far end of the hall. You turn north when you should have continued south and west, across the summer sea, but with my gift you shall soon be back where you belong, accept my galleys with a joyful heart, and bend your oars westward. Would that I could. My lord, I will gladly have those ships, but I cannot give you the promise that you ask. She took his hand. 
Give me the galleys, and I will swear that Carth will have the friendship of Murrain until the stars go out. Let me trade with them, and you will have a good part of the profits. Zaro's glad smile died upon his lips. What are you saying? Are you telling me you will not go? I cannot go. Tears welled from his eyes, creeping down his nose, past emeralds, amethysts, and black diamonds. I told the Thirteen that you would eat my wisdom. It grieves me to learn that I was wrong. Take these ships and sail away, or you will surely die screaming. You cannot know how many enemies you have made. I know one stands before me now, weeping mummer's tears. The realization made her sad. When I went to the hall of a thousand thrones to beg the pure-born for your life, I said that you were no more than a child, Zara went on. But Egon Emerus, the exquisite, rose and said, She is a foolish child, mad and heedless, and too dangerous to live. When your dragons were small, they were wonder. Grown, they are death and devastation, a flaming sword above the world. He wiped away the tears. I should have slain you in Carth. I was a guest beneath your roof and ate of your meat and mead, she said. In memory of all you did for me, I will forgive those words once, but never presume to threaten me again. Zarozoandaxus does not threaten. He promises. Her sadness turned to fury. And I promise you that if you are not gone before the sun comes up, we will learn how well a liar's tears can quench dragonfire. Lead me, Zaro, quickly. He went, but left his world behind. Danny seated herself upon her bench again to gaze across the blue silk sea toward distant Westeros. One day, she promised herself. The next morning, Zaro's gallius was gone but the gift that he had brought her remained behind in Slaver's Bay. Long red streamers flew from the masts of the thirteen Carthian galleys writhing in the wind. And when Daenerys descended to Hull Court, a messenger from the ships awaited her. He spoke no word, but laid at her feet a black satin pillow, upon which rested a single blood-stained glove. What is this? Skarhas demanded. A bloody glove? Means war, said the queen. John. Uh, careful of the rats, my lord, Dolores Ed led John down the steps, a lantern in one hand. They make an awful squeal if you step on them. My mother used to make a similar sound when I was a boy. She must have had some rat in her now that I think of it. Brown hair, beady little eyes, like cheese. Might be she had a tail too I never looked to see. All of Castle Black was connected underground by a maze of tunnels that the brothers called the Wormways. It was dark and gloomy underneath the earth, so the Wormways were little used in summer, but when the winter winds began to blow and the snows began to fall, the tunnels became the quickest way to move about the castle. The stewards were making use of them already. John saw candles burning in several wall niches 
as they made their way along the tunnel, their footsteps echoing ahead of them. Bowen Marsh was waiting at a junction where four wormways met. With him he had Wick Whittlestick, tall and skinny as a spear. These are the counts from three turns ago, Marsh told John, offering him a thick sheaf of papers. For comparison with our present stores, shall we start with the granaries? They moved through the grey gloom beneath the earth. Each storeroom had a solid oaken door closed with an iron padlock, as big as a supper plate. Is pilferage a problem? John asked. Not as yet, said Bowen Marsh. Once winter comes, though, your lordship might be wise to post guards down here. Wick Whittlestick wore the keys on a ring about his neck. They all looked alike to John, yet somehow Wick found the right one for every door. Once inside, he would take a fist-sized chunk of chalk from his pouch and mark each cask and sack and barrel as he counted them, while Marsh compared the new count to the old. In the granaries were oats and wheat and barley, and barrels of coarse ground flour. In the root cellars, strings of onions and garlic dangled from the rafters, and bags of carrots, parsnips, radishes, and white and yellow turnips filled the shelves. One storeroom held wheels of cheese so large it took two men to move them. In the next, casts of salt beef, salt pork, salt mutton, and salt cud were stacked ten feet high. Three hundred hams and three thousand long black sausages hung from ceiling beams below the smokehouse. In the spice locker they found peppercorns, cloves, and cinnamon, mustard seeds, coriander, sage and clary sage, and parsley, blocks of salt. Elsewhere were casts of apples and pears, dried peas, dried figs, bags of walnuts, bags of chestnuts, bags of almonds, planks of dry smoked salmon, clay jars packed with olives and oil, and sealed with wax. One storeroom offered potted hare, haunch of deer in honey, pickled cabbage, pickled beets, pickled onions, pickled eggs, and pickled herring. As they moved from one vault to another, the wormways seemed to grow colder. Before long, John could see their breath frosting in the lantern light. We're beneath the wall. And soon inside it, said Marsh. The meat won't spoil in the cold. For long storage, it's better than salting. The next door was made of rusty iron. Behind it was a flight of wooden steps. Dolorous Ed led the way with his lantern. Up top they found a tunnel, as long as Winterfell's great hall, though no wider than the wormways. The walls were ice, bristling with iron hooks. From each hook hung a carcass, skinned deer and elk, sides of beef, huge sows swinging from the ceiling, headless sheep and goats, even horse and bear. Hoarfrost covered everything. As they did their count, John peeled the glove off his left hand and touched the nearest haunch of venison. He could feel his fingers sticking, and when he pulled them back, he lost a bit of skin. His fingertips were numb. What did you expect? There's a mountain of ice above your head, more tons than even Bowen Marsh could count. Even so, the room felt colder than it should. It is worse than I feared, my lord, Marsh announced when he was done. He sounded gloomier than Dolorous Ed. 
John had just been thinking that all the meat in the world surrounded them. You know nothing, John Snow. How so? This seems a deal of food to me. It was a long summer. The harvests were bountiful, the lords generous. We had enough laid by to see us through three years of winter, four with a bit of scrimping. Now, though, if we must go on feeding all these king's men and queen's men and wildlings, Molestown alone has a thousand useless mouths, and still they come. Three more turned up yesterday at the gates, a dozen the day before. It, it cannot go on. Settling them on the gift, that's well and good, but it's too late to plant crops. We'll be down to turnips and peas porridge before the year is out. After that, we'll be drinking the blood of our own horses. Yum, declared Dollarhead. Nothing beats a hot cup of horse blood on a cold night. I like mine with a pinch of cinnamon sprinkled on top. The Lord Steward paid him no mind. There will be sickness too, he went on. "'bleeding gums and loose teeth. "'Maester Eamon used to say that lime juice and fresh meat would remedy that. "'But our limes were gone a year ago, "'and we do not have enough fodder to keep herds afoot for fresh meat. "'We should butcher all but a few breeding pairs. "'It's past time. "'In winters past, food could be brought up the King's Road from the south. "'But with the war—' It is still autumn, I know, but I would advise we go on winter rations nonetheless, if it please, my lord. Oh, the men will love that. If we must, we'll cut each man's portion by a quarter. If my brothers are complaining of me now, what will they say when they're eating snow and acorn paste? That will help, my lord. The lord steward's tone made it plain that he did not think that it would help enough. Dollars Ed said, Now I understand why King Stennis let the wildlings through the war. He means for us to eat them. John had to smile. It will not come to that. Oh, good, said Ed. They look a stringy lot, and my teeth are not as sharp as when I was younger. If we had sufficient coin, we could buy food from the south and bring it in by ship, the Lord Steward said. We could, thought John, if we had the gold and someone willing to sell us food. Both of those were lacking. Our best hope may be the Irie. The Vale of Erin was famously fertile and had gone untouched during the fighting. John wondered how Lady Caitlin's sister would feel about feeding Ned Stark's bastard. As a boy, he often felt as if the lady grudged him every bite. We can always hunt if need be, Wick Whittlestick put in. There's still game in the woods. And wildlings and darker things, said Marsh. I would not send out hunters, my lord, I would not. No, you would close our gates forever and seal them up with stone and ice. Half of Castle Black agreed with the Lord Steward's views, he knew. The other half heaped scorn on them. Seal our gates and plant your fat black arses on the wall. I and the free folk or come swarming over a bridge of skulls, or through some gate you thought you'd sealed five hundred years ago. The old forester Dywin had declared loudly over supper two nights past, We don't have the men to watch a hundred leagues of wall. Torman giant spot, and the bloody weeper know it too. Ever see a duck frozen in a pond with his feet in the ice? 
It works the same for crows. Most rangers echoed Dywin, whilst the stewards and builders inclined toward Bowen Marsh. But that was a quandary for another day. Here and now, the problem was food. We cannot leave King Stannis and his men to starve, even if we wish to, John said. If need be, he could simply take all this at sword point. We do not have the men to stop them. The wildlings must be fed as well. How, my lord? asked Bowen Marsh. Would that I knew. We will find a way. By the time they returned to the surface, the shadows of the afternoon were growing long. Clouds streaked the sky like tattered banners, grey and white and torn. The yard outside the armory was empty, but inside John found the king's squire awaiting him. Devon was a skinny lad of some twelve years, brown of hair and eye. They found him frozen by the forge, hardly daring to move as ghosts sniffed him up and down. He won't hurt you, John said, but the boy flinched at the sound of his voice, and that sudden motion made the dire wolf bare his teeth. No, John said, ghost, leave him be, away. The wolf slunk back to his oxbone, silence on four feet. Devon looked as pale as ghost, his face damp with perspiration. My lord, his grace commands your presence. The boy was clad in Baratheon gold and black, with the flaming heart of a queen's man sewn above his own. "'You mean requests,' said Dolores Ed. "'His grace requests the presence of the Lord Commander. That's how I'd say it.' "'Leave it be, Ed.' John was in no mood for such squabbles. "'Sir Richard and Sir Justin have returned,' said Devon. "'Will you come, my lord?' Ah, the wrong-way rangers. Massey and Horp had ridden south, not north. Whatever they had learned did not concern the night's watch, but John was curious all the same. If it would please his grace, he followed the young squire back across the yard. Ghosts padded after them, until John said, No, stay. Instead, the dire wolf ran off. In the king's tower, John was stripped of his weapons and admitted to the royal presence. The solar was hot and crowded. Stannis and his captains were gathered over the map of the north. The wrong-way rangers were amongst them. Sigorn was there as well, the young Magnor Othen, clad in a leather hauberk, sewn with bronze scales. Rattleshirt sat scratching at the manacle on his wrist with a cracked yellow fingernail. Brown stubble covered his sunken cheeks and receding chin, and strands of dirty hair hung across his eyes. "'Here he comes,' he said when he saw John, "'the brave boy who slew Mance Raider when he was caged and bound.' The big square-cut gem that adorned his iron cuff glimmered redly. "'Do you like my ruby, Snow? A token of love from Lady Red.' John ignored him and took a knee. Your Grace, announced Squire Devon, I brought Lord Snow. I can see that. Lord Commander, you know my knights and captains, I believe. I have that honour. He made it a point to learn all he could of the men around the king. Queen's men all. It struck John as odd that there were no king's men about the king. 
but that seemed to be the way of it. The king's men had incurred Stannis' ire on Dragonstone, if the talk John heard was true. There is wine, or water boiled with lemons. Thank you, but no. As you wish. I have a gift for you, Lord Snow. The king waved a hand at Rattleshirt. Him. Lady Melisandre smiled. You did say you wanted men, Lord Snow. I believe our Lord of Bones still qualifies. John was aghast. Your Grace, this man cannot be trusted. If I keep him here, someone will slit his throat for him. If I send him ranging, he'll just go back over to the wildlings. Not me, I've done with those bloody fools. Rattleshirt tapped the ruby on his wrist. Ask your red witch, bastard. Melisandre spoke softly in a strange tongue. The ruby at her throat throbbed slowly, and John saw that the smaller stone on Rattleshirt's wrist was brightening and darkening as well. So long as he wears the gem, he is bound to me, blood and soul, the Red Priestess said. This man will serve you faithfully. The flames do not lie, Lord Snow. Perhaps not, John thought. But you do. I'll range for you, bastard, Rattleshirt declared. I'll give you sage counsel, or sing you pretty songs, as you prefer. I'll even fight for you. Just don't ask me to wear your cloak. You're not worthy of one, John thought, but he held his tongue. No good would come of squabbling before the king. King Stannis said, Lord Snow, tell me of Moore's umber. The Night's Watch takes no part, John thought. But another voice within him said, Words are not swords. The elder of the great John's uncles, Crow Food, they call him. A crow once took him for dead and pecked out his eye. He caught the bird in his fist and bit its head off. When Moors was young, he was a fearsome fighter. His sons died on the trident, his wife in childbed. His only daughter was carried off by wildlings thirty years ago. That's why he wants the head, said Harwood Fell. Can this man Moors be trusted? asked Stannis. Has Moors Umber bent the knee? Your grace should have him swear an oath before his heart tree. Godry, the giant slayer, guffawed. I had forgotten that you Northmen worship trees. What sort of god lets himself be pissed upon by dogs? asked Faring's crony, Clayton Suggs. John chose to ignore them. Your Grace, might I know if the Umbers have declared for you? Half of them, and only if I meet this crow food's price, said Stannis, in an irritated tone. He wants Mans Raider's skull for a drinking cup, and he wants a pardon for his brother, who has ridden south to join Bolton. Horsebane, he's called. Sir Godfrey was amused by that as well. What names his Northmen have? Did this one bite the head off some more? John regarded him coolly. You might say so. A whore who tried to rob him fifty years ago in Old Town. Odd as it might seem, old Horfrost Umber had once believed his youngest son had the makings of a maester. Moors loved to boast about the crow who took his eye. But Hother's tale was only told in whispers, most like because the whore he disemboweled had been a man.
Have other lords declared for Bolton too? The Red Priestess slid closer to the king. I saw a town with wooden walls and wooden streets, filled with men. Banners flew above its walls. A moose, a battle-axe, three pine-trees, long axes crossed beneath a crown. A horse's head with furry eyes. Onward, Serwin, Torhart, Risewell, and Dustin, supplied Sir Clayton Soggs. Traitors all, lapdogs of the Lannisters. The Risewells and Dustins are tied to House Bolton by marriage, John informed him. Those others have lost their lords in the fighting. I do not know who leads them now. Crow Food is no lapdog, though. Your grace would do well to accept his terms. Stannis ground his teeth. He informs me that Umber will not fight Umber for any cause. John was not surprised. If it comes to swords, see where Hother's banner flies, and put Moors on the other end of the line. The giant slayer disagreed. You would make his grace look weak. I say, show our strength. Burn last hearts to the ground, and ride to war with Crowfood's head, mounted on a spear, as a lesson to the next lord, who presumes to offer half his homage. A fine plan, if what you want is every hand in the north raised against you. Half is more than none. The Umbers have no love for the Boltons. If Horsbane has joined the bastard, it can only be because the Lannisters hold the great John captive. That is his pretext, not his reason, declared Sir Godfrey. If the nephew dies in chains... These uncles can claim his lands and lordship for themselves. The great John has sons and daughters both. In the north, the children of a man's body still come before his uncles, sir. Unless they die. Dead children come last everywhere. Suggest that in the hearing of Moore's umber, Sir Godfrey, and you will learn more of death than you might wish. I have slain a giant boy. Why should I fear some flea-ridden Northman who paints one on his shield? The giant was running away. Moors won't be. The big knight flushed. You have a bold tongue in the King's solar boy. In the yard you sang a different song. Oh, leave off, Godry, said Sir Justin Massey, a loose-limbed, fleshy knight with a ready smile and a mop of flaxen hair. Massey had been one of the wrong-way rangers. We all know what a big, giant sword you have, I'm sure. No need for you to wave it in our faces yet again. The only thing waving here is your tongue, Massey. Be quiet, Stannis snapped. Lord Snow, attend me. I have lingered here in the hopes that the wildlings would be fool enough to mount another attack upon the wall. As they will not oblige me, it is time I dealt with my other foes. I see. John's tone was wary. What does he want of me? I have no love for Lord Bolton or his son, but the Night's Watch cannot take up arms against them. Our vows prohibit. I know all about your vows. Spare me your rectitude, Lord Snow. I have strength enough without you. I have a mind to march against the Dreadfort. When he saw the shock on John's face, he smiled. Does that surprise you? Good. 
What surprises one snow may yet surprise another. The bastard of Bolton has gone south, taking Hother Umber with him. On that, Moore's Umber and Arnulf Carstock are agreed. That can only mean a strike at Moat Caelan to open the way for his lord father to return to the north. The bastard must think I'm too busy with the wildlings to trouble him. Well and good. The boy has shown me his throat. I mean to rip it out. Roos Bolton may regain the north, but when he does, he will find his castle, herds and harvest all belong to me. If I take the dread fort unawares, you won't, John blurted. It was as if he whacked a wasp's nest with a stick. One of the Queen's men laughed, one spat, one muttered a curse, and the rest all tried to talk at once. The boy has milk water in his veins, said Sir Godfrey the giant slayer. And Lord Sweet huffed. The craven sees an outlaw behind every blade of grass. Stannis raised a hand for silence. Explain your meaning. Where to begin? John moved to the map. Candles had been placed at its corners to keep the hide from rolling up. A finger of warm wax, slow as a glacier, was puddling out across the Bay of Seals. To reach the dread fort, your grace must travel down the King's Road, past the last river, turn south by east, and cross the lonely hills. He pointed. Those are Umberlands, where they know every tree and every rock. The King's Road runs along their western marches, for a hundred leagues. Moors will cut your host to pieces unless you meet his terms and win him to your cause. Very well. Let us say I do that. That will bring you to the Dreadfort, said John. But unless your host can outmarch a raven or a line of beacon fires, the castle will know of your approach. It will be an easy thing for Ramsay Bolton to cut off your retreat and leave you far from the wall without food or refuge, surrounded by your foes. Only if he abandons his siege of Moat Caelan. Moat Caelan will fall before you ever reach the Dreadfort. Once Lord Roos has joined his strength to Ramses, they will have you outnumbered five to one. My brother won battles at worse odds. You assume Moat Caelan will fall quickly, Snow, objected Justin Massey. But the Iron Men are doughty fighters, and I've heard it said that the moat has never been taken. From the south, a small garrison in Moat Caelan can play havoc with any army coming up the causeway, but the ruins are vulnerable from the north and east. John turned back to Stannis. Sire, this is a bold stroke. But the risk, the Night's Watch takes no part. Baratheon or Bolton should be the same to me. If Roose Bolton should catch you beneath his walls, with his main strength, it will be the end for all of you. Risk is part of war, declared Sir Richard Hawpe, a lean knight with a ravaged face, whose quilted doublet showed three death-said moths on a field of ash and bone. Every battle is a gamble, Snow. The man who does nothing also takes a risk. There are risks and risks, Sir Richard. This one, it is too much, too soon, too far away. 
I know the Dreadford. It is a strong castle, all of stone with thick walls and massive towers. With winter coming, you will find it well provisioned. Centuries ago, House Bolton rose up against the king in the north, and Harlan Stark laid siege to the Dreadford. It took him two years to starve them out. To have any hope of taking the castle, your grace would need siege engines, towers, battering rams. Siege towers can be raised, if need be, Stannis said. Trees can be felled for rams, if rams are required. Arn of Karstuck writes that fewer than fifty men remain at the Dreadfort, half of them servants. A strong castle, weakly held, is weak. Fifty men inside a castle are worth five hundred outside. That depends upon the men, said Richard Hope. These will be grey beards and green boys, the men this bastard did not deem fit for battle. Our own men were blooded and tested on the black water, and they are led by knights. You saw how we went through the wildlings, Sir Justin pushed back a lock of flaxen hair. The Carstocks have sworn to join us at the Dreadfort, and we will have our wildlings as well, three hundred men of fighting age. Lord Harwood made a count as they were passing through the gate. Their women fight as well. Stannis gave him a sour look. Not for me, sir. I want no widows wailing in my wake. The women will remain here, with the old, the wounded, and the children. They will serve as hostages for the loyalty of their husbands and fathers. The wildling men will form my van. The Magna will command them with their own chiefs as sergeants. First, though, we must needs arm them. He means to plunder our armory, John realized. Food and clothing, land and castles, now weapons. He draws me in deeper every day. Words might not be swords, but swords were swords. I could find three hundred spears, he said, reluctantly. Helms as well, if you take them old and dinted and red with rust. Armour, asked the Magna, plate, mail. When Donald Noy died, we lost our armour. The rest John left unspoken. Give the wildlings mail, and there'll be twice as great a danger to the realm. Boiled leather will suffice, said Sir Godfrey. Once we've tasted battle, the survivors can loot the dead. The few who live that long? If Stannis placed the free folk in the van, most would perish quickly. Drinking from Mance Raider's skull may give Moore's umber pleasure, but seeing wildlings cross his lands will not. The free folk have been raiding the umbers since the dawn of days, crossing the bay of seals for gold and sheep and women. One of those carried off was Crowfood's daughter. Your Grace, leave the wildlings here. Taking them will only serve to turn my lord father's bannerman against you. Your father's bannerman seemed to have no liking for my cause in any case. I must assume they see me as, what was it that you call me, Lord Snow, another doomed pretender? Stannis stared at the map. For a long moment, the only sound was the king grinding his teeth. Leave me, all of you. Lord Snow, remain.
The brusque dismissal did not sit well with Justin Massey, but he had no choice but to smile and withdraw. Hawp followed him out, after giving John a measured look. Clayton Suggs drained his cup dry and muttered something to Harwood Fell that made the younger man laugh. Boy was part of it. Suggs was an up-jumped hedge knight, as crude as he was strong. The last man to take his leave was Rattleshirt. At the door he gave John a mocking bow, grinning through a mouthful of brown and broken teeth. All of you did not seem to include Lady Melisandre, the king's red shadow. Stannis called Devon for more lemon water. When his cup was filled, the king drank and said, Hope and Massey aspire to your father's seat. Massey wants a wilding princess, too. He once served my brother Robert Esquire and acquired his appetite for female flesh. Hope will take Val to wife if I command it, but it is battle he lusts for. As a squire he dreamed of a white cloak, but Cersei Lannister spoke against him, and Robert passed him over. Perhaps rightly. Sir Richard is too fond of killing. Which would you have as Lord of Winterfell, Snow? The Smiler or the Slayer? John said, Winterfell belongs to my sister, Sansa. I've heard all I need to hear of Lady Lannister and her claim. The king set the cup aside. You could bring the north to me. Your father's bannerman would rally to the son of Eddard Stark, even lord too fat to sit a horse. White Harbour would give me a ready source of supply and a secure base to which I could retreat at need. It is not too late to amend your follies, no. Take a knee and swear that bastard sword to me and rise as John Stark, Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North. How many times will he make me say it? My sword is sworn to the Night's Watch. Stannis looked disgusted. Your father was a stubborn man as well. Honor, he called it. Well, honor has its costs, as Lord Eddard learned to his sorrow. If it gives you any solace, Hope and Massey are doomed to disappointment. I am more inclined to bestow Winterfell upon Arnulf Karstark, a good Northman. A Northman? Better a Karstark than a Bolton or a Greyjoy, John told himself, but the thought gave him little solace. The Karstarks abandoned my brother amongst his enemies. After your brother took off Lord Rickard's head, Arnulf was a thousand leagues away. He has stark blood in him, the blood of Winterfell. No more than half the other houses of the North. Those other houses have not declared for me. Arnulf Karstark is an old man with a crooked back, and even in his youth he was never the fighter Lord Rickard was. The rigors of the campaign may well kill him. He has heirs, Stannis snapped. Two sons, six grandsons, some daughters. If Robert had fathered true-born sons, many who are dead might still be living. Your grace would do better with Moore's crow food. The dreadfort will be the proof of that. Then you mean to go ahead with this attack. Despite the counsel of the great Lord Snow, I... Hope and Massey may be ambitious, but they are not wrong. 
I dare not sit idle, whilst Roose Bolton star waxes and mine wanes. I must strike and show the North that I am still a man to fear. The merman of Mandalay was not amongst those banners. Lady Melisandre saw in her fires, John said. If you had White Harbour and Lord Wyman's knights, if is a word for fools. We have had no word from Davis. It may be he never reached White Harbour. Arnolf Karstark writes that the storms have been fierce upon the narrow seas. Be that as it may, I have no time to grieve, nor wait upon the whims of Lord Too Fat. I must consider White Harbour lust to me. Without a son of Winterfell to stand beside me, I can only hope to win the North by battle. That requires stealing a leaf from my brother's book. Not that Robert ever read one. I must deal my foes a mortal blow before they know that I am on them. John realized that his words were wasted. Stannis would take the dread fort or die in the attempt. The Night's Watch takes no part, a voice said, but another replied, Stannis fights for the realm, the Iron Men for thralls and plunder. Your Grace, I know where you might find more men. Give me the wildlings and I will gladly tell you where and how. I gave you Rattleshirt. Be content with him. I want them all. Some of your own sworn brothers would have me believe that you are half a wildling yourself. Is it true? To you they are only arrow fodder. I can make better use of them upon the wall. Give them to me to do with as I will, and I'll show you where to find your victory, and men as well. Stannis robbed the back of his neck. You haggle like a crone with a codfish, Lord Snow. Did Ned Stark father you on some fishwife? How many men? Two thousand, perhaps three. Three thousand? What manner of men are these? Proud, poor, prickly where their honour is concerned, but fierce fighters. This had best not be some bastard's trick. Will I trade three hundred fighters for three thousand? Aye, I will. I am not an utter fool. If I leave the girl with you as well, do I have your word that you will keep our princess closely? She's not a princess. As you wish, Your Grace. Do I need to make you swear an oath before a tree? No. Was that a jape? With Stannis it was hard to tell. Done, then. Now, where are these men? You'll find them here. John spread his burned hand across the map, west of the King's Road and south of the Gift. Those mountains? Stannis grew suspicious. I see no castles marked there, no roads, no towns, no villages. The map is not the land, my father often said. Men have lived in the high valleys and mountain meadows for thousands of years, ruled by their clan chiefs. Petty lords, you would call them, though they do not use such titles amongst themselves. Clan champions fight with huge two-handed greatswords, while the common men sling stones and batter one another with staffs of mountain ash. A quarrelsome folk, it must be said. When they are not fighting one another, they tend their herds, fish the Bay of Ice, and breed the hardiest mounts you'll ever ride. 
and they will fight for me, you believe? If you ask them, why should I beg for what is owed me? Ask, I said, not beg. John pulled back his hand. It is no good sending messages. Your grace will need to go to them yourself. Eat their bread and salt. Drink their ale. Listen to their pipers. Praise the beauty of their daughters and the courage of their sons, and you'll have their swords. The clans had not seen a king since Torren Stark bent his knee. Your coming does them honor. Command them to fight for you, and they will look at one another and say, Who is this man? He is no king of mine. How many clans are you speaking of? Two score, small and large. Flint, Wall, Norrie, Little. Win old Flint and Big Bucket. The rest will follow. Big Bucket. The Wall, he has the biggest belly in the mountains and the most men. The Walls fish the Bay of Ice and warn their little ones that iron men will carry them off if they don't behave. To reach them, your grace must pass through the Norris lands, however. They live the nearest to the gift, and have always been good friends to the watch. I could give you guides. Could? Stannis miss little. Or will? Will. You'll need them. And some sure-footed garrons, too. The paths up there are little more than goat tracks. Goat tracks? The king's eyes narrowed. I speak of moving swiftly and you waste my time with goat tracks. When the young dragon conquered Dawn, he used a goat track to bypass the Dornish watchtowers on the Boneway. I know that tale as well, but Darren made too much of it in that vainglorious book of his. Ships won that war, not goat tracks. Oak and Fist broke the planky town and swept halfway up the green blood, whilst the main Dornish strength was engaged in the prince's pass. Stannis drummed his fingers on the map. These mountain lords will not hinder my passage? Only with feasts. Each will try to outdo the other with his hospitality. My lord father said he never ate half so well as when visiting the clans. For three thousand men, I suppose I can endure some pipes and porridge? The king said though his tone begrudged even that. John turned to Melisandre. My lady, fair warning. The old gods are strong in those mountains. The clansmen will not suffer insults to their heart trees. That seemed to amuse her. Have no fear, John Snow. I will not trouble your mountain savages and their dark gods. My place is here with you and your brave brothers. That was the last thing Jon Snow would have wanted, but before he could object, the king said, Where would you have me lead these stalwarts, if not against the Dreadfort? Jon glanced down at the map. Deepwood Mott. He tapped it with a finger. If Bolton means to fight the Iron Men, so must you. Deepwood is a Mott and Bailey castle, in the midst of thick forest, easy to creep up on, unawares. A wooden castle, defended by an earthen dyke and a palisade of logs. The going will be slower through the mountains, admittedly, but up there your host can move unseen, to emerge almost at the gates of Deepwood. Stannis rubbed his jaw. When Ballon Greyjoy rose the first time, 
I beat the iron men at sea with their fiercest. On land taken unawares, I, I have won a victory over the wildlings and their king beyond the wall. If I can smash the iron men as well, the north will know it has a king again. And I will have a thousand wildlings, thought John, and no way to feed even half that number. Tyrion The shy maid moved through the fog, like a blind man groping his way down an unfamiliar hall. Septa Lamore was praying. The mist muffled the sound of her voice, making it seem small and hushed. Griff paced the deck, mail clinking softly beneath his wolfskin cloak. From time to time he touched his sword, as if to make certain that it still hung at his side. Raleigh Duckfield was pushing at the starboard pole, Yandri at the larboard. Yasilla had the tiller. I do not like this place, Holden Halfmaster muttered. Frightened of a little fog, mocked Tyrion, though in truth there was quite a lot of fog. At the prow of the shy maid, young Griff stood with a third pole to push them away from hazards as they loomed up through the mists. The lanterns had been lit fore and aft, but the fog was so thick that all the dwarf could see from amidships was a light floating out ahead of him and another following behind. His own task was to tend the brazier and make certain that the fire did not go out. This is no common fog, Hugo Hill, Yasilla insisted. It stinks of sorcery, as you would know if you had a nose to smell it. Many a voyager has been lost here, pole boats and pirates and great river galleys too. They wander forlorn through the mists, "'searching for a son they cannot find "'until madness or hunger claim their lives. "'There are restless spirits in the air here "'and tormented souls below the water.' "'There's one now,' said Tyrion. "'Off to starboard, a hand large enough to crush the boat "'was reaching up from the murky depths. "'Only the tops of two fingers broke the river's surface, "'but as the shy maid eased on past, he could see the rest of the hand rippling below the water and a pale face looking up. Though his tone was light, he was uneasy. This was a bad place, rank with despair and death. Yasilla is not wrong. This fog is not natural. Something foul grew in the waters here and festered in the air. Small wonder the stone men go mad. You should not make mock warned Yusilla. The whispering dead hate the warm and quick and ever seek for more damned souls to join them. I doubt they have a shroud my size. The dwarf stirred the coals with a poker. Hatred does not stir the stone in half so much as hunger. Holden Halfmaster had wrapped a yellow scarf around his mouth and nose, muffling his voice. Nothing any sane man would want to eat grows in these fogs. Thrice each year the Triarchs of Valentus send a galley upriver with provisions. But the Mercy ships are oft late, and sometimes bring more mouths and food. Young Griff said, There must be fish in the river. I would not eat any fish taken from these waters, said Yasilla. I would not. We do well not to breathe the fog either, said Holden. 
Garen's curse is all about us. The only way not to breathe the fog is not to breathe. Garen's curse is only grayscale, said Tyrion. The curse was off-seen in children, especially in damp, cold climes. The afflicted flesh stiffened, calcified, and cracked, though the dwarf had read that grayscale's progress could be stayed by limes, mustard poultices, and scalding hot bars, the maester said, or by prayer, sacrifice, and fasting, the septons insisted. Then the disease passed, leaving its young victims disfigured but alive. Maesters and septons alike agreed that children marked by grayscale could never be touched by the rarer mortal form of the affliction, nor by its terrible swift cousin, the Grey Plague. Damp is said to be the culprit, he said. Foul humours in the air, not curses. The conquerors did not believe either, Hugo Hill, said Yusilla. The men of Volantis and Valeria hung Garen in a golden cage and made muck as he called upon his mother to destroy them. But in the night the waters rose and drowned them, and from that day to this they have not rested. They are down there, still beneath the water. They who were once the lords of fire, their cold breath rises from the murk to make these fogs and their flesh has turned as stony as their hearts. The stump of Tyrion's nose was itching fiercely. He gave it a scratch. The old woman may be right. This place is no good. I feel as if I am back in the privy again, watching my father die. He would go mad as well if he had to spend his days in this grey soup, whilst his flesh and bones turned to stone. Young Griff did not seem to share his misgivings. Let them try and trouble us. We'll show them what we're made of. We are made of blood and bone, in the image of the father and the mother, said Septon Lamore. Make no vain glorious boasts, I beg you. Pride is a grievous sin. The stone men were proud as well, and the shrouded lord was proudest of them all. The heat from the glowing coals brought a flush to Tyrion's face. Is there a shrouded lord, or is he just some tale? The shrouded lord has ruled these myths since Garen's day, said Yandri. Some say that he himself is Garen, risen from his watery grave. The dead do not rise, insisted Holden Halfmaster, and no man lives a thousand years. Yes, there is a shrouded lord. There have been a score of them. When one dies, another takes his place. This one is a corsair from the Basilisk Islands, who believed the ruin would offer richer pickings than the summer sea. Aye, I've heard that too, said Duck, but there's another tale I like better. The one that says is not like t'other stone men, that he started as a statue till a grey woman came out of the fog and kissed him with lips as cold as ice. Enough, said Griff. "'Be quiet, all of you,' said to Lamore, sucked in her breath. "'What was that?' "'Where?' Tyrion saw nothing but the fog. "'The heat from the glowing coals brought a flush to his face. "'Something moved. I saw the water rippling. "'A turtle,' the prince announced cheerfully. "'A big snapper, that's all it was.' 
he thrust his pole out ahead of them and pushed them away from a towering green obelisk. The fog clung to them, damp and chilly. A sunken temple loomed up out of the greyness as Yandri and Duck leaned upon their poles and paced slowly from prow to stern, pushing. They passed a marble stair that spiraled up from the mud and ended jaggedly in air. Beyond half-seen were other shapes, shattered spires, headless statues, trees with roots bigger than their boat. This was the most beautiful city on the river, and the richest, said Yandri. Croyane, the festival city. Too rich, thought Tyrion. Too beautiful. It is never wise to tempt the dragons. The drowned city was all around them. A half-seen shape flapped by overhead, pale leathery wings beating at the fog. The dwarf craned his head around to get a better look, but the thing was gone as suddenly as it had appeared. Not long after, another light floated into view. "'Boat!' a voice called across the water, faintly. "'Who are you?' "'Shy maid!' Yanty shouted back. "'Kingfisher! Up or down? Down! Hides and honey! Ale and tallow! Up! Knives and needles! Lace and linen! Spice wine!' "'What word from old Volantis?' Yantry called. War! the word came back. Where? Griff shouted. When? When the year turns, came the answer. Nisus and Malachor go hand in hand, and the elephants show stripes. The voice faded as the other boat moved away from them. They watched its light dwindle and disappear. Is it wise to shout through the fog at boats we cannot see? asked Tyrion. What if they were pirates? They had been fortunate where pirates were concerned, slipping down Dagger Lake by night, unseen and unmolested. Once Doc had caught a glimpse of a hull that he insisted belonged to Euro, the unwashed. The shy maid had been upwind, however, and Euro, if Euro it had been, had shown no interest in them. The pirates would not sail into the sorrows, said Yandri. Elephants with stripes, Griff muttered. What is that about, Nisus and Malaquo? Illyrio has paid Triarch Nisus enough to own him eight times over. In gold or cheese, quipped Tyrion. Griff rounded on him. Unless you can cut this fog with your next witticism, keep it to yourself. Yes, father, the dwarf almost said. I'll be quiet, thank you. He did not know these volunteers, yet it seemed to him that elephants and tigers might have good reason to make common cause when faced with dragons. Might be the cheesemonger has misjudged the situation. You can buy a man with gold, but only blood and steel will keep him true. The little man stirred the coals again and blew on them to make them burn brighter. I hate this. I hate this fog. I hate this place and I am less than fond of Griff. Tyrion still had the poison mushrooms he had plucked from the grounds of Illyrio's manse, and there were days when he was sore tempted to slip them into Griff's supper. The trouble was, Griff scarce seemed to eat. Duck and Yandri pushed against the poles. Yasilla turned the tiller. 
Young Griff pushed the shy maid away from a broken tower, whose windows stared down like blind black eyes. Overhead, her sail hung limp and heavy. The water deepened under her hull until their poles could not touch bottom, but still the current pushed them downstream, until all Tyrion could see was something massive rising from the river, humped and ominous. He took it for a hill looming above a wooded island or some colossal rock overgrown with moss and ferns and hidden by the fog. As the shy mare drew nearer, though, the shape of it came clearer. A wooden keep could be seen beside the water, rotted and overgrown. Slender spires took form above it. Some of them snapped off like broken spears. Roofless tiles appeared and disappeared, thrusting blindly upward. Halls and galleries drifted past, graceful buttresses, delicate arches, fluted columns, terraces and bowers. All ruined, all desolate, all fallen. The grey moss grew thickly here, covering the fallen stones in great mounds and bearding all the towers. Black vines crept in and out of windows, through doors and over archways, up the sides of high stone walls. The fog concealed three quarters of the palace, but what they glimpsed was more than enough for Tyrion to know that this island fastness had been ten times the size of the Red Keep once, and a hundred times more beautiful. He knew where he was. The Palace of Love, he said softly. That was the Roiner name, said Holden Halfmaster, but for a thousand years this has been the Palace of Sorrow. The ruin was sad enough, but knowing what it had been made it even sadder. There was laughter here once, Tyrion thought. There were gardens, bright with flowers, and fountains sparkling golden in the sun. These steps once rang to the sound of lovers' footsteps, and beneath that broken dome marriages beyond count were sealed with a kiss. His thoughts turned to Tysha, who had so briefly been his lady wife. It was Jamie, he thought, despairing. He was my own blood, my big, strong brother. When I was small, he brought me toys, barrel hoops and blocks, and a carved wooden lion. He gave me my first pony and taught me how to ride him. When he said that he had bought you for me, I never doubted him. Why would I? He was Jamie, and you were just some girl who played a part. I had feared it from the start, from the moment you first smiled at me and let me touch your hand. My own father could not love me. Why would you, if not for gold? Through the long grey fingers of the fog, he heard again the deep shuddering thrum of a bowstring snapping taut. The grunt Lord Tywin made as a quarrel took him beneath the belly, the slap of cheeks on stone, as he sat down to die. "'Wherever whores go,' he said. "'And where is that?' Tyrion wanted to ask him. "'Where did Tysha go, father? "'How much more of this fog must we endure?' "'Another hour should see us clear of the sorrows,' said Holden Halfmaster. "'From there on there should be a pleasure cruise.' 
There's a village round every bend along the lower ruin, orchards and vineyards and fields of grain ripening in the sun, fisher-folk on the water, hot bars and sweet wines. Selhoris, Vanessan and Volunteeris are walled towns so large they would be cities in the Seven Kingdoms. I believe I'll... Light ahead, warned young Griff. Tyrion saw it too. Kingfisher or another pearl-boat, he told himself, but somehow he knew that was not right. His nose itched. He scratched at it savagely. The light grew brighter as the shy maid approached it. A soft star in the distance, it glimmered faintly through the fog, beckoning them on. Shortly it became two lights, then three, a ragged row of beacons rising from the water. The Bridge of Dream, Griff named it. There will be stone men on the span. Some may start to wail at our approach, but they are not like to molest us. Most stone men are feeble creatures, clumsy, lumbering, witless. Near the end, they all go mad, but that is when they are most dangerous. If need be, fend them off with the torches. On no account let them touch you. They may not even see us, said Holden Halfmaster. The fog will hide us from them until we are almost at the bridge. Then we will be past before they know that we are here. Stone eyes are blind eyes, thought Tyrion. The mortal form of Grayscale began in the extremities, he knew. A tingling in a fingertip, a toenail turning black, a loss of feeling. As the numbness crept into the hand or stole past the foot and up the leg, the flesh stiffened and grew cold and the victim's skin took on a greyish hue, resembling stone. He had heard it said that there were three good cures for grayscale, axe and sword and cleaver. Hacking off afflicted parts did sometimes stop the spread of the disease, Tyrion knew, but not always. Many a man had sacrificed one arm or foot, only to find the other going grey. Once that happened, hope was gone. Blindness was common when the stone reached the face. In the final stages, the curse turned inward to muscles, bones, and inner organs. Ahead of them, the bridge grew larger. The Bridge of Dream, Griff called it, but this dream was smashed and broken. Pale stone archers marched off into the fog, reaching from the Palace of Sorrow to the river's western bank. Half of them had collapsed, pulled down by the weight of the grey moss that draped them and the thick black vines that snaked upward from the water. The broad wooden span of the bridge had rotted through, but some of the lamps that lined the way were still aglow. As the shy maid grew closer, Tyrion could see the shapes of stone men moving in the light, shuffling aimlessly around the lamps like slow grey moths. Some were naked, others clad in shrouds. Griff drew his longsword. Yolo, light the torches. Lad, take them all back to her cabin and stay with her. Young Griff gave his father a stubborn look. Lamour knows where her cabin is. I want to stay. We are sworn to protect you, Lamour said softly. I don't need to be protected. I can use a sword as well as duck. I'm half a knight. And half a boy, said Griff. Do as you're told, now. The youth cursed under his breath. 
and flung his pole down onto the deck. The sound echoed queerly in the fog, and for a moment it was as if poles were falling around them. "'Why should I run and hide? Holden is staying, and your cellar, even you go.' "'Aye,' said Tyrion, "'but I am small enough to hide behind a duck.' He thrust half a dozen torches into the brazier's glowing coals and watched the oiled rags flare up. "'Don't stare at the fire,' he told himself. "'The flames would leave him night-blind.' "'You're a dwarf,' young Griff said scornfully. "'Oh, my secret is revealed,' Tyrion agreed. "'Aye, I'm less than half a Holden, and no one gives a mama's fart whether I live or die, least of all me. You, though, you are everything.' "'Dwarf,' said Griff, "'I warned you.' A wail came shivering through the fog, faint and high. Lamore whirled, trembling. Seven save us all!' The broken bridge was a bare five yards ahead. Around its piers the water rippled white as the foam from a madman's mouth. Forty feet above the stone men moaned and muttered beneath a flickering lamp. Most took no more notice of the shy maid than of a drifting log. Tyrion clutched his torch tighter and found that he was holding his breath, and then they were beneath the bridge— White walls, heavy with curtains of grey fungus, looming to either side, water foaming angrily around them. For a moment it looked as though they might crash into the right-hand pier, but Duck raised his pole and shoved off, back into the centre of the channel, and a few heartbeats later they were clear. Tyrion had no sooner exhaled than young Griff grabbed hold of his arm. "'What do you mean? I am everything!' "'What did you mean by that? Why am I everything?' "'Why?' said Tyrion. "'If the stone men had taken Yantry, or Griff, or our lovely Lamore, "'we would have grieved for them, and gone on, lose you, "'and this whole enterprise is undone, "'and all those years of feverish plotting by the cheesemonger and the eunuch "'would have been for naught. Isn't that so?' "'The boy looked to Griff.' He knows who I am. Ah, if I did not know before, I would now. By then the shy maid was well downstream of the Bridge of Dream. All that remained was a dwindling light astern, and soon enough that would be gone as well. Your young Griff, son of Griff the Sellsword, said Tyrion, or perhaps you are the warrior in mortal guise. Let me take a closer look. He held up his torch so that the light washed over young Griff's face. Leave off, Griff commanded, or you will wish you had. The dwarf ignored him. The blue hair makes your eyes seem blue. More that's good. And the tale of how you collar it in honor of your dead Tirashi mother was so touching it almost made me cry. Still, a curious man might wonder why some sellsword's whelp would need a soil scepter to instruct him in the faith, or a chainless maester to tutor him in Istrian tongues, and a clever man might question why your father would engage a hedge knight to train you in arms instead of simply sending you off to apprentice with one of the free companies. It is almost as if someone wanted to keep you hidden while still preparing you for what? 
Now there's a puzzlement, but I'm sure that in time it will come to me. I must admit you have noble features for a dead boy. The boy flushed. I'm not dead. How not? My lord father wrapped your corpse in a crimson cloak and laid you down beside your sister at the foot of the iron throne, his gift to the new king. Those who had the stomach to lift the cloak said that half your head was gone. The lad backed off a step, confused. Your father, aye. Tywin of House Lannister. Perhaps you may have heard of him. Young Griff hesitated. Lannister, your father is dead at my hand. If it please your grace to call me Yolo or Hugo, so be it. But know that I was born Tyrion of House Lannister, true-born son of Tywin and Joanna, both of whom I slew. Men will tell you that I am a kingslayer, a kinslayer, and a liar, and all of that is true. But then we are a company of liars, are we not? Uh, take your feigned father, uh, Griff, is it? The dwarf sniggered. You should thank the gods that Varys the spider is a part of this plot of yours. Griff would not have fooled the cockless wonder for an instant, no more than he did me. No lord, my lordship says, no knight. And I am no dwarf. Just saying a thing does not make it true. Who better to raise Prince Rhaegar's infant son than Prince Rhaegar's dear friend, John Connington, once lord of Griffin's roost? and hand of the king. Be quiet! Griff's voice was uneasy. On the larboard side of the boat, a huge stone hand was visible just below the water. Two fingers broke the surface. How many of those are there? Tyrion wondered. A trickle of moisture ran down his spine and made him shudder. The sorrows drifted by them. Peering through the mists, he glimpsed a broken spire, a headless hero, an ancient tree torn from the ground and upended, its huge roots twisting through the roof and windows of a broken dome. Why does all of this seem so familiar? Straight on, a tilted stairway of pale marble rose up out of the dark water in a graceful spiral, ending abruptly ten feet above their heads. No, thought Tyrion. That is not possible. Ahead, Limor's voice was shivery. A light! All of them looked. All of them saw it. Kingfisher, said Griff. Her, or some other like her. But he drew his sword again. No one said a word. The shy maid moved with a current. Her sail had not been raised since she first entered the sorrows. She had no way to move but with the river. Duck stood squinting, clutching his pole with both hands. After a time, even Yandri stopped pushing. Every eye was on the distant light. As they grew closer, it turned into two lights, then three. The Bridge of Dream, said Tyrion. Inconceivable, said Holden Halfmaster. We've left the bridge behind. Rivers only run one way. Mother Royan runs how she will murmured Yandri. Seven save us, said Lamore. 
Up ahead, the stone men on the span began to wail. A few were pointing down at them. Alden, get the prince below, commanded Griff. It was too late. The current had them in its teeth. They drifted inexorably toward the bridge. Yandri stabbed out with his pole to keep them from smashing into a pier. The thrust shoved them sideways through a curtain of pale grey moss. Tyrion felt tendrils brush against his face, soft as a whore's fingers. Then there was a crash behind him, and the deck tilted so suddenly that he almost lost his feet and went pitching over the side. A stone man crashed down into the boat. He landed on the cabin roof, so heavily that the shy maid seemed to rock, and roared a word down at them in a tongue that Tyrion did not know. A second stone man followed, landing back beside the tiller. The weathered planks splintered beneath the impact, and Yasilla let out a shriek. Duck was closest to her. The big man did not waste time reaching for his sword. Instead, he swung his pole, slamming it into the stone man's chest and knocking him off the boat into the river, where he sank at once without a sound. Griff was on the second man the instant he shambled down off the cabin roof. With a sword in his right hand and a torch in his left, he drove the creature backwards. As the current swept the shy maid beneath the bridge, their shifting shadows danced upon the mossy walls. When the stone man moved aft, Duck blocked his way, pole in hand. When he went forward, Holden Halfmaster waved a second torch at him and drove him back. He had no choice but to come straight at Griff. The captain slid aside, his blade flashing. A spark flew where the steel bit into the stone man's calcified grey flesh, but his arm tumbled to the deck all the same. Griff kicked the limb aside. Yandri and Duck had come up with their poles. Together they forced the creature over the side and into the black waters of the Rhoyne. By then the shy maid had drifted out from under the broken bridge. "'Did we get them all?' asked Duck. "'How many jumped?' Two, said Tyrion, shivering. Three, said Holden. "'Behind you!' The dwarf turned, and there he stood. The leap had shattered one of his legs, and a jagged piece of pale bone jutted out through the rotted cloth of his breeches and the grey meat beneath. The broken bone was speckled with brown blood, but still he lurched forward, reaching for young Griff. His hand was grey and stiff, but blood oozed between his knuckles as he tried to close his fingers to grasp. The boy stood staring, as still as if he too were made of stone. His hand was on his sword hilt, but he seemed to have forgotten why. Tyrion kicked the lad's leg out from under him and leapt over him when he fell, thrusting his torch into the stone man's face to send him stumbling backwards on his shattered leg, flailing at the flames with stiff grey hands. The dwarf waddled after him, slashing with the torch, jabbing it at the stone man's eyes. A little further, back, one more step, another. They were at the edge of the deck when the creature rushed him grabbed the torch, and ripped it from his hands. Bugger me, thought Tyrion. The stone man flung the torch away. There was a soft hiss as the black waters quenched the flames. The stone man howled. He'd been a summer islander before. His jaw and half his cheek had turned to stone, but his skin was black as midnight 
where it was not grey. Where he had grasped the torch, his skin had cracked and split. Blood was seeping from his knuckles, though he did not seem to feel it. That was some small mercy, Tyrion supposed. Though mortal, grayscale was supposedly not painful. "'Stand aside!' someone shouted, far away, and another voice said, "'The prince! Protect the boy!' The stone man staggered forward, his hands outstretched and grasping. Tyrion drove a shoulder into him. It felt like slamming into a castle wall, but this castle stood upon a shattered leg. The stone man went over backwards, grabbing hold of Tyrion as he fell. They hit the river with a towering splash, and Mother Roin swallowed up the two of them. The sudden cold hit Tyrion like a hammer. As he sank, he felt a stone hand fumbling at his face. Another closed around his arm, dragging him down into darkness. Blind, his nose full of river, choking, sinking, he kicked and twisted and fought to pry the clutching fingers off his arm. But the stone fingers were unyielding. Air bubbled from his lips. The world was black and growing blacker. He could not breathe. There are worse ways to die than drowning. And if truth be told, he had perished long ago, back in King's Landing. It was only his revenant who remained, the small, vengeful ghost, who throttled Shay and put a crossbow bolt through the great Lord Tywin's bowels. No man would mourn the thing that he'd become. I'll haunt the seven kingdoms, he thought, sinking deeper. They would not love me living, so let them dread me dead. When he opened his mouth to curse them all, black water filled his lungs, and the dark closed in around him. Davos His lordship will hear you now, smuggler. The knight wore silver armor, his greaves and gauntlet inlaid with niello to suggest flowing fronds of seaweed. The helm beneath his arm was the head of a merling king, with a crown of mother of pearl and a jutting beard of jet and jade. His own beard was as gray as the winter sea. Davis rose. May I know your name, sir? Sir Marlon Manderley. He was a head taller than Davis and three stone heavier, with slate-gray eyes and a haughty way of speaking. I have the honor to be Lord Wyman's cousin and commander of his garrison. Follow me. Davis had come to White Harbor as an envoy, but they had made him a captive. His chambers were large, airy, and handsomely furnished, but there were guards outside his doors. From his window he could see the streets of White Harbor beyond the castle walls, but he was not allowed to walk them. He could see the harbor, too, and had watched Merry Midwife make her way down the Firth. Casso Mogat had waited four days instead of three before departing. Another fortnight had passed since then. Lord Mandalay's household guard wore cloaks of blue-green wool and carried silver tridents in place of common spears. One went before him, one behind, and one to either side. They walked past the faded banners, broken shields, and rusted swords of a hundred ancient victories, and a score of wooden figures, cracked and worm-riddled, 
that could only have adorned the prows of ships. Two marble mermen flanked his lordship's court, fish-foot smaller cousins. As the guards threw open the doors, a herald slammed the butt of his staff against an old plank floor. "'Sir Davis of House Seaworth!' he called in a ringing voice. As many times as he had visited White Harbour, Davis had never set foot inside the new castle, much less the merman's court. Its walls and floor and ceiling were made of wooden planks, notched cunningly together and decorated with all the creatures of the sea. As they approached the dais, Davis trod on painted crabs and clams and starfish, half-hidden amongst twisting black fronds of seaweed and the bones of drowned sailors. On the walls to either side, pale sharks prowled painted blue-green depths, whilst eels and octopods slithered amongst rocks and sunken ships. Shells of herring and great codfish swam between the tall arched windows. Higher up, near where the old fishing nets drooped down from the rafters, the surface of the sea had been depicted. To his right, a war galley stroked serene against the rising sun. To his left, a battered old cog raced before a storm, her sails in rags. Behind the dais, a kraken and grey leviathan were locked in battle beneath the painted waves. Davis had hoped to speak with Wyman Manderley alone, but he found a crowded court. Along the walls, the women outnumbered the men by five to one. What few males he did see had long grey beards or looked too young to shave. There were septons as well, and holy sisters in white robes and grey. Near the top of the hall stood a dozen men in the blue and silver grey of House Frey. Their faces had a likeness a blind man could have seen. Several wore the badge of the twins, two towers connected by a bridge. Davis had learned to read men's faces long before Maester Pilus had taught him to read words on paper. These phrases would gladly see me dead, he realized at a glance. Nor did he find any welcome in the pale blue eyes of Wyman Manderley. His lordship's cushioned throne was wide enough to accommodate three men of common girth, yet Manderley threatened to overflow it. His lordship sagged into his seat. His shoulders slumped, his legs splayed, his hands resting on the arms of his throne as if the weight of them were too much to bear. "'Guards be good,' thought Davis, when he saw Lord Wyman's face. "'This man looks half a corpse.' His skin was pallid, with an undertone of grey. "'Kings and corpses always draw attendance,' the old saying went. So it was with Manderley. Left of the high seat stood a maester, nigh as fat as the lord he served, a rosy-cheeked man with thick lips and a head of golden curls. Sir Marlon claimed the place of honour at his lordship's right hand. On a cushioned stool at his feet perched a plump pink lady. Behind Lord Wyman stood two younger women, sisters by the look of them. The elder wore her brown hair bound in a long braid. The younger, no more than fifteen, had an even longer braid, dyed a garish green. None chose to honour Davis with a name. The maester was the first to speak. You stand before Wyman Manderley, Lord of White Harbour, 
and warden of the white knife, shield of the faith, defender of the dispossessed, Lord Marshal of the Manda, a knight of the Order of the Green Hand, he said. In the Merman's Court, it is customary for vassals and petitioners to kneel. The Onion Knight would have bent his knee, but a king's hand could not. To do so would suggest that the king he served was less than this fat lord. I have not come as a petitioner, Davis replied. I have a string of titles too. Lord of the Rainwood, Admiral of the Narrow Sea, Hand of the King. The plump woman on the stool rolled her eyes. An admiral without ships, a hand without fingers, in service to a king without a throne. Is this a knight who comes before us, or the answer to a child's riddle? He is a messenger, good daughter, Lord Wyman said. An onion of ill omen. Stannis did not like the answer his ravens brought him, so he sent this, this smuggler. He squinted at Davis, through eyes half buried in rolls of fat. You have visited our city before, I think, taking coin from our pockets and food off our table. How much did you steal from me, I wonder? Not enough that you ever missed a meal. I paid for my smuggling at Storm's End, my lord. Davis pulled off his glove and held up his left hand with his four shortened fingers. Four fingertips for a lifetime's worth of theft, said the woman on the stool. Her hair was yellow, her face round and pink and fleshy. You got off cheaply, onion knight. Davis did not deny it. If it please, my lord, I would request a privy audience. It did not please the lord. I keep no secrets for my kin, nor for my leal lords and knights. Good friends all. My lord, said Davis, I would not want my words to be heard by his grace's enemies, or by your lordships. Stannis may have enemies in this hall. I do not. Not even the men who slew your son, Davis pointed. These frays were amongst his hosts at the Red Wedding. One of the frays stepped forward, a knight long and lean of limb, clean-shaven, but for a grey moustache as thin as a merest stiletto. The Red Wedding was a young wolf's work. He changed into a beast before our eyes and tore out the throat of my cousin Jingle Bell, a harmless simpleton. He would have slain my lord father too, if Sir Wendell had not put himself in the way. Lord Wyman blinked back tears. Wendell was always a brave boy. I was not surprised to learn he died a hero. The enormity of the lie made Davis gasp. Is it your claim that Rob Stark killed Wendell Mandley? he asked the fray. And many more. Mine own son Titus was amongst them, and my daughter's husband. When Stark changed into a wolf, his Northmen did the same. The mark of the beast was on them all. Wags birth other wags with a bite. It's well known. It was all my brothers and I could do to put them down before they slew us all. The man was smirking as he told the tale. Davis wanted to peel his lips off with a knife. Sir, may I have your name? Sir Jared of Hosfrey. 
Jarrett of Ausfray? Oh, I name you Liar. Sir Jarrett seemed amused. Some men cry when slicing onions, but I've never had that weakness. Steel whispered against leather as he drew his sword. If you're indeed a knight, sir, defend that slander with your body. Lord Wyman's eyes fluttered open. I'll have no bloodshed in the Merman's court. Put up your steel, Sir Jared. Else I must ask you to leave my presence. Sir Jared sheathed his sword. Beneath your lordship's roof, your lordship's word is law. But I shall want a reckoning with this onion lord before he leaves this city. Blood! howled the woman on the stool. That's what this ill onion wants of us, my lord. See how he stirs up trouble. Send him away, I beg you. He wants the blood of your people, the blood of your brave sons. Send him away. Should the queen hear that she gave audience to this traitor, she may question our own loyalty. She might, she could, she... It will not come to that, good daughter, Lord Wyman said. The Iron Throne shall have no cause to doubt us. Davis misliked the sound of that but he had not come all this way to hold his tongue. The boy on the Iron Throne is a usurper, he said, and I am no traitor, but the hand of Stannis Baratheon, the first of his name, the true-born king of Westeros. The fat maester cleared his throne. Stannis Baratheon was brother to our late King Robert. May their father judge him justly. Tommen is the issue of Robert's body, the laws of succession are clear in such a case. A son must come before a brother. Maester Thermor speaks truly, said Lord Wyman. He is wise in all such matters, and has always given me good counsel. A true-born son comes before a brother, Davis agreed. But Tommen called Baratheon is bastard-born, as his brother Joffrey was before him. They were sired by the Kingslayer in defiance of all the laws of gods and men. Another of the phrase spoke up. He speaks treason with his own lips, my lord. Stannis took his thieving fingers. You should take his lying tongue. Take his head, rather, suggested Sir Jarrett, or let him meet me on the field of honour. What would a fray know of honour? Davis threw back. Four of the Freys started forward, until Lord Wyman halted them with an upraised hand. Step back, my friends. I will hear him out before I, before I deal with him. Can you offer any proof of this incest, sir? Mr. Theomore asked, folding his soft hands atop his belly. Hendrick Storm, thought Davis, but I sent him far away across the narrow sea to keep him safe from Melisandre's fires. You have the word of Stannis Baratheon, that all I've said is true. Words are wind, said the young woman behind Lord Wyman's high seat, the handsome one with the long brown braid, and men will lie to get their way, as any maid could tell you. A proof requires more than some lord's unsupported word, declared Maester Theomore. Stannis Baratheon would not be the first man who ever lied to win a throne. The pink woman pointed a plump finger down at Davos. We want no part of any treason, you. 
We are good people in White Harbor, lawful, loyal people. Pour no more poison in our ears, or my good father will send you to the wolf's den. How have I offended this one? Might I have the honor of my lady's name? The pink woman gave an angry sniff and let the maester answer. The Lady Leone is wife to Lord Wyman's son, Sir Willis, presently a captive of the Lannisters. Oh, she speaks from fear. If White Harbour should declare for Stannis, her husband would answer with his life. How can I ask Lord Wyman to condemn his son to death? What would I do in his place if Devon were a hostage? My lord, said Davis, I pray no arm will come to your son, or to any man of White Arbor. Another lie, said Lady Leona from her stool. Davis thought it best to ignore her. When Rob Stark took up arms against the bastard Joffrey called Baratheon, White Arbor marched with him. Lord Stark has fallen, but his war goes on. Rob Stark was my liege lord, said Lord Wyman. Who is this man, Stannis? Why does he trouble us? He never felt the need to journey north before, as best I can recall, yet he turns up now, a beaten cur with his helm in his hand, begging for arms. He came to save the realm, my lord, Davis insisted, to defend your lands against the Ironborn and the Wildings. Next to the high seat, Sir Marlon Manderley gave a snort of disdain. It has been centuries since White Harbor has seen any wildlings, and the Iron Men have never troubled this coast. Does Lord Stannis propose to defend us from snarks and dragons, too? Laughter swept the merman's court, but at Lord Wyman's feet, Lady Leona began to sob. Iron Men from the Isles, wildlings from beyond the wall, now this traitor lord with his outlaws, rebels and sorcerers. She pointed a finger at Davis. We have heard of your red witch. Oh, yes, she would turn us against the seven to bow before a fire demon. Davis had no love for the red priestess, but he dare not let Lady Leona go unanswered. Lady Melisandre is a priestess of the red god. Queen Selyse has adopted her faith along with many others, but more of his grace's followers still worship the seven. Myself among them. He prayed no one would ask him to explain about the sept at Dragonstone or the godswood at Storm's End. If they ask, I must needs tell them. Stannis would not have me lie. The seven defend White Harbor, Lady Leona declared. We do not fear your Red Queen or her god. Let her send what spell she will. The prayers of godly men will shield us against evil. Indeed, Lord Wyman gave Lady Leona a pat on the shoulder. Lord Davis, if you are lord, I know what your so-called king would have of me. Steel and silver and a bended knee. He shifted his weight to lean upon an elbow. Before he was slain, Lord Tywin offered White Harbor full pardon for our support of the young wolf. He promised that my son would be returned to me once I paid a ransom of three thousand dragons and proved my loyalty beyond a doubt. Roose Bolton, who is named our Warden of the North, 
requires that I give up my claim to Lord Hornwood's lands and castles, but swears my other holdings shall remain untouched. Walder Frey, his good father, offers one of his daughters to be my wife, and husbands for my son's daughters here behind me. These terms seem generous to me, a good basis for a fair and lasting peace. You would have me spurn them? So I ask you, Onion Knight, what does Lord Stannis offer me in return for my allegiance? War and woe and the screams of burning men, Davis might have said. The chance to do your duty, he replied instead. That was the answer Stannis would have given Wyman Mandley. The Anne should speak with the king's voice. Lord Wyman sagged back in his chair. Duty, I see. White Arbor is not strong enough to stand alone. You need his grace as much as he needs you. Together you can defeat your common enemies. My lord, said Sir Marlon, in his ornate silver armor, will you permit me to ask a few questions of Lord Davis? As you wish, cousin. Lord Wyman closed his eyes. Sir Marlon turned to Davis. How many northern lords have declared for Stannis? Tell us that. Arnulf Karstark has vowed to join his grace. Arnulf is no true lord, only a castellan. What castles does Lord Stannis hold at present, pray? His grace has taken the night fort for his seat. In the south he holds Storm's End and Dragonstone. Maester Theomore cleared his throat. Only for the nonce, Storm's End and Dragonstone are lightly held and must soon fall, and the night fort is a haunted ruin, a drear and dreadful place. Sir Marlon went on. How many men can Stannis put into the field? Can you tell us that? How many knights ride with him? How many bowmen? How many free riders? How many men at arms? Too few, Davis knew. Stannis had come north with no more than fifteen hundred men, but if he told them that, his mission here was doomed. He fumbled for words and found none. Your silence is all the answer I require, sir. Your king brings us only enemies. Sir Marlon turned to his lord cousin. Your lordship asked the Onion Knight what Stannis offers us. Let me answer. He offers us defeat and death. He would have you mount a horse of air and give battle with a sword of wind. The fat lord opened his eyes slowly, as if the effort were almost too much for him. My cousin cuts to the bone as ever. Do you have any more to say to me on your night, or can we put an end to this mummer's fuss? I grow weary of your face. Davis felt a stab of despair. His grace should have sent another man, a lord or knight or maester, someone who could speak for him without tripping on his own tongue. Death, he heard himself say. There will be death, I. Your lordship lost a son at the Red Wedding. I lost four upon the Blackwater. And why? Because the Lannisters stole the throne. Go to King's Landing and look uncommon with your own eyes, if you doubt me. A blind man could see it. What does Stannis offer you? Vengeance? Vengeance for my sons and yours? For your husbands and your fathers and your brothers? Vengeance for your murdered lord? 
your murdered king, your butchered princess, vengeance. Yes, piped a girl's voice, thin and high. It belonged to the half-grown child with the blonde eyebrows on the long green braid. They killed Lord Eddard and Lady Caitling and King Rob, she said. He was our king. He was brave and good, and the phrase murdered him. If Lord Stannis will avenge him, we should join Lord Stannis. Mandalay pulled her close. Willer, every time you open your mouth, you make me want to send you to the Silent Sisters. I only said, we heard what you said, said the older girl, her sister. A child's foolishness. Speak no ill of our friends of Frey. One of them will be your lord and husband soon. No, the girl declared, shaking her head. I won't, I won't ever. They killed the king. Lord Wyman flushed. You will. When the appointed day arrives, you will speak your wedding vows, else you will join the Silent Sisters and never speak again. The poor girl looked stricken. Grandfather, please. Hush, child, said Lady Leona. You heard your lord, grandfather. Hush. You know nothing. I know about the promise, insisted the girl. Maester Theomore, tell them. A thousand years before the conquest, a promise was made, and oaths were sworn in the wolf's den before the old gods and the new. When we were sore, beset, and friendless, hounded from our homes and in peril of our lives, the wolves took us in, and nourished us and protected us against our enemies. The city is built upon the land they gave us. In return, we swore that we should always be their men, stark men. The maester fingered the chain about his neck. The solemn oaths were sworn to the Starks of Winterfell, aye, but Winterfell has fallen, and House Stark has been extinguished. That's because they killed them all. Another fray spoke up. Lord Wyman, if I may. Wyman Mandalay gave him a nod. Rhaegar, oh, we're always pleased to hear your noble counsel. Rhaegar Frey acknowledged the compliment with a bow. He was thirty, or nigh unto, round-shouldered and kettle-bellied, but richly dressed in a doublet of soft grey lambswool trimmed in cloth of silver. His cloak was cloth of silver, too, lined with vair and clasped to the collar with a brooch in the shape of the twin towers. Lady Wyler, he said to the girl with the green braid, loyalty is a virtue. I hope you will be as loyal to Little Warder when you are joined in wedlock. As to the Starks, that house is extinguished only in the male line. Lord Eddard's sons are dead, but his daughters live, and the younger girl is coming north to wed brave Ramsay Bolton. Ramsay Snow, Wyler Mandley threw back, I'll have it as you will. By any name, he shall soon be wed to Arya Stark. If you would keep faith with your promise, give him your allegiance, for he shall be your lord of Winterfell. He won't ever be my lord. He made Lady Hornwood marry him, then shut her in a dungeon and made her eat her fingers. A murmur of assent swept through the merman's court. The maid tells it true declared a stocky man in white and purple, 
whose cloak was fastened with a pair of cross bronze keys. Roos Bolton's cold and cunning, aye, but a man can deal with Roos. We've all known worse, but this bastard son of his, they say he's mad and cruel, a monster. They say, Rhaegar Frey, sported a silky beard and a sardonic smile. His enemies say, aye, but it was the young wolf who was the monster. More beast than boy, that boy, puffed up with pride and bloodlust. And he was faithless, as my lord grandfather learned to his sorrow. He spread his hands. I do not fault White Harbour for supporting him. My grandsire made the same grievous mistake. In all the young wolf's battles, White Harbour and the twins fought side by side beneath his banners. Rob Stark betrayed us all. He abandoned the North to the cruel mercies of the Iron Men to carve out a fairer kingdom for himself along the Trident. Then he abandoned the River Lords who had risked much and more for him, breaking his marriage pact with my grandfather to wed the first Western wench who caught his eye. The young wolf, oh, he was a vile dog, and died like one. The merman's court had grown still. Davis could feel the chill in the air. Lord Wyman was looking down at Rhaegar as if he were a roach in need of a hard heel. Yet then, abruptly, he gave a ponderous nod that set his chins to wobbling. A dug, aye, he brought us only grief and death. A vile dog indeed. Say on. Rhaegar Frey went on. Grief and death, aye. And this onion lord will bring you more with his talk of vengeance. Open your eyes, as my lord grandsire did. The war of the five kings is all but done. Tommen is our king, our only king. We must help him bind up the wounds of this sad war. As Robert's true-born son, the heir of stag and lion, the iron throne is his by rights. Wise words and true, said Lord Wyman Manderley. They won't, Wyla Manderley stamped her foot. Be quiet, wretched child, scolded Lady Leona. Young girl should be an ornament to the eye, not an ache in the ear. She seized the girl by her braid and pulled her squealing from the hall. There went my only friend in this hall, thought Davis. Wyla has always been a willful child, her sister said, by way of apology. I fear uh, she will make a willful wife. Rhaegar shrugged. Marriage will soften her, I have no doubt. A firm hand and a quiet word. If not, there are the silent sisters, Lord Wyman shifted in his seat. As for you, onion knight, I have heard sufficient treason for one day. You would have me risk my city for a false king and a false god. You would have me sacrifice my only living son, so Stannis Baratheon can plant his puckered ass upon a throne to which he has no right? I will not do it. Not for you, not for your lord, not for any man. The lord of White Harbour pushed himself to his feet. The effort brought a red flush to his neck. You are still a smuggler, sir. Come to steal my gold and blood. You would take my son's head. 
I think I shall take yours instead. Guards, seize this man. Before Davis could even think to move, he was surrounded by silver tritons. My lord, he said, I am an envoy. Are you? You came sneaking into my city like a smuggler. I see you are no lord, no knight, no envoy, only a thief and a spy, a peddler of lies and treasons. I should tear your tongue out with hot pincers and deliver you to the dread fort to be fleed. But the mother is merciful, and so am I. He beckoned to Sir Marlon. Cousin, take this creature to the wolf's den, and cut off his head and hands. I want them brought to me before I sup. I shall not be able to eat a bite until I see this smuggler's head upon a spike, with an onion shoved between his lying teeth. Reek. They gave him a horse and a banner, a soft woolen doublet and a warm fur cloak, and set him loose. For once he did not stink. Come back with that castle, said Damon Dance for me, as he helped Reek climb shaking into the saddle. Or keep going and see how far you get before we catch you. <laughs> He'd like that, he would. Grinning, Damon gave the horse a lick across the rump with his whip, and the old stot whinnied and lurched into motion. Reek did not dare to look back for fear that Damon and Yellow Dick and Grunt and the rest were coming after him, that all of this was just another of Lord Ramsay's japes, some cruel test to see what he would do if they gave him a horse and set him free. Do they think that I will run? The stot they had given him was a wretched thing, knock-kneed and half-starved. He could never hope to outdistance the fine horses that Lord Ramsay and his hunters would be riding. And Ramsay loved nothing more than to set his girls baying on the trail of some fresh prey. Besides, where would he run to? Behind him were the camps crowded with dreadfort men and those the Risewolves had brought from the rills, with the baritone hosts between them. South of Moot Kalin, another army was coming up the causeway, an army of Boltons and Preys, marching beneath the banners of the Dreadfort. East of the road lay a bleak and barren shore and a cold salt sea. To the west, the swamps and bogs of the Neck, infested with serpents, lizard lions, and bug devils with their poisoned arrows. He would not run. He could not run. I will deliver him the castle. I will. I must. It was a grey day, damp and misty. The wind was from the south, moist as a kiss. The ruins of Moat Kalin were visible in the distance, threaded through with wisps of morning mist. His horse moved toward them at a walk, her hooves making faint wet squelching sounds as they pulled free of the grey-green muck. I have come this way before. It was a dangerous thought, and he regretted it at once. No, he said, no, that was some other man. That was before you knew your name. His name was Reek. He had to remember that. Reek, Reek, it rhymes with leek. When that other man had come this way, an army had followed close behind him. The great hosts of the north 
riding to war beneath the grey and white banners of House Stark. Reek rode alone, clutching a peace banner on a pinewood staff. When that other man had come this way, he had been mounted on a courser, swift and spirited. Reek rode a broken-down stut, all skin and bone and ribs, and he rode her slowly for fear he might fall off. The other man had been a good rider, but Reek was uneasy on horseback. It had been so long. He was no rider. He was not even a man. He was Lord Ramsay's creature, lower than a dog, a worm in human skin. You will pretend to be a prince, Lord Ramsay told him last night, as Reek was soaking in a tub of scalding water. But we know the truth. You're Reek. You'll always be Reek. No matter how sweet you smell, your nose may lie to you. Remember your name. Remember who you are. Reek, he said. You're Reek. Do this little thing for me, and you can be my dog and eat meat every day, Lord Ramsay promised. You will be tempted to betray me, to run or fight or join our foes. No, quiet. I'll not hear you deny it. Lie to me and I'll take your tongue. A man would turn against me in your place, but we know what you are, don't we? Betray me if you want, it makes no matter, but count your fingers first and know the cost. Reek knew the cost. Seven, he thought. Seven fingers. A man can make do with seven fingers. Seven is a sacred number. He remembered how much it had hurt when Lord Ramsay had commanded Skinner to lay his ring finger bare. The air was wet and heavy, and shallow pools of water dotted the ground. Reek picked his way between them carefully, following the remnants of the log and plank road that Rob Stark's vanguard had laid down across the soft ground to speed the passage of his host. Where once a mighty curtain wall had stood, only scattered stones remained. Blocks of black basalt, so large it must have taken a hundred men to hoist them into place. Some had sunk so deep into the bog that only a corner showed. Others lay strewn about like some guard's abandoned toys, cracked and crumbling, spotted with lichen. Last night's rain had left the huge stones wet and glistening, and the morning sunlight made them look as if they were coated in some fine black oil. Beyond stood the towers. The drunkard's tower leaned as if it were about to collapse, just as it had for half a thousand years. The children's tower thrust into the sky as straight as a spear, but its shattered top was open to the wind and rain. The gatehouse tower, squat and wide, was the largest of the three, slimy with moss, a gnarled tree growing sideways from the stones of its north side. Fragments of broken walls still standing to the east and west. The Carstarks took the drunkard's tower and the umbers the children's tower, he recalled. Rob claimed the gatehouse tower for his own. If he closed his eyes, he could see the banners in his mind's eye snapping bravely in a brisk north wind. All gone now, all fallen. The wind on his cheeks was blowing from the south and the only banners flying above the remains of Moat Calen 
displayed a golden kraken on a field of black. He was being watched. He could feel the eyes. When he looked up, he caught a glimpse of pale faces peering from behind the battlements of the gatehouse tower and through the broken masonry that crowned the children's tower, where legend said the children of the forest had once called down the hammer of the waters to break the lands of Westeros in two. The only dry road through the neck was the causeway, and the towers of Moat Calen plugged its northern end like a cork in a bottle. The road was narrow, the ruins so positioned that any enemy coming up from the south must pass beneath and between them. To assault any of the three towers, an attacker must expose his back to arrows from the other two. Whilst climbing damp stone walls, festooned with streamers of slimy white ghost skin. The swampy ground beyond the causeway was impassable, an endless morass of suckholes, quicksands, and glistening green swords that looked solid to the unwary eye, but turned to water the instant you trod upon them. The whole of it infested with venomous serpents and poisonous flowers and monstrous lizard lions with teeth like daggers. Just as dangerous were its people, seldom seen but always lurking, the swamp-dwellers, the frog-eaters, the mud-men, fen and reed, peat and bugs, cray and quag, greengood and blackmire. Those were the sorts of names they gave themselves. The Arnborn called them all bug-devils. Reek passed the rotted carcass of a horse, an arrow jutting from its neck. A long white snake slithered into its empty eye socket at his approach. Behind the horse he spied the rider, or what remained of him. The crows had stripped the flesh from the man's face, and a feral dog had burrowed beneath his mail to get at his entrails. Further on, another corpse had sunk so deep into the muck that only his face and fingers showed. Closer to the towers, corpses littered the ground on every side. Blood blooms had sprouted from their gaping wounds, pale flowers with petals plump and moist as a woman's lips. The garrison will never know me. Some might recall the boy he'd been before he learned his name, but Reek would be a stranger to them. It had been a long while since he last looked into a glass, but he knew how old he must appear. His hair had turned white. Much of it had fallen out, and what was left was stiff and dry as straw. The dungeons had left him weak as an old woman, and so thin a strong wind could knock him down. In his hands, Ramsay had given him gloves, fine gloves of black leather, soft and supple, stuffed with wool to conceal his missing fingers. But if anyone looked closely, he would see that three of his fingers did not bend. "'No closer,' a voice rang out. "'What do you want?' Words, he spurred the stut onward, waving the peace banner so they could not fail to see it. "'I come unarmed!' There was no reply. Inside the walls, he knew, the iron men were discussing whether to admit him or fill his chest with arrows. "'It makes no matter. A quick death here would be a hundred times better than returning to Lord Ramsay as a failure.' Then the gatehouse doors flung open. Quickly! Reek was turning toward the sound when the arrow struck. It came from somewhere to his right, 
where broken chunks of the curtain wall lay half-submerged beneath the bog. The shaft tore through the folds of his banner and hung spent, the point a bare foot from his face. It startled him so badly that he dropped the peace banner and tumbled from his saddle. "'Inside!' the voice shouted. "'Hurry, fool! Hurry!' Reek scrambled up the steps on hands and knees as another arrow fluttered over his head. Someone seized him and dragged him inside, and he heard the door crash shut behind him. He was pulled to his feet and shoved against a wall. Then a knife was at his throat, a bearded face so close to his that he could count the man's nose hairs. "'Who are you? What's your purpose here? Quick now, or I'll do you the same as him!' The guard jerked his head towards a body rotting on the floor beside the door, its flesh green and crawling with maggots. "'I am ironborn,' Reek answered, lying. The boy he'd been before had been ironborn, true enough, but Reek had come into this world in the dungeons of the Dreadfort. "'Look at my face. I'm Lord Balenson, your prince.' He would have said the name, but somehow the words caught in his throat. "'Reek. I'm Reek. It rhymes with squeak.' He had to forget that for a little while, though. No man would ever yield to a creature such as Reek, no matter how desperate his situation. He must pretend to be a prince again. His captor stared at his face, squinting, his mouth twisted in suspicion. His teeth were brown, and his breath stank of ale and onion. Lord Balin's sons were killed. My brothers, not me, Lord Ramsay, took me captive after Winterfell. He sent me here to treat with you. Do you command here? Me? The man lowered his knife and took a step backwards, almost stumbling over the corpse. Not me, my lord. His mail was rusted, his leathers rotting. On the back of one hand, an open saw wept blood. Ralph Kenny, as a command... The captain said, I'm on the door, is all. And who is this? Reek gave the corpse a kick. The guard stared at the dead man as if seeing him for the first time. Him? He drank the water. I had to cut his throat for him to stop his screaming. Bad belly. You can't drink the water. That's why we got the ale. The guard rubbed his face, his eyes red and inflamed. We used to drag the dead down into the cellars. All the vaults are flooded down there. No one wants to take the trouble now, so we just leave them where they fall. The cellar is a better place for them. Give them to the water, to the drowned god. The man laughed. No gods down there, my lord. Only rats and water snakes. White things, thick as your leg. Sometimes they slither up the steps and bite you in your sleep. Reek remembered the dungeons underneath the dreadfort, the rat squirming between his teeth, the taste of warm blood on his lips. If I fail, Ramsay will send me back to that, but first he'll flay the skin from another finger. How many of the garrison are left? Some, said the Iron Man. I don't know, fewer than we was before. Some in the drunkard's tower, too, I think. Not the children's tower. Dagon Cod went over there a few days back. Only two men left alive, he said, and they was eating on the dead ones. 
He'd kill them both, if you can believe that. Moat Kalin has fallen, Reek realised then. Only no one has seen fit to tell them. He rubbed his mouth to hide his broken teeth and said, I need to speak with your commander. Kenning? The guard seemed confused. He don't have much to say these days. He's dying. Might be he's dead. I haven't seen him since. Oh, I don't remember when. Where is he? Take me to him. Oh, we'll keep the door then. Him, Reek gave the corpse a kick. That made the man laugh. Aye, why not? Come with me then. He pulled a torch down from a wall sconce and waved it till it blazed up bright and hot. This way. The guard led him through a door and up a spiral stair, the torchlight glimmering off black stone walls as they climbed. The chamber at the top of the steps was dark, smoky, and oppressively hot. A ragged skin had been hung across the narrow window to keep the damp out, and a slab of peat smouldered in a brazier. The smell in the room was foul, a miasma of mould and piss and night soil, of smoke and sickness. Soiled rushes covered the floor, whilst a heap of straw in the corner passed for a bed. Ralph Kenning lay shivering beneath a mountain of furs. His arms were stacked beside him, sword and axe, male hauberk, iron war helm. His shield bore the storm guard's cloudy hand, lightning crackling from his fingers down to a raging sea. But the paint was discoloured and peeling, the wood beneath starting to rot. Ralph was rotting too. Beneath the furs he was naked and feverish, his pale, puffy flesh covered with weeping sores and scabs. His head was misshapen, one cheek grotesquely swollen, his neck so engorged with blood that it threatened to swallow his face. The arm on that same side was big as a log and crawling with white worms. No one had bathed him or shaved him for many days, from the look of him. One eye wept pus, and his beard was crusty with dried vomit. "'What happened to him?' asked Reek. "'He was on the parapets, and some bug-devil loosed an arrow at him. "'It was only a graze, but they poison their shafts, "'smear the points with shit and worse things. "'We poured boiling wine into the wound, but it made no difference.' I cannot treat with this thing. Kill him, Reek told the guard. His wits are gone. He's full of blood and worms. The man gaped at him. The captain put him in command. You'd put a dying horse down. What horse? I never had no horse. I did. The memory came back in a rush. Smiler's screams had sounded almost human. His mane afire he had reared up on his hind legs, blind with pain, lashing out with his hooves. No, no, not mine. He was not mine. Reek never had a horse. I will kill him for you. Reek snatched up Ralph Kenning's sword, where it leaned against his shield. He still had fingers enough to clasp the hilt. When he laid the edge of the blade against the swollen throat of the creature on the straw, the skin split open in a gout of black blood and yellow pus. Kenning jerked violently, then lay still. An awful stench filled the room. Reek bolted for the steps. The air was damp and cold, but much cleaner by comparison. 
The iron man stumbled out after him, white-faced and struggling not to retch. Reek grasped him by the arm. Who was second in command? Where are the rest of the men? Up on the battlements or in the hall, sleeping, drinking. I'll take you if you like. Do it now. Ramsay had only given him a day. The hall was dark stone, high-ceilinged and drafty, full of drifting smoke, its stone walls spotted by huge patches of pale lichen. A peat fire burned low in a hearth blackened by the hotter blazes of years past. A massive table of carved stone filled the chamber, as it had for centuries. There was where I sat the last time I was here, he remembered. Rob was at the head of the table, with the great John to his right, and Roose Bolden on his left. The Glovers sat next to Helm and Tallheart. Carstock and his sons were across from them. Two dozen ironborn sat drinking at the table. A few looked at him with dull, flat eyes when he entered. The rest ignored him. All the men were strangers to him. Several wore cloaks fastened by brooches in the shape of silver codfish. The cods were not well regarded in the Iron Islands. The men were said to be thieves and cowards, the women wantons who bedded with their own fathers and brothers. It did not surprise him that his uncle had chosen to leave these men behind when the Iron Fleet went home. This will make my task that much easier. Ralph Kenning is dead, he said. Who commands here? The drinker stared at him blankly. One laughed, another spat. Finally, one of the cods said, Who asks? Lord Balin's son. Reek, my name is Reek. It rhymes with cheek. I am here at the command of Ramsay Bolton, Lord of the Hornwood, and heir to the Dreadfort, who captured me at Winterfell. His host is north of you, his father's to the south. But Lord Ramsay is prepared to be merciful if you yield Moat Caelin to him before the sun goes down. He drew out the letter they'd given him and tossed it on the table before the drinkers. One of them picked it up and turned it over in his hands, picking at the pink wax that sealed it. After a moment he said, Parchment, what good is that? It's cheese we need and meat. Steel, you mean, said the man beside him, a grey beard, whose left arm ended in the stump. Swords, axes, aye, and bows, a hundred more bows, and men to loose the arrows. Ironborn, do not surrender, said a third voice. Tell that to my father. Lord Balin bent the knee when Robert broke his wall. Elsewise he would have died, as you will, if you do not yield. He gestured at the parchment. Break the seal. Read the words. That is a safe conduct, written in Lord Ramsay's own hand. Give up your swords and come with me, and his lordship will feed you and give you leave to march unmolested to the stony shore and find a ship for home. Elsewise you die. Is that a threat? One of the cods pushed to his feet. A big man, but pop-eyed and wide of mouth, with dead white flesh. 
He looked as if his father had sired him on a fish, but he still wore a longsword. Dagon Cod yields to no man. No, uh, please, you have to listen. The thought of what Ramsay would do to him if he crept back to camp without the garrison's surrender was almost enough to make him piss his breeches. Reek, reek, it rhymes with leek. Is that your answer? The words rang feebly in his ears. Does this codfish speak for all of you? The guard who had met him at the door seemed less certain. Victorian commanders to hold. He did. I heard him with my own ears. Hold here till I return, he told Kenning. I said the one-armed man. That's what he said. The king's moot called, but he swore that he'd be back, with a driftwood crown upon his head and a thousand men behind him. My uncle is never coming back, Reek told them. The Kingswood crowned his brother, Euron, and the Crow's Eye as other wars to fight. You think my uncle values you? He doesn't. You are the ones he left behind to die. He scraped you off the same way he scrapes mud off his boots when he wades ashore. Those words struck home. He could see it in their eyes, in the way they looked at one another, or frowned above their cups. They all feared they'd been abandoned, but it took me to turn fear into certainty. These were not the kin of famous captains, nor the blood of the great houses of the Iron Islands. These were the sons of thralls and salt wives. If we yield, we walk away, said the one-armed man. Is that what it says on this here writing? He nudged the roll of parchment, its wax seal still unbroken. Read it for yourself, he answered, though he was almost certain that none of them could read. Lord Ramsay treats his captives honourably so long as they keep faith with him. He's only taken toes and fingers and that other thing when he might have had my tongue or peeled the skin off my legs from heel to thigh. Yield up your sword to him and you will live. Liar! Dagon Cod drew his longsword. You're the one they call Turncloak. Why should we believe your promises? He is drunk, Reek realised. The ale is speaking. Believe what you want. I have brought Lord Ramsay's message. Now I must return to him. We'll sup on wild boar and neeps, washed down with strong red wine. Those who come with me will be welcome at the feast. The rest of you will die within a day. The Lord of the Dreadfort will bring his knights up the causeway, whilst his son leads his own men down on you from the north. No quarter will be granted. The ones that die fighting will be the lucky ones. Those who live will be given to the bug devils. Enough, snarled Dagon Cod. You think you can frighten Ironborn with words? Begone, run back to your master before I open your belly, pull your entrails out and make you eat them. He might have said more, but suddenly his eyes gaped wide. A throwing axe sprouted from the centre of his forehead with a solid thunk. Cod's sword fell from his fingers. He jerked like a fish on a hook, then crashed, 
face first onto the table. It was the one-armed man who flung the axe. As he rose to his feet, he had another in his hand. Who else wants to die? he asked the other drinker. Speak up. I'll see you do. Thin red streams were spreading out across the stone from the pool of blood where Dagon Cod's head had come to rest. Me? I mean to live. And that don't mean staying here to rot. One man took a swallow of ale. Another turned his cup over to wash away a finger of blood before it reached the place where he was seated. No one spoke. When the one-armed man slid the throwing axe back through his belt, Reek knew he had won. He almost felt a man again. Lord Ramsay will be pleased with me. He pulled down the Kraken banner with his own two hands, fumbling some because of his missing fingers, but thankful for the fingers that Lord Ramsay had allowed him to keep. It took the better part of the afternoon before the Arnborn were ready to depart. There were more of them than he would have guessed, forty-seven in the gatehouse tower and another eighteen in the drunkard's tower. Two of those were so close to dead that there was no hope for them, another five too weak to walk. That still left fifty-eight who were fit enough to fight. Weak as they were, they would have taken three times their own number with them if Lord Ramsay had stormed the ruins. He did well to send me, Reek told himself, as he climbed back onto his stot to lead the ragged column back across the buggy ground to where the Northmen were encamped. Leave your weapons here, he told the prisoners. Swords, bows, daggers, armed men will be slain on sight. It took them thrice as long to cover the distance as it had taken Reek alone. Crude litters had been patched together for four of the men who could not walk. The fifth was carried by his son upon his back. It made for slow going, and all the ironborn were well aware of how exposed they were, well within bowshot of the bug devils and their poisoned arrows. If I die, I die. Reek only prayed the archer knew his business, so death would be quick and clean. A man's death, not the end Ralph Kenning suffered. The one-armed man walked at the head of the procession, limping heavily. His name, he said, was Adrak Humble, and he had a rock wife and three salt wives back on Great Wick. Three of the four had big bellies when we've sailed, he boasted, and Humble's run to twins. First thing I'll need to do when I get back is count up my new sons. Might be I'll even name one after you, my lord. Aye, name him Reek, he thought, and when he's bad, he can cut his toes off and give him rats to eat. He turned his head and spat, and wondered if Ralph Kenning hadn't been the lucky one. A light rain had begun to piss down out of the slate-grey sky by the time Lord Ramsay's camp appeared in front of them. A sentry watched them pass in silence. The air was full of drifting smoke from the cook fires drowning in the rain. A column of riders came wheeling up behind them, led by a lordling with a horse head on his shield. One of Lord Risewell's sons, Reek knew. Roger, or maybe Rickard. He could not tell the two of them apart. Is this all of them? the rider asked, from atop a chestnut stallion. 
All that weren't dead, my lord. I thought there would be more. We came at them three times, and three times they threw us back. We are ironborn, he thought, and with a sudden flash of pride, and for half a heartbeat, he was a prince again. Lord Balenson, the blood of Pike. Even thinking was dangerous, though. He had to remember his name. Reek, my name is Reek, it rhymes with weak. They were just outside the camp when the baying of a pack of hounds told of Lord Ramsay's approach. Horsbane was with him, along with half a dozen of his favourites, Skinner and Sour Allen and Damon Dance for me, and the Walders, big and little too. The dogs formed around them, snapping and snarling at the strangers. The bastards' girls, Reek thought, before he remembered that one must never, never, never use that word in Ramsay's presence. Reek swung down from saddle and took a knee. My lord, Moat Kaelin is yours. Here are its last defenders. So few, I had hope for more. They were such stubborn foes. Lord Ramsay's pale eyes shone. You must be starved, Damon, Ellen, see to them. Wine and ale and all the food that they can eat. Skinner, show their wounded to our maesters. Aye, my lord. A few of the ironborn muttered thanks before they shambled off toward the cook fires in the centre of the camp. One of the cods even tried to kiss Lord Ramsay's ring, but the hounds drove him back before he could get close, and Allison took a chunk of his ear. Even as the blood streamed down his neck, the man bobbed and bowed and praised his lordship's mercy. When the last one were gone, Ramsay Bolton turned his smile on Reek. He clasped him by the back of the head, pulled his face close, kissed him on his cheek, and whispered, My old friend Reek, did they really take you for their prince? Oh, what, what bloody fools, these iron men! The guards are laughing! All they want is to go home, my lord. And what do you want, my sweet reek? Ramsay murmured as softly as a lover. His breath smelled of mulled wine and cloves, so sweet. Such valiant service deserves a reward. I cannot give you back your fingers or your toes, but surely there is something you would have of me. Shall I free you instead? Hmm? Release you from my service? Do you want to go with them, return to your bleak isles in the cold grey sea, be a prince again, or would you sooner stay my leal serving men? A cold knife scraped along his spine. Be careful, he told himself. Be very, very careful. He did not like his lordship's smile, the way his eyes were shining, the spittle glistening at the corner of his mouth. He had seen such signs before. You are no prince, you're reek, just reek, it rhymes with freak. Give him the answer that he wants. My lord, he said, my place is here with you, I'm your reek. I only want to serve you, all I ask, a skin of wine that would be reward enough for me, red wine, the strongest that you have, all the wine a man can drink. Lord Ramsay laughed. You're not a man, Reek. You're just my creature. You'll have your wine there. Walder, see to it and fear not. 
I won't return you to the dungeons. You have my word as a Bolton. We'll make a dog of you instead. Meat every day, and I'll even leave you teeth enough to eat it. You can sleep beside my girls. Ben, do you have a collar for him? I'll have one made, me lord, said old Ben Bones. The old man did better than that. That night, besides the collar, there was a ragged blanket, too, and half a chicken. Reek had to fight the dogs for the meat, but it was the best meal that he'd had since Winterfell. And the wine. The wine was dark and sour, but strong. Squatting amongst the hounds, Reek drank until his head swam, retched, wiped his mouth, and drank some more. Afterwards he lay back and closed his eyes. When he woke, a dog was licking vomit from his beard, and dark clouds were scuttling across the face of a sickle moon. Somewhere in the night, men were screaming. He shoved the dog aside, rolled over, and went back to sleep. The next morning, Lord Ramsay dispatched three riders down the causeway to take word to his lord father that the way was clear. The flayed man of House Bolton was hoisted above the gatehouse tower, where Reek had hauled down the golden kraken of pike. Along the rotting plank road, wooden stakes were driven deep into the buggy ground. There the corpses festered, red and dripping. Sixty-three, he knew. There are sixty-three of them. One was short half an arm, another had a parchment shoved between his teeth, its wax seal still unbroken. Three days later, the vanguard of Ruth Bolton's host threaded its way through the ruins and passed the row of grisly sentinels. Four hundred mounted frays clad in blue and grey, their spear points glittering whenever the sun broke through the clouds. Two of old Lord Walter's sons led the van. One was brawny, with a massive jut of jaw, and arms thick with muscle. The other had hungry eyes, close set above a pointed nose, a thin brown beard that did not quite conceal the weak chin beneath it, a bald head. Hustine and Anus, he remembered them from before he knew his name. Hustine was a bull, slow to anger but implacable once roused, and by repute the fiercest fighter of Lord Walder's get. Anus was older, crueler, and more clever, a commander, not a swordsman. Both were seasoned soldiers. The Northmen followed hard behind the van, their tattered banners streaming in the wind. Reek watched them pass. Most were afoot, and there were so few of them. He remembered the great host that marched south with young Wolf beneath the dire wolf of Winterfell. Twenty thousand swords and spears had gone off to war with Rob, or near enough to make no matter, but only two in ten were coming back, and most of those were dreadfort men. Back where the press was thickest, at the centre of the column, rode a man armoured in dark grey plate over a quilted tunic of blood-red leather. His rondels were wrought in the shape of human heads, with open mouths that shrieked in agony. From his shoulder streamed a pink woolen cloak embroidered with droplets of blood. Long streamers of red silk fluttered from the top of his closed helm. No Cranach man will slay 
Bruce Bolton with a poisoned arrow, Greek thought, when he first saw him. An enclosed wagon groaned along behind him, drawn by six heavy draft horses and defended by crossbowmen front and rear. Curtains of dark blue velvet concealed the wagon's occupants from watching eyes. Farther back came the baggage train, lumbering wains laden with provisions and loot taken in the war, and carts crowded with wounded men and cripples. And at the rear, more frays. At least a thousand, maybe more. Bowmen, spearmen, peasants armed with scythes and sharpened sticks, free riders and mounted archers, and another hundred knights to stiffen them. Collared and chained, and back in rags again, Reek followed with the other dogs at Lord Ramsay's heels when his lordship strode forth to greet his father. When the rider in the dark armour removed his helm, however, the face beneath was not one that Reek knew. Ramsay's smile curled at the sight, and anger flashed across his face. "'What is this, some mockery?' "'Just caution,' whispered Roose Bolton, as he emerged from behind the curtains of the enclosed wagon. The lord of the Dreadfort did not have a strong likeness to his bastard son. His face was clean-shaven, smooth-skinned, ordinary, not handsome, but not quite plain. Though Roos had been in battles, he bore no scars. Though well past forty, he was as yet unwrinkled, with scarce a line to tell of the passage of time. His lips were so thin that when he pressed them together, they seemed to vanish altogether. There was an agelessness about him, a stillness. On Roos Bolton's face, rage and joy looked much the same. All he and Ramsay had in common were their eyes. His eyes are ice, Reek wondered if Ruth Bolton ever cried. If so, do the tears feel cold upon his cheeks? Once a boy named Theon Greyjoy had enjoyed tweaking Bolton as they sat at council with Rob Stark, mocking his soft voice and making japes about leeches. He must have been mad. This is no man to jape with. You had only to look at Bolton to know that he had more cruelty in his pinky toe than all the phrase combined. Father, Lord Ramsay knelt before his sire. Lord Ruth studied him for a moment. You may rise. He turned to help two young women down from inside the wagon. The first was short and very fat, with a round red face and three chins wobbling beneath a sable hood. "'My new wife,' Ruth Bolton said. "'Lady Wilder, this is my natural son. "'Kiss your stepmother's hand, Ramsay.' "'He did. "'And I'm sure you will recall the Lady Aria. "'Your betrothed.' "'The girl was slim and taller than he remembered, "'but that was only to be expected. "'Girls grow fast at that age.' "'Her dress was grey wool.' bordered with white satin. Over it she wore an ermine cloak, clasped with a silver wolf's head. Dark brown hair fell halfway down her back, and her eyes. That is not Lord Eddard's daughter. Arya had her father's eyes, the grey eyes of the Starks. A girl her age might let her hair grow long, add inches to her height, see her chest 
fill out, but she could not change the colour of her eyes. That answers little friend, the Stuart's girl, Jane. That was her name, Jane Poole. Lord Ramsay, the girl dipped down before him. That was wrong as well. The real Arya Stark would have spat into his face. I pray that I will make you a good wife and give you strong sons to follow after you. That you will, promised Ramsay, and soon. John His candle had guttered out in a pool of wax, but morning light was shining through the shutters of his window. John had fallen asleep over his work again. Books covered his table, tall stacks of them. He'd fetched them up himself, after spending half the night searching through dusty vaults by lantern light. Sam was right. The books desperately needed to be sorted, listed, and put in order, but that was no task for Stuarts, who could neither read nor write. It would need to wait for Sam's return. If he does return. John feared for Sam and Maester Eamon. Cutter Pike had written from Eastwatch to report that the Storm Crow had sighted the wreckage of a galley along the coast of Skagos. Whether the broken ship was Blackbird, one of Stannis Baratheon's sail sails, or some passing trader, the crew of the Storm Crow had not been able to discern. I meant to send Gilly and the babe to safety. Did I send them to their graves instead? Last night's supper had congealed beside his elbow, scarce touched. Dolorous Ed had filled his trencher almost overflowing, to allow Three Finger Hob's infamous three-meat stew to soften the stale bread. The jest among the brothers was that the three meats were mutton, mutton, and mutton, but carrot, onion, and turnip would have been closer to the mark. A film of cold grease glistened atop the remains of the stew. Bowen Marsh had urged him to move into the old bear's former chambers in the King's Tower after Stannis vacated them. But John had declined. Moving into the King's chambers could too easily be taken to mean he did not expect the King to return. A strange listlessness had settled over Castle Black since Stannis had marched south, as if the free folk and the Black brothers alike were holding their breath, waiting to see what would come. The yards and dining hall were empty more often than not. The Lord Commander's tower was a shell, the old common hall a pile of blackened timbers, and Harden's tower looked as if the next gust of wind would knock it over. The only sound of life that John could hear was the faint clash of swords coming from the yard outside the armory. Arn Emmett was shouting at Hop Robin to keep his shield up. We'd all best keep our shields up. John washed and dressed and left the armory, stopping in the yard outside just long enough to say a few words of encouragement to Hop Robin and Emmett's other charges. He declined Ty's offer of a tale, as usual. He would have men enough about him. If it came to blood, two more would hardly matter. He did take Longclaw, though, and Ghost followed at his heels. By the time he reached the stable, 
Dolorous Ed had the Lord Commander's palfreys saddled and bridled and waiting for him. The Wains were forming up beneath Bowen Marsh's watchful eye. The Lord Stuart was trotting down the column, pointing and fussing, his cheeks red from the cold. When he spied John, they reddened even more. Lord Commander, are you still intent on this folly? finished John. Please tell me you are not about to say folly, my lord. Yes, I am. We have been over this. East Watch wants more men. The Shadow Tower wants more men, Grey Guard and Ice Mark as well. I have no doubt. And we have fourteen other castles still sitting empty, long leagues of wall that remain unwatched and undefended. Marsh pursed his lips. Lord Commander Mormont is dead, and not at wilding hands, but at the hands of his own sworn brothers, men he trusted. Neither you nor I can know what he would or would not have done in my place. John wheeled his horse around. Enough talk. Away. Dolores Ed had heard the entire exchange. As Bowen Marsh trotted off, he nodded towards his back and said, Pommy Greenwich, all those seeds, a man could choke to death. I'd sooner have a turnip. Never knew a turnip to do a man any harm. It was at times like this that John missed Maester Eamon the most. Clytus tended to the ravens well enough, but he had not a tenth of Eamon Targaryen's knowledge or experience, and even less of his wisdom. Byrne was a good man in his way, but the wound he had taken at the Bridge of Skulls had hardened his attitudes, and the only song he ever sang now was his familiar refrain about sealing the gates. Athel Yarwick was as stolid and unimaginative as he was taciturn, and the first rangers seemed to die as quick as they were named. The Night's Watch has lost too many of its best men, John reflected, as the wagons began to move. The Old Bear, Corrin Halfhand, Donald Noy, Jarman Buckwell, my uncle. A light snow began to fall as the column made its way south, along the King's Road, the long line of wagons wending past fields and streams and wooded hillsides, with a dozen spearmen and a dozen archers riding escort. The last few trips had seen some ugliness at Molestown. A little pushing and shoving, some muttered curses, a lot of sullen looks. Bowen Marsh felt it best not to take chances, and for once he and John were agreed. The Lord Stuart led the way. John rode a few yards back, Dolores Ed Tullett at his side. Half a mile south of Castle Black, Ed urged his garron close to John's and said, oh, My lord, look up there, the big drunkard on the hill. The drunkard was an ash tree, twisted sideways by centuries of wind, and now it had a face, a solemn mouth, a broken branch for a nose, two eyes carved deep into the trunk, gazing north up the king's road toward the castle and the wall. The wildlings brought their guards with them, after all. John was not surprised. Men do not give up their guards so easily. The whole pageant that Lady Melisandre had orchestrated beyond the wall suddenly seemed as empty as a mummer's farce. "'Looks a bit like you, Ed,' he said, trying to make light of it. 
Ay, my lord, I, I don't have leaves growing out of my nose, but elsewise, Lady Melisandre won't be happy. She's not like to see it, see that no one tells her. She sees things in those fires, though. Smoke and cinders, and people burning. Me, most like, with leaves up my nose. I always feared I'd burn, but I was hoping to die first. John glanced back at the face, wondering who had carved it. He had posted guards around Molestown, both to keep his crows away from the wildling women and to keep the free folk from slipping off southward to raid. Whoever had carved up the ash had eluded his centuries plainly, and if one man could slip through the cordon, others could as well. I could double the guard again, he thought sourly, waste twice as many men, men who might otherwise be walking the wall. The wagons continued on their slow way south, through frozen mud and blowing snow. A mile farther on, they came upon a second face, carved into a chestnut tree that grew beside an icy stream, where its eyes could watch the old plank bridge that spanned its flow. "'Twice as much trouble,' announced Dolores Ed. The chestnut was leafless and skeletal, but its bare brown limbs were not empty. On a low branch overhanging the stream, a raven sat, hunched, its feathers ruffled up against the cold. When it spied John, it spread its wings and gave a scream. When he raised his fists and whistled, the big black bird came flapping down, crying, Corn! 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 Corn for the free folk, John told him. None for you. He wondered if they would all be reduced to eating ravens before the coming winter had run its course. The brothers on the wagons had seen this face as well. John did not doubt. No one spoke of it, but the message was plain to read for any man with eyes. John had once heard Mansueda say that most kneelers were sheep. Now a dog can herd a flock of sheep, the king beyond the wall had said, but free folk, well, some are shadow cats and some are stones. One kind prowls where they please and will tear your dogs to pieces. The other will not move at all unless you kick them. Neither shadow cats nor stones were like to give up the gods they had worshipped all their lives to bow down before one they hardly knew. Just north of Molestown, they came upon the third watcher, carved into the huge oak that marked the village perimeter, its deep eyes fixed upon the king's road. That is not a friendly face, John Snow reflected. The faces that the first men and the children of the forest had carved into the weirwoods in Ian's past had stern or savage visages more oft than not. But the great oak looked especially angry, as if it were about to tear its roots from the earth and come roaring after them. Its wounds are as fresh as the wounds of the men who carved it. Molestown had always been larger than it seemed. Most of it was underground, sheltered from the cold and snow. That was more true than ever now. The Magna of Thin had put the empty village to the torch when he passed through on his way to attack Castle Black, and only heaps of blackened beams and old scorched stones remained above ground. But down beneath the frozen earth, the vaults and tunnels and deep cellars still endured, 
and that was where the free folk had taken refuge, huddled together in the dark like the moles from which the village took its name. The wagons drew up in a crescent, in front of what had once been the village smithy. Nearby a swarm of red-faced children were building a snow fort, but they scattered the sight of the black-cloth brothers, vanishing down one hole or another. A few moments later the adults began to emerge from the earth. A stench came with them, the smell of unwashed bodies and soiled clothing of night soil and urine. John saw one of his men wrinkle his nose and say something to the man beside him. Some jape about the smell of freedom, he guessed. Too many of his brothers were making japes about the stench of the savages in Molestown. Pig ignorance, John thought. The free folk were no different than the men of the Night's Watch. Some were clean, some dirty. But most were clean at times and dirty at other times. This stink was just the smell of a thousand people jammed into cellars and tunnels that had been dug to shelter no more than a hundred. The wildlings had done this dance before. Wordless, they formed up in lines behind the wagons. There were three women for every man, many with children, pale, skinny things, clutching at their skirts. John saw very few babes in arms. The babes in arms died during the march, he realized and those who survived the battle died in the king's stockade. The fighters had fared better. Three hundred men of fighting age, Justin Massey, had claimed in council. Lord Harwood Fell had counted them. There will be spare wives, too, fifty, sixty, maybe as many as a hundred. Fell's count had included men who had suffered wounds, John knew. He saw a score of those. Men on crude crutches, men with empty sleeves and missing hands, men with one eye or half a face, a legless man carried between two friends, and everyone grey-faced and gaunt. Broken men, he thought. The whites are not the only sort of living dead. Not all the fighting men were broken, though. Half a dozen thens in bronze-scale armour, stood clustered round one cellar stair, watching solemnly and making no attempt to join the others. In the ruins of the old village smithy, John spied a big, bald slab of a man he recognized as Halleck, the brother of Harmer, dog's head. Harmer's pigs were gone, though. Eaten, no doubt. Those two in furs were horned footmen, as savage as they were scrawny, barefoot even in the snow. There are wolves amongst these sheep still. Val had reminded him of that on his last visit with her. Free folk and kneelers are more alike than not, John Snow. Men are men and women women, no matter which side of the war we were born on. Good men and bad, heroes and villains, men of honour, liars, cravens, brutes. We have plenty, as do you. She was not wrong. The trick was telling one from the other, parting the sheep from the goats. The black brothers began to pass out food. They'd brought slabs of hard salt beef, dried cod, dried beans, turnips, carrots, sacks of barley meal and wheat and flour, pickled eggs, barrels of onions and apples. 
You can have an onion or an apple, John heard Harry Hell tell one woman, but not both. You gotta pick. The woman did not seem to understand. I need two of each. One of each for me, t'others for my boy, he's sick, but an apple will set him right. Hell shook his head. He has to come get his own apple. Or onion, not both. Same as you. Now, is it an apple or an onion? Be quick about it now. There's more behind you. An apple, she said, and he gave her one, an old dried thing, small and withered. Ah, move along, woman, shouted a man three places back. It's cold out here. The woman paid the shout no mind. Another apple, she said to Harry Hell, for my son, please. This one is so little. Hal looked to John. John shook his head. They would be out of apples soon enough. If they started giving two to everyone who wanted to, the latecomers would get none. Out of the way, a girl behind the woman said. Then she shoved her in the back. The woman staggered, lost her apple, and fell. The other foodstuffs in her arms went flying. Beans scattered. A turnip rolled into a mud puddle. A sack of flour split and spilled its precious contents in the snow. Angry voices rose in the old tongue and the common. More shoving broke out at another wagon. It's not enough, an old man snarled. You bloody crows are starving us to death. The woman who'd been knocked down was scrabbling on her knees after her food. John saw the flash of naked steel a few yards away. His own bowmen knocked arrows to their strings. He turned in his saddle. Rory, quiet them. Rory lifted his great horn to his lips and blew. Oh! The tumult and the shoving died. Heads turned. A child began to cry. Mormon's raven walked from John's left shoulder to his right, bobbing its head and muttering, Snow! 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 John waited until the last echoes had faded, then spurred his palfrey forward, where everyone could see him. We're feeding you as best we can, as much as we can spare. Apples, onions, neeps, carrots. There's a long winter ahead for all of us, and our stores are not inexhaustible. You crows eat good enough, Halleck shoved forward. For now, we hold the wall. The wall protects the realm and you now. You know the foe we face? You know what's coming down on us? Some of you have faced them before, whites and white walkers, dead things with blue eyes and black hands. I've seen them too, fought them, sent a few to hell. They kill, then they send your dead against you. The giants were not able to stand against them, nor you thens, the Ice River clans, the Hornfoots, the Free Folk, and as the days grow shorter and the nights colder, they are growing stronger. You left your homes and came south in your hundreds and your thousands. Why? But to escape them, to be safe. Well, it's the wall that keeps you safe. It's us that keeps you safe, the black crows you despise. Safe and starved, said a squat woman with a wind-burned face, a spearwife by the look of her. You want more food? asked John. The food's for fighters. Help us hold the wall, and you'll eat as well as any crow.
or as poorly when the food runs short. A silence fell. The wildlings exchanged wary looks. Eat, the raven muttered. Caught, caught, fight for you. This voice was thickly accented. Sigorn, the young magna of Then, spoke the common tongue haughtingly as best. Not fight for you. Kill you better. Kill all you. The raven flapped its wings. Kill, kill. Sigorn's father, the old magna, had been crushed beneath the falling stair during his attack on Castle Black. I would feel the same if someone asked me to make common cause with the Lannisters, John told himself. Your father tried to kill us all, he reminded Sigorn. The Magna was a brave man, yet he failed. And if he had succeeded, who would hold the wall? He turned away from the Thens. Winterfell's walls were strong as well. But Winterfell stands in ruins today, burned and broken. A wall is only as good as the men defending it. An old man with a turnip cradled against his chest said, "Ye kill us, ye starve us, and now you want to make us slaves. A chunky red-faced man shouted assent. I'd sooner go naked than wear one of them black rags on my back. One of the spearwives laughed. Even your wife don't want to see you naked, butts. A dozen voices all began to speak at once. The thens were shouting in the old tongue. A little boy began to cry. Jon Snow waited until all of it had died down, then turned to Harry Hal and said, Hal, what was it that you told this woman? Hal looked confused. About the food, you mean? An apple or an onion, that's all I said. They got to pick. You have to pick, Jon Snow repeated. All of you. No one is asking you to take our vows, and I do not care what gods you worship. My own gods are the old gods, the gods of the north. But you can keep the red god or the seven or any other god who hears your prayers. It's spears we need, bows, eyes along the wall. I will take any boy above the age of twelve who knows how to hold a spear or string a bow. I will take your old men, your wounded and your cripples, even those who can no longer fight. There are other tasks they may be able to perform, fletching arrows, milking goats, gathering firewood, mucking out our stables. The work is endless. And yes, I will take your women too. I have no need of blushing maidens looking to be protected, but I will take as many spear-wives as will come. And girls, a girl asked. She looked as young as Arya had the last time John had seen her. Sixteen and older. You're taking boys as young as twelve. Down in the Seven Kingdoms, boys of twelve were often pages or squires. Many had been training at arms for years. Girls of twelve were children. These are wildlings, though. As you will. Boys and girls as young as twelve, but only those who know how to obey an order. That goes for all of you. I will never ask you to kneel to me, but I will set captains over you, and sergeants who will tell you when to rise and when to sleep, where to eat, when to drink, what to wear, when to draw your swords and loose your arrows. 
the men of the night's watch, serve for life. I will not ask that of you. But so long as you are on the wall, you will be under my command. Disobey an order, and I'll have your head off. Ask my brothers if I won't. They've seen me do it. Off! screamed the old bear's raven. Off, off, off! The choice is yours, Jon Snow told them. Those who want to help us hold the wall, return to Castle Black with me, and I'll see you armed and fed. The rest of you, get your turnips and your onions, and crawl back inside your holes. The girl was the first to come forward. I can fight. My mother was a spearwife, John nodded. She may not even be twelve, he thought, as she squirmed between a pair of old men. But he was not about to turn away his only recruit. A pair of striplings followed her, boys no older than fourteen. Next, a scarred man with a missing eye. I've seen them too, the dead ones. Even crows are better than that. A tall spearwife, an old man on crutches, a moon-faced boy with a withered arm, a young man whose red hair reminded John of Ygritte, and then Halleck. I don't like you, Crow, he growled, but I never liked the man's neither, no more than my sister did. Still, we fought for him. Why not fight for you? The dam broke then. Halleck was a man of note. Mance was not wrong. Free folk don't follow names or little cloth animals sewn on a tunic, the king beyond the wall had told him. They won't dance for coins. They don't care how you style yourself or what that chain of office means or who your grandsire was. They follow strength. They follow the man. Halleck's cousins followed Halleck, then one of Harmer's banner-bearers, then men who'd fought with her, then others who had heard tales of their prowess, greybeards and green boys, fighting men in their prime, wounded men and cripples, a good score of spearwives, even three horn-footmen. But no thins. The magna turned and vanished back into the tunnels, and his bronze-clad minions followed hard at his heels. By the time the last withered apple had been handed out, the wagons were crowded with wildlings, and they were sixty-three stronger than when the column had set out from Castle Black that morning. "'What will you do with them?' Bowen Marsh asked John on the ride back up the King's Road. "'Train them, arm them, and split them up. Send them where they're needed. East Watch, the Shadow Tower, Icemark, Greyguard. I mean to open three more forts as well.' The Lord Steward glanced back. "'Women, too? Her brothers are not accustomed to having women amongst them, my lord. Their vows. There will be fights, rapes. These women have knives and know how to use them. And the first time one of these spearwives slits the throat of one of our brothers, what then?' "'We will have lost a man,' said John. "'But we have just gained sixty-three. Now you're good at counting, my lord.' Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my reckoning leaves us sixty-two ahead. Marsh was unconvinced. You've added sixty-three more mouths, my lord. But how many are fighters? And whose side will they fight on? If it's the others at the gates, most like they'll stand with us, I grant you. 
but if it's Tormund Giantsbane or the Weeping Man come calling with ten thousand howling killers, what then? Then we'll know. So let us hope it never comes to that. Tyrion He dreamt of his lord father and the shrouded lord. He dreamt that they were one and the same. And when his father wrapped stone arms around him and bent to give him his grey kiss, he woke with his mouth dry and rusty, with a taste of blood, and his heart hammering in his chest. "'Our dead dwarf has returned to us,' Halden said. Tyrion shook his head to clear away the webs of dream. "'The sorrows. I was lost in the sorrows. I am not dead.' That remains to be seen. The half-maester stood over him. Duck, be a fine fowl, and boil some broth for our little friend here. He must be famished. He was on the shy maid, Tyrion saw, under a scratchy blanket that smelled of vinegar. The sorrows are behind us. It was just a dream I dreamed, as I was drowning. Why do I stink of vinegar? Lemore has been washing you with it. Some say it helps prevent the grayscale. I am inclined to doubt that, but there's no harm in trying. It was Lamour who forced the water from your lungs after Griff had pulled you up. You were as cold as ice, and your lips were blue. Yandri said we ought to throw you back, but the lad forbade it. The prince! Memory came rushing back, the stone man reaching out with cracked grey hands, the blood seeping from his knuckles. He was heavy as a boulder, pulling me under. Griff brought me up. He must hate me, or he would have let me die. How long have I been sleeping? What place is this? Selhoris. Halden produced a small knife from his sleeve. Here, he said, tossing it underhand at Tyrion. The dwarf flinched. The knife landed between his feet and stood quivering in the deck. He plucked it out. What's this? Take off your boots. Prick each of your toes and fingers. That sounds uh, painful. I hope so. Do it. Tyrion yanked off one boot, then the other, peeled down his hose, squinted at his toes. It seemed to him they looked no better or worse than usual. He poked gingerly at one big toe. Harder, urged Halden Halfmaster. Do you want me to draw blood? If need be, I'll have a scab on every toe. The purpose of the exercise is not to count your toes. I want to see you wince. So long as the pricks hurt, you are safe. It is only when you cannot feel the blade that you will have cause to fear. Grayscale, Tyrion grimaced. He stabbed another toe, cursed as a bead of blood welled up around the knife's point. That hurt? Are you happy? Dancing with joy. Your feet smell worse than mine, Yellow. Duck had a cup of broth. Griff warned you not to lay hands upon the stone men. Aye, but he forgot to warn the stone men not to lay their hands upon me. As you prick, look for patches of dead grey skin, for nails beginning to turn black, said Holden. If you see such signs, do not hesitate. Better to lose a toe than a foot, 
Better lose an arm than spend your days wailing on the bridge of dream. Now the other foot, if you please. Then your fingers. The dwarf recrossed his stunted legs and began to prick the other set of toes. Shall I prick my prick as well? It would not hurt. It would not hurt you is what you mean. Though I had as well sliced it off for all the use I make of it. Feel free. We will have it tanned and stuffed and sell it for a fortune. A dwarf's cock has magical powers. I've been telling all the women that for years. Tyrion drove the dagger's point into the ball of his thumb. Watched the blood bead up, sucked it away. How long must I continue to torture myself? When will we be certain that I'm clean? Truly, said the half-maester, never. You swallowed half the river. You may be going grey even now, turning to stone from inside out, starting with your heart and lungs. If so, pricking your toes and bathing in vinegar will not save you. Uh, when you've done, come have some broth. The broth was good, though Tyrion noted that the half-maester kept the table between them as he ate. The shy maid was moored to a weathered pier on the east bank of the Rhoyne. Two piers down, a volantine river galley was discharging soldiers. Shops and stalls and storehouses huddled beneath a sandstone wall. The towers and domes of the city were visible beyond it, reddened by the light of the setting sun. No, not a city. Selhoris was still accounted a mere town, and was ruled from old Volantis. This was not Westeros. Lamour emerged on deck, with the prince in tow. When she saw Tyrion, she rushed across the deck to hug him. The mother is merciful. We have prayed for you, Hugo. You did at least. I won't hold that against you. Young Griff's greeting was less effusive. The princeling was in a solemn mood, angry that he had been forced to remain on the shy maid instead of going ashore with Yandri and Yasilla. We only want to keep you safe, Lamore told him. These are unsettled times, Holden Halfmaster explained. On the way down from the Sorrows to Selhoris, we thrice glimpsed raiders moving south along the river's eastern shore. Dothraki. Once they were so close, we could hear their bells tinkling in their braids, and sometimes at night their fires could be seen beyond the eastern hills. We passed warships as well, volunteering river galleys, crammed with slave soldiers. The Triarchs fear an attack upon Selhoris plainly. Tyrion understood that quick enough. Alone amongst the major river towns, Selores stood upon the eastern bank of the Rhoyne, making it much more vulnerable to the horse lords than its sister towns across the river. Even so, it is a small prize. If I were Carl, I would faint at Selores, let the volunteers rush to defend it, then swing south and ride hard for Volantis itself. I know how to use a sword, young Griff was insisting. Even the bravest of your forebears kept his king's guard close about him in times of peril. Lamore had changed out of her scepter's robes into garbs more befitting the wife 
or daughter of a prosperous merchant. Tyrion watched her closely. He had sniffed out the truth beneath the dyed blue hair of Griff and young Griff easily enough, and Yandri and Ysilla seemed to be no more than they claimed to be, whilst Duck was somewhat less. Lamore, though, who is she really? Why is she here? Not for gold, I'll judge. What is this prince to her? Was she ever a true scepter? Halden took note of her change of garb as well. What are we to make of this sudden loss of faith? I preferred you in your scepter's robes, Lamore. I preferred her naked, said Tyrion. Lamore gave him a reproachful look. That is because you have a wicked soul. Scepter's robes scream of Westeros and might draw unwelcome eyes onto us. She turned back to Prince Aegon. You are not the only one who must needs hide. The lad did not seem appeased. The perfect prince, but still half a boy for all that, with little and less experience of the world and all its woes. Prince Aegon, said Tyrion, since we are both stuck aboard this boat, perhaps you will honour me with a game of Sivas to while away the hours. The prince gave him a wary look. I am sick of Sivas. Sick of losing to a dwarf, you mean? That pricked the lad's pride just as he'd known it would. Go fetch the board and pieces. This time I mean to smash you. They played on deck, sitting cross-legged, behind the cabin. Young Griff arrayed his army for attack, with dragon, elephants, and heavy horse up front. A young man's formation, as bold as it is foolish. He risks all for the quick kill. He let the prince have first move. Halden stood behind them, watching the play. When the prince reached for his dragon, Tyrion cleared his throat. Uh, I wouldn't do that if I were you. It is a mistake to bring your dragon out too soon. He smiled innocently. Your father knew the dangers of being overbold. Did you know my true father? Well, I saw him twice or thrice, but I was only one and ten when Robert killed him, and mine own sire had me hidden underneath a rock. No, I cannot claim. I knew Prince Rhaegar, not as your false father did. Lord Cunnington was the prince's dearest friend, was he not? Young Griff pushed a lock of blue hair out of his eyes. They were squires together at King's Landing. A true friend, our Lord Cunnington. He must be to remain so fiercely loyal to the grandson of the king who took his lands and titles and sent him into exile. A pity about that. Elsewise, Prince Rhaegar's friend might have been on hand when my father sacked King's Landing to save Prince Rhaegar's precious little son from getting his royal brains dashed out against a wall. The lad flushed. That was not me, I told you. That was some tanner's son from Piswater Bend, whose mother died birthing him. His father sold him to Lord Varys for a jug of arbor gold. He had other sons but had never tasted arbor gold. Varys gave the piss-water boy to my lady mother and carried me away. Aye, Tyrion moved his elephants. 
and when the Pisswater Prince were safely dead, the eunuch smuggled you across the narrow sea to his fat friend, the cheesemonger, who hid you on a pole boat and found an exiled lord willing to call himself your father. It does make for a splendid story, and the singers will make much of your escape once you take the Iron Throne. Assuming that our fair Daenerys takes you for a consort, she will, she must. Must? Tyrion made a tisking sound. That is not a word queens like to hear. You are a perfect prince, agreed, bright and bold and comely as any maid could wish. Daenerys Targaryen is no maid, however. She is the widow of a Dothraki Karl, a mother of dragons and sacker of cities, egg on the conqueror with teats. She may not prove as willing as you wish. She'll be willing, Prince Aegon sounded shocked. It was plain that he had never before considered the possibility that his bride-to-be might refuse him. You don't know her. He picked up his heavy horse and put it down with a thump. The dwarf shrugged. I know that she spent her childhood in exile, impoverished, living on dreams and schemes, running from one city to the next, always fearful, never safe, friendless but for a brother who was by all accounts half mad, a brother who sold her maidenhead to the Dothraki for the promise of an army. I know that somewhere out upon the grass her dragons hatched, and so did she. I know she is proud. How not? What else was left her but pride? I know she is strong. How not? The Dothraki despise weakness. If Daenerys had been weak, she would have perished with Viserys. I know she is fierce. Astapor, Yunkai, and Meryn are proof enough of that. She has crossed the grasslands and the red waste, survived assassins and conspiracies and fell sorceries, grieved for a brother and a husband and a son, trod the cities of the slavers to dust beneath her dainty, sandaled feet. Now how do you suppose this queen will react when you turn up with your begging bowl in hand and say, Good morrow to you, auntie. I am your nephew, Aegon, returned from the dead. I've been hiding on a pole boat all my life, but now I've washed the blue dye for my hair, and I'd like a dragon, please. And, uh, oh, did I mention, my claim to the Iron Throne is stronger than your own? Aegon's mouth twisted in fury. I will not come to my aunt, a beggar. I will come to her, a kinsman, with an army. A small army. There, that's made him good and angry. The dwarf could not help but think of Joffrey. I have a gift for angering princes. Queen Daenerys has a large one, and no thanks to you. Tyrion moved his crossbows. Say what you want. She will be my bride. Lord Connington will see to it. I trust him as much as if he were my own blood. Or perhaps you should be the fool instead of me. Trust no one, my prince. Not your chainless maester. Not your false father. Not the gallant duck. Nor the lovely Lamore. Nor these other fine friends who grew you from a bean. Above all, trust not the cheesemonger nor the spider, 
nor this little dragon queen you mean to marry. All that mistrust will sour your stomach and keep you awake by night. Tis true, but better that than the long sleep that does not end. The dwarf pushed his black dragon across a range of mountains. But what do I know? Your false father is a great lord, and I am just some twisted little monkey man. Still, I do things differently. That got the boy's attention. How differently? If I were you, I would go west instead of east, land in dawn, and raise my banners. The seven kingdoms will never be more ripe for conquest than they are right now. A boy king sits the Iron Throne. The north is in chaos. The riverlands a devastation. A rebel holds Storm's End and Dragonstone. When winter comes, the realm will starve. And who remains to deal with all of this? Who rules the little king? Who rules the seven kingdoms? Why, my own sweet sister. There is no one else. My brother Jamie thirsts for battle, not for power. He's run from every chance he's had to rule. And my uncle Kevin would make a possibly good regent if someone pressed the duty on him, but he will never reach for it. The guard shaped him to be a follower, not a leader. Well, the guards and my lord father. Mace Tyrell would grasp the scepter gladly, but mine own kin are not like to step aside and give it to him. And everyone hates Stannis. Who does that leave? Why, only Cersei. Westeros is torn and bleeding, and I do not doubt that even now my sweet sister is binding up the wounds with salt. Cersei is as gentle as King Magor, as selfless as Aegon the Unworthy, as wise as Mad Ares. She never forgets a slight, real or imagined. She takes caution for cowardice and dissent for defiance, and she is greedy, greedy for power, for honor, for love. Tommen's rule is bolstered by all of the alliances that my lord father built so carefully, but soon enough she will destroy them, every one. Land and raise your banners, and men will flock to your cause, lords great and small, and small folk too. But do not wait too long, my prince. The moment will not last. The tide that lifts you now will soon recede. Be certain you reach Westeros before my sister falls, and someone more competent takes her place. But... Prince Aegon said. Without Daenerys and her dragons, how could we hope to win? You do not need to win, Tyrion told him. All you need to do is raise your banners, rally your supporters, and hold until Daenerys arrives to join her strength to yours. You said she might not have me. Perhaps I overstated. She may take pity on you when you come begging for her hand. The dwarf shrugged. Do you want to wager your throne upon a woman's whim? Go to Westeros, though. Ah, then you are a rebel, not a beggar. Bold, reckless, a true scion of House Targaryen. Walking in the footsteps of Aegon the Conqueror, a dragon. 
I told you I know our little queen. Let her hear that her brother Rhaegar's murdered son is still alive, that this brave boy has raised the dragon standard of her forebears in Westeros once more, that he is fighting a desperate war to avenge his father and reclaim the Iron Throne for House Targaryen, hard-pressed on every side, and she will fly to your side as fast as wind and water can carry her. You are the last of her line, and this mother of dragons, this breaker of chains, is above all a rescuer. The girl who drowned the slaver cities in blood, rather than leave strangers to their chains, can scarcely abandon her own brother's son in his hour of peril. And when she reaches Westeros and meets you for the first time, you will meet as equals— Man and woman, not queen and supplicant. How can she help but love you, then? I ask you. Smiling, he seized his dragon, flew it across the board. I hope your grace will pardon me. Your king is trapped. Death in four. The prince stared at the playing board. My dragon is too far away to save you. You should have moved her to the center of the battle. But you said, I lied, trust no one, and keep your dragon close. Young Griff jerked to his feet and kicked over the board. Sivas pieces flew in all directions, bouncing and rolling across the deck of the shy maid. Pick those up, the boy commanded. You may well be a Targaryen after all. If it please your grace, Tyrion got down on his hands and knees and began to crawl about the deck, gathering up pieces. It was close to dusk when Yandri and Isilla returned to the shy maid. A porter trotted at their heels, pushing a wheelbarrow heaped high with provisions. Salt and flour, fresh churned butter, slabs of bacon wrapped in linen, sacks of oranges, apples, and pears. Yandri had a wine cask on one shoulder, while Yasilla had slung a pike over hers. The fish was as large as Tyrion. When she saw the dwarf standing at the end of the gangplank, Yusilla stopped so suddenly that Yandri blundered into her, and the pike almost slid off her back into the river. Duck helped her rescue it. Yusilla glared at Tyrion and made a peculiar stabbing gesture with three of her fingers. A sign to ward off evil. Let me help you with that fish, he said to Duck. No, Yusilla snapped. Stay away. Touch no food besides the food you eat yourself. The dwarf raised both hands. As you command. Yandri thumped the wine cars down onto the deck. Where's Griff? he demanded of Holden. Asleep. Then rouse him. We have tidings he'd best here. The Queen's name is on every tongue in Solaris. They say she still sits in Murrin, sore beset. If the talk in the markets can be believed, old Valentis will soon join the war against her. Holden pursed his lips. The gossip of fishmongers is not to be relied on. Still, I suppose Griff will want to hear. You know how he is. The half-mister went below. The girl never started for the West. No doubt she had good reasons. 
Between Mirin and Valentus lay five hundred leagues of deserts, mountains, swamps, and ruins, plus Mantares with its sinister repute. A city of monsters, they say. But if she marches overland, where else is she to turn for food and water? The sea would be swifter. But if she does not have the ships... By the time Griff appeared on deck, the pike was spitting and sizzling over the brazier, whilst Yasilla hovered over it with a lemon squeezing. The sellsword wore his mail and wolfskin cloak, soft leather gloves, dark woolen breeches. If he was surprised to see Tyrion awake, he gave no sign beyond his customary scowl. He took Yandri back to the tiller, where they spoke in low voices, too quietly for the dwarf to hear. Finally, Griff beckoned to Holden. We need to know the truth of these rumors. Go ashore and learn what you can. Cable will know, if you can find him. Try the river man and the painted turtle. You know his other places. Aye, I'll take the dwarf as well. Four ears hear more than two. And you know how Cavo is about his Sivas. As you wish. Be back before the sun comes up. If for any reason you're delayed, make your way to the Golden Company. Spoken like a lord. Tyrion kept the thought to himself. Holden donned a hooded cloak, and Tyrion shed his homemade motley for something drab and grey. Griff allowed them each a purse of silver from Illyrio's chest. "'to loosen tongues.' "'Dusk was giving way to darkness "'as they made their way along the riverfront. "'Some of the ships they passed appeared deserted, "'their gangplanks drawn up. "'Others crawled with armed men "'who eyed them with suspicion. "'Under the town walls, parchment lanterns had been lit "'above the stalls, "'throwing pools of coloured light upon the cobbled path. "'Tyrion watched as Holden's face turned green, then red, then purple. Under the cacophony of foreign tongues, he heard queer music playing from somewhere up ahead, a thin, high fluting accompanied by drums. A dog was barking too behind them, and the whores were out. River or sea, a port was a port, and wherever you found sailors, you'd find whores. Is that what my father meant? Is that where whores go, to the sea? The whores of Lannisport and King's Landing were free women. Their sisters of Selhoris were slaves, their bondage indicated by the tears tattooed beneath their right eyes. Old as sin, and twice as ugly, the lot of them. It was almost enough to put a man off whoring. Tyrion felt their eyes upon them as he waddled by, and heard them whispering to one another and giggling behind their hands. You would think they'd never seen a dwarf before. A squad of volunteer spearmen stood guard at the river gate. Torchlight gleamed off the steel claws that jutted from their gauntlets. Their helms were tiger's masks, the faces beneath marked by green stripes tattooed across both cheeks. The slave soldiers of Valentus were fiercely proud of their tiger stripes Tyrion knew. Do they yearn for freedom? he wondered. What would they do 
if this child queen bestowed it on them? What are they if not tigers? What am I if not a lion? One of the tigers spied the dwarf and said something that made the others laugh. As they reached the gate, he pulled off his clawed gauntlet and the sweaty glove beneath, locked one arm around the dwarf's neck, and roughly rubbed his head. Tyrion was too startled to resist. It was all over in a heartbeat. Was there some reason for that? he demanded of the half-maester. He says that it is good luck to rub the head of a dwarf, Holden said, after an exchange with the guard in his own tongue. Tyrion forced himself to smile at the man. Tell him that it is even better luck to suck on a dwarf's cock. Best not. Tigers have been known to have sharp teeth. A different guard motioned them through the gate, waving a torch at them impatiently. Holden Halfmaster led the way into Selhoris proper, with Tyrion waddling warily at his heels. A great square opened up before them. Even at this hour it was crowded and noisy and ablaze with light. Lanterns swung from iron chains above the doors of inns and pleasure-houses, but within the gates they were made of coloured glass, not parchment. To their right a night-fire burned outside a temple of red stone. A priest in scarlet robes stood on the temple balcony, haranguing the small crowd that had gathered around the flames. Elsewhere travellers sat playing Sivas in front of an inn. Drunken soldiers wandered in and out of what was obviously a brothel. A woman beat a mule outside a stable. A two-wheel cart went rumbling past them, pulled by a white dwarf elephant. This is another world, thought Tyrion, but not so different from the world I know. The square was dominated by a white marble statue of a headless man in impossibly ornate armour, astride a war-horse, similarly arrayed. "'Who might that be?' wondered Tyrion. "'A, a triarch Arundel, a Valentine hero from the Century of Blood. He was returned as triarch every year for forty years, until he wearied of elections and declared himself triarch for life. The Valentines were not amused. He was put to death soon after, tied between two elephants and torn in half. His statue seems to lack a head. He was a tiger. When the elephants came to power, their followers went on a rampage, knocking the heads from the statues of those they blamed for all the wars and deaths. He shrugged. Uh, that was another age. Come, we'd best hear what that priest is going on about. I swear I heard the name Daenerys. Across the square they joined the growing throng outside the Red Temple. With the locals towering above him on every hand, the little man found it hard to see much beyond their asses. He could hear most every word the priest was saying, but that was not to say he understood them. "'Do you understand what he is saying?' he asked Holden in the common tongue. "'I would, if I did not have a dwarf piping my ear. "'I do not pipe.' Tyrion crossed his arms and looked behind him, studying the faces of the men and women who had stopped to listen. Everywhere he turned he saw tattoos. Slaves, 
Four of every five of them are slaves. The priest is calling on the volunteers to go to war, the half-maester told him. But on the side of right, as soldiers of the Lord of Light Relore, who made the sun and stars and fights eternally against the darkness. Nysus and Malachor have turned away from the light, he says, their hearts darkened by the yellow harpies from the east. He says, Dragons? I understood that word. He said, Dragons. Aye, the dragons have come to carry her to glory. Her? Daenerys? Holden nodded. Benero has sent forth a word from Volantis. Her coming is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. From smoke and salt was she born to make the world anew. She is Azor Ahai, returned, and her triumph over darkness will bring a summer that will never end. Death itself will bend its knee, and all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. "'Do I have to be reborn in this same body?' asked Tyrion. The crowd was growing thicker. He could feel them pressing in around them. "'Who is Benero?' Holden raised an eyebrow. "'High priest of the Red Temple in Volantis. Flame of truth, light of wisdom, first servant of Lord of Light, slave of Relore. The only Red Priest Tyrion had ever known— was Thoris of Myr, the portly, genial, wine-stained roisterer, who had loitered about Robert's court, swilling the king's finest vintages, and setting his sword on fire for melees. Give me priests who are fat and corrupt and cynical, he told Holden, the sort who like to sit on soft satin cushions, nibble sweetmeats, and diddle little boys. It's the ones who believe in gods who make the trouble. It may be that we can use this trouble to our advantage. I know where we may find answers. Holden led them past the headless hero to where a big stone inn fronted on the square. The ridge shell of some immense turtle hung above its door, painted in garish colors. Inside, a hundred dim red candles burned like distant stars. The air was fragrant with the smell of roasted meat and spices, and a slave girl with a turtle on one cheek was pouring pale green wine. Holden paused in the doorway. There, those two. In the alcove, two men sat over a carved stone Sivas table, squinting at their pieces by the light of a red candle. One was gaunt and sallow, with thinning black hair and a blade of a nose. The other was wide of shoulder and round of belly, with corkscrew ringlets tumbling past his collar. Neither deigned to look up from their game until Halton drew a chair between them and said, My dwarf plays better Sivas than both of you combined. The bigger man raised his eyes to gaze at the intruders in distaste and said something in the tongue of old Volantis, too fast for Tyrion to hope to follow. The thinner one leaned back in his chair. "'Is he for sale?' he asked, in the common tongue of Westeros. "'The Triarch's grotesquerie is in need of a Sivas playing dwarf.' "'Yolo is no slave.' "'What a pity!' the thin man shifted an onyx elephant. 
Across the Saivas table, the man behind the alabaster army pursed his lips in disapproval. He moved his heavy horse. A blunder, said Tyrion. He had as well play his part. Just so, the thin man said. He answered with his own heavy horse. A flurry of quick moves followed, until finally the thin man smiled and said, Death, my friend. The big man glowered at the board, then rose and growled something in his own tongue. His opponent laughed. Come now, the dwarf does not stink as bad as that. He beckoned Tyrion toward the empty chair. Up with you, little man. Put your silver on the table, and we will see how well you play the game. Which game? Tyrion might have asked. He climbed onto the chair. I play better with a full belly and a cup of wine to end. The thin man turned obligingly and called for the slave girl to fetch some food and drink. Holden said, The noble Cavo Nagaris is the customs officer here in Saloris. I've never once defeated him at Cybers. Tyrion understood. Perhaps I would be more fortunate. He opened his purse and stacked silver coins beside the board. One atop another until finally Cavo smiled. As each of them was setting up his pieces behind the Sivas screen, Holden said, What news from Don River? Will it be war? Cavo shrugged. The young Kai would have it so. They style themselves the wise masters. Of their wisdom I cannot speak, but they do not lack for cunning. Their envoy came to us with chests of gold and gems and two hundred slaves, nubile girls and smooth-skinned boys, trained in the way of the seven sires. I am told his feasts are memorable and his bribes lavish. The Yankish men have bought your triarchs? Only Nysus. Cavo removed the screen and studied the placement of Tyrion's army. Malachro may be old and toothless, but he is a tiger still, and Donifus will not be returned as Triarch. The city thirsts for war. Why, wondered Tyrion, Meereen is long leagues across the sea. How has this sweet child queen offended old Volantis? Sweet, Cavo laughed. If even half the stories coming back from Slaver's Bay are true, this child is a monster. They say that she is bloodthirsty, that those who speak against her are impaled on spikes to die lingering deaths. They say she is a sorceress who feeds her dragons on the flesh of newborn babes, an oathbreaker who mocks her gods, breaks truces, threatens envoys, and turns on those who have served her loyally. They say her lust cannot be sated, that she mates with men, women, eunuchs, even dogs and children, and woe betide the lover who fails to satisfy her. She gives her body to men to take their souls in thrall. Oh, good, thought Tyrion, if she gives her body to me, she is welcome to my soul, small and stunted though it is. They say, said Holden. By there you mean the slavers, the exiles she drove from Astapor and Miri. Mere calumnies. The best calumnies are spiced with truth, suggested Cabo. But the girl's true sin cannot be denied. This arrogant child has taken it upon herself to smash the slave trade. But that traffic 
was never confined to Slaver's Bay. It was part of the sea of trade that spanned the world, and the Dragon Queen has clouded the water. Behind the black wall, lords of ancient blood sleep poorly, listening as their kitchen slaves sharpen their long knives. Slaves grow our food, clean our streets, teach our young. They guard our walls, row our galleys, fight our battles. And now, when they look east, they see this young queen shining from afar, this breaker of chains. The old blood cannot suffer that. Poor men hate her, too. Even the vilest beggar stands higher than a slave. This dragon queen would rob him of that consolation. Tyrion advanced his spearman. Cavo replied with his light horse. Tyrion moved his crossbowman up a square and said, The red priest outside seems to think Valantis should fight for the Silver Queen, not against her. The red priests would be wise to hold their tongues, said Cavo Nagaris. Already there has been fighting between their followers and those who worship other gods. Benero's rantings will only serve to bring a savage wrath down upon his head. What rantings? the dwarf asked, toying with his rabble. The volunteer waved a hand. In Volantis, thousands of slaves and freedmen crowd Temple Plaza every night to hear Benero shriek of bleeding stars and a sword of fire that will cleanse the world. He has been preaching that Valentus will surely burn if the Triarchs take up arms against the Silver Queen. That's a prophecy even I could make. Ah, supper! Supper was a plate of roasted goat served on a bed of sliced onions. The meat was spiced and fragrant, charred outside and red and juicy within. Tyrion plucked at a piece. It was so hot it burned his fingers— but so good he could not help but reach for another chunk. He washed it down with a pale green volantine liquor, the closest thing he'd had to wine for ages. Very good, he said, plucking up his dragon. The most powerful piece in the game, he announced, as he removed one of Cavo's elephants. And Darius Targaryen has three, it said. Three, Cavo allowed. "'Against thrice three thousand enemies? "'Grasdan Moiras was not the only envoy "'sent out from the Yellow City. "'When the wise masters move against Merine, "'the legions of Nugis will fight beside them, "'Tolossi, Illyrians, even the Dothraki. "'You have Dothraki outside your own gates,' Holden said. "'Karl Pono!' "'Cavo waved a pale hand in dismissal. The horse lords come, we give them gifts, the horse lords go. He moved his catapult again, closed his hand around Tyrion's alabaster dragon, removed it from the board. The rest was slaughter, though the dwarf held on another dozen moves. The time has come for bitter tears, Cavo said at last, scooping up the pile of silver. Another game? No need, said Holden. My dwarf has had his lesson in humility. I think it's best we get back to our boat. Outside in the square, the night fire was still burning, but the priest was gone, and the crowd was long dispersed. The glow of candles glimmered from the windows of the brothel. From inside came the sound of women's laughter. The night is still young, 
said Tyrion. Cavo may not have told us everything, and whores hear much and more from the men they service. Do you need a woman so badly, Yellow? A man grows weary of having no lovers but his fingers. Sir Loris may be where whores go. Tysha might be in there even now, with tears tattooed upon her cheek. I almost drowned. A man needs a woman after that. Besides, I need to make sure my prick hasn't turned to stone. The half-master laughed. I will wait for you in the tavern by the gate. Do not be too long about your business. Oh, have no fear on that count. Most women prefer to be done with me as quickly as they can. The brothel was a modest one, compared to those the dwarf had been wont to frequent in Lannisport and King's Landing. The proprietor did not seem to speak any tongue but that of Valentus, but he understood the clank of silver well enough, and led Tyrion through an archway into a long room that smelled of incense, where four bored slave girls were lounging about in various states of undress. Two had seen at least forty name days come and go, he guessed. The youngest was perhaps fifteen or sixteen. None was as hideous as the horse he'd seen working the docks, though they fell well short of beauty. One was plainly pregnant. Another was just fat and sported iron rings in both her nipples. All four had tears tattooed beneath one eye. "'Do you have a girl who speaks the tongue of Westeros?' asked Tyrion. The proprietor squinted, uncomprehending. So he repeated the question in High Valerian. This time the man seemed to grasp a word or two, and replied in Volantine. "'Sunset girl' was all the dwarf could get out of his answer. He took that to mean a girl from the Sunset Kingdoms. There was only one such in the house, and she was not Tysha. She had freckled cheeks and tight red curls upon her head, which gave promise of freckled breasts and red hair between her legs. "'She'll do,' said Tyrion. "'And I'll have a flagon, too. Red wine with red flesh.' The whore was looking at his noseless face, with revulsion in her eyes. "'Do I offend you, sweetling? I am an offensive creature, as my father would be glad to tell you, if he were not dead and rutting.' Though she did look west to Rossi, the girl spoke not a word of the common tongue. Perhaps she was captured by some slaver as a child. Her bedchamber was small, but there was a mirish carpet on the floor and a mattress stuffed with feathers in place of straw. Oh, I've seen worse. Will you give me your name? he asked, as he took a cup of wine from her. No. The wine was strong and sour and required no translation. I suppose I shall settle for your cunt. He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. Have you ever bedded a monster before? Now's a good a time as any. Out of your clothes and onto your back, if it please you, or not. She looked at him uncomprehending, until he took the flagon from her hands and lifted her skirts up over her head. After that, she understood what was required of her, though she did not prove the liveliest of partners. Tyrion had been so long without a woman that he spent himself inside her on the third thrust. He rolled off, feeling more ashamed than sated. 
This was a mistake. What a wretched creature I've become. Do you know a woman by the name of Tysha? he asked, as he watched his seed dribble out of her onto the bed. The whore did not respond. Do you know where whores go? She did not answer that one either. Her back was crisscrossed by ridges of scar tissue. This girl is as good as dead. I've just fucked a corpse. Even her eyes look dead. She does not even have the strength to loathe me. He needed wine, a lot of wine. He seized the flagon with both hands and raised it to his lips. The wine ran red down his throat, down his chin. It dripped from his beard and soaked the feather bed. In the candlelight, it looked as dark as the wine that had poisoned Joffrey. When he was done, he tossed the empty flagon aside and half rolled and half staggered to the floor, groping for a chamber pot. There was none to be found. His stomach heaved, and he found himself on his knees, retching on the carpet, that wonderful thick, mirish carpet, as comforting as lies. The hall cried out in distress. They will blame her for this, he realized, ashamed. Cut off my head and take it to King's Landing, Tyrion urged her. My sister will make a lady of you, and no one will ever whip you again. She did not understand that either. So he shoved her legs apart, crawled between them, and took her once more. That much she could comprehend, at least. Afterward the wine was done, and so was he. So he wadded up the girl's clothing and tossed it at the door. She took the hint and fled, leaving him alone in the darkness, sinking deeper into his feather bed. I am stinking drunk. He dared not close his eyes for fear of sleep. Beyond the veil of dream, the sorrows were waiting for him. Stone steps ascending endlessly, steep and slick and treacherous, and somewhere at the top the shrouded lord. I do not want to meet the shrouded lord. Tyrion fumbled back into his clothes again and groped his way to the stair. Griff will flay me. Well, why not? If ever a dwarf deserved a skinning, I'm him. Halfway down the steps, he lost his footing. Somehow he managed to break his tumble with his hands and turn it into a clumsy, thumping cartwheel. The whores in the room below looked up in astonishment when he landed at the foot of the steps. Tyrion rolled onto his feet and gave them a bow. I'm more agile when I'm drunk. He turned to the proprietor. I fear I ruined your carpet. The girl's not to blame. Let me pay. He pulled out a fistful of coins and tossed them at the man. Imp, a deep voice said behind him. In the corner of the room, a man sat in a pool of shadow, with a whore squirming on his lap. Oh, I never saw that girl. If I had, I would have taken her upstairs instead of Freckles. She was younger than the others, slim and pretty, with long silvery hair. Lyseni had a guess. But the man whose lap she filled was from the Seven Kingdoms, burly and broad shouldered, forty if he was a day, and maybe older. Half his head was bald, but coarse stubble covered his cheeks and chin, and hair grew thickly down his arms, sprouting even from his knuckles. Tyrion did not like the look of him. He liked the big black bear in his surcoat even less. Wool, 
he's wearing wool. In this heat, who else but a knight would be so fucking mad? How pleasant you hear the common tongue so far from home, he made himself say. But I fear you have mistaken me. My name is Hugo Hill. May I buy you a cup of wine, my friend? I've drunk enough. The knight shoved his whore aside and got to his feet. His sword belt hung on a peg beside him. He took it down and drew his blade. Steel whispered against leather. The whores were watching avidly, candlelight shining in their eyes. The proprietor had vanished. You're mine, Hugo. Tyrion could no more outrun him than outfight him. Drunk as he was, he could not even hope to outwit him. He spread his hands. And what do you mean to do with me? Deliver you, the knight said, to the queen. Daenerys Galaza Galare arrived at the Great Pyramid, attended by a dozen white graces, girls of noble birth who were still too young to have served their year in the temple's pleasure gardens. They made for a pretty portrait, the proud old woman, all in green, surrounded by the little girls robed and veiled in white, armoured in their innocence. The queen welcomed them warmly, then summoned Masandi to see that the girls were fed and entertained while she shared a private supper with the green grace. Her cooks had prepared them a magnificent meal of honeyed lamb, fragrant with crushed mint, and served with the small green figs she liked so much. Two of Danny's favorite hostages served the food and kept the cups filled. A doe-eyed little girl called Keza and a skinny boy named Grazar. They were brother and sister and cousins of the Green Grace, who greeted them with kisses when she swept in and asked them if they had been good. They are very sweet, the both of them, Danny assured her. Kezar sings for me sometimes. She has a lovely voice. And Sir Barriston has been instructing Grazar and the other boys in the ways of Western chivalry. They are of my blood, the Green Grace said, as Kazar filled her cup with a dark red wine. It is good to know they have pleased your radiance. I hope I may do likewise. The old woman's hair was white, and her skin was parchment thin. But the years had not dimmed her eyes. They were as green as her robes, sad eyes, full of wisdom. If you'll forgive my saying so, your radiance looks weary. Are you sleeping? It was all Danny could do not to laugh. Not well. Last night, three Carthine galleys sailed up the Skahazadan under the cover of darkness. The mother's men loosed flights of fire arrows at their sails and flung pots of burning pitch onto their decks. But the galleys slipped by quickly and suffered no lasting harm. The Carthine mean to close the river to us, as they have closed the bay, and they are no longer alone. Three galleys from Ugis have joined them, and a carrack out of Tolos. The Tolosi had replied to her request for an alliance by proclaiming her a whore and demanding that she return Mirin to its great masters. Even that was preferable to the answer of Mantares, which came by way of caravan 
in a cedar chest. Inside she had found the heads of her three envoys, pickled. Perhaps your gods can help us. Ask them to send a gale and sweep the galleys from the bay. I shall pray and make sacrifice. Mayhaps the gods of Gis will hear me. Galaza Galari sipped her wine, but her eyes did not leave Danny. Storms rage within the walls as well as without. More freedmen died last night, or so I have been told. Three. Saying it left a bitter taste in her mouth. The cowards broke in on some weavers, freed women, who had done no harm to anyone. All they did was make beautiful things. I have a tapestry they gave me hanging over my bed. The sons of the harpy broke their loom and raped them before slitting their throats. This we have heard, and yet your radiance has found the courage to answer butchery with mercy. You have not harmed any of the noble children you hold as hostage. Not as yet, no. Danny had grown fond of her young charges. Some were shy and some were bold, some sweet and some sullen, but all were innocent. If I kill my cupbearers, who will pour my wine and serve my supper? she said, trying to make light of it. The priestess did not smile. The shave page would feed them to your dragons, it is said. A life for a life. For every brazen beast cut down, he would have a child die. Danny pushed her food about her plate. She dare not glance over to where Graza and Keza stood, for fear that she might cry. The shave pate has a harder heart than mine. They had fought about the hostages half a dozen times. The sons of the Arpy are laughing in their pyramids, Scar said just this morning. What good are hostages if you will not take their heads? In his eyes she was only a weak woman. Hazair was enough. What good is peace if it must be purchased with the blood of little children? These murders are not their doing. Danny told the Green Grace feebly, I am no butcher queen. And for that, Marine gives thanks, said Galaza Galari. We have heard that the butcher king of Astapor is dead, slain by his own soldiers when he commanded them to march out and attack the Yunkai. The words were bitter in her mouth. He was hardly cold before another took his place, calling himself Cleon the Second. That one lasted eight days before his throat was opened. Then his killer claimed the crown. So did the first Cleon's concubine, King Cutthroat and Queen Whore, the Astapori called them. Their followers are fighting battles in the streets while the Yunkai and their sellswords wait outside the walls. These are grievous times. Your radiance, might I presume to offer you my counsel? You know how much I value your wisdom. Then heed me now. And marry. Ah, Danny had been expecting this. Oftentimes I have heard you say that you are only a young girl. To look at you, you still seem half a child, too young and frail to face such trials by yourself. You need a king beside you to help you bear these burdens. Danny spared a chunk of lamb, 
took a bite from it, chewed slowly. Tell me, can this king puff his cheeks up and blow Zaro's galleys back to Karth? Can he clap his hands and break the siege of Astapor? Can he put food in the bellies of my children and bring peace back to my streets? Can you? the green grace asked. A king is not a god, but there is still much that a strong man might do. When my people look at you, they see a conqueror from across the seas come to murder us and make slaves of our children. A king could change that. A high-born king of pure Gascari blood could reconcile the city to your rule. Elsewise, I fear, your reign must end as it began, in blood and fire. Danny pushed her food about her plate. And who were the gods of Gis have me take as my king and consort? His Zars Olorek. Galaza Galare said firmly. Danny did not trouble to feign surprise. Why, Hizdar, Skahaz is noble-born as well. Skahaz is Kandak, Hizdar Lorik. Your radiance will forgive me, but only one who is not herself, Giscari, would not understand the difference. Oft have I heard that yours is the blood of Aegon, the conqueror, Shahiris, the wise, and Deron, the dragon. The noble Hizdar is the blood of Mazdan, the magnificent, Hazrak the handsome, and Zarak the liberator. His forebears are as dead as mine. Will Hizdar raise their shades to defend Merin against his enemies? I need a man with ships and swords. You offer me ancestors. We are an old people. Ancestors are important to us. Wed his Zolorek and make a son with him, a son whose father is the harpy, whose mother is the dragon. In him the prophecies shall be fulfilled, and your enemies will melt away like snow. He shall be the stallion that mounts the world. Danny Newhart went with prophecies. They were made of words, and words were wind. There would be no son for Lorek, no heir to unite dragon and harpy. When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, when the seas go dry and mountains blow in the wind like leaves, only then would her womb quicken once again. But Daenerys Targaryen had other children, tens of thousands who had hailed her as their mother when she broke their chains. She thought of Stalwart Shield, of Missandei's brother, of the woman Rylona Ree, who had played the harp so beautifully. No marriage could ever bring them back to life, but if a husband could help end the slaughter, then she owed it to her dead to marry. If I wed Hisdar, will that turn Skarhaz against me? She trusted Skarhaz more than she trusted Hisdar, but the shave-pate would be a disaster as a king. He was too quick to anger, too slow to forgive. She saw no gain in wedding a man as hated as herself. His dar was well respected, so far as she could see. What does my prospective husband think of this? She asked the green grace. What does he think of me? Your grace need only ask him. The noble his dar awaits below. Send down to him, if that is your pleasure. You presume too much, priestess, the queen thought. 
but she swallowed her anger and made herself smile. Why not? She sent for Sir Barristan and told the old knight to bring his dar to her. It is a long claim. Have the unsullied help him up. By the time the nobleman had made the ascent, the green grace had finished eating. If it please your magnificence, I will take my leave. You and the noble Hisdar will have many things to discuss. I do not doubt. The old woman dabbed a smear of honey off her lips, gave Keza and Graza each a parting kiss upon the brow, and fastened her silken veil across her face. I shall return to the temple of the graces and pray for the gods to show my queen the course of wisdom. When she was gone, Danny let Kezar fill her cup again, dismissed the children, and commanded that his Zolorek be admitted to her presence. And if he dare say one word about his precious fighting pits, I may have him thrown off the terrace. Hisdar wore a plain green robe beneath a quilted vest. He bowed low when he entered, his face solemn. Have you no smile for me? Danny asked him. Am I as fearful as all that? I always grow solemn in the presence of such beauty. It was a good start. Drink with me, Danny filled his cup herself. You know why you're here. The green grace seems to feel that if I take you for my husband, all my woes will vanish. I would never make so bold a claim. Men are born to strive and suffer. Our woes only vanish when we die. I can be of help to you, however. I have gold and friends and influence, and the blood of old guests flows in my veins. Though I have never wed, I have two natural children, a boy and a girl, so I can give you heirs. I can reconcile the city to your rule and put an end to this nightly slaughter in the streets. Can you? Danny studied his eyes. Why should the sons of the harpy lay down their knives for you? Are you one of them? No. Would you tell me if you were? He laughed. No. The shave pate has ways of finding the truth. I do not doubt that Skahars would soon have me confessing. A day with him and I will be one of the harpy's sons. Two days and I will be the harpy. Three and it will turn out that I slew your father too, back in the Sunset Kingdoms when I was yet a boy. Then he will impale me on a stake, and you can watch me die. But afterward the killings will go on. His darling closer. Or you can marry me, and let me try to stop them. Why would you want to help me? For the crown? A crown would suit me well, I will not deny that. It is more than that, however. Is it so strange that I would want to protect my own people— as you protect your freedmen. Merian cannot endure another war, your radiance. That was a good answer, and an honest one. I have never wanted war. I defeated the Yunkai once, and spared their city when I might have sacked it. I refused to join King Cleon when he marched against them. Even now, with Astapor besieged, I stay my hand. And Karth, I have never done the Carthine any harm. Not by intent, no, but Carth is a city of merchants, and they love the clink of silver coins. 
the gleam of yellow gold. When you smash the slave trade, the blow was felt from Westeros to Ashai. Caste depends upon its slaves. So too, Tolus, Nugis, Lys, Tyrosh, Volantis. The list is long, my queen. Let them come. In me they shall find a sterner foe than Cleon. I would sooner perish fighting than return my children to bondage. There may be another choice. The young Kai can be persuaded to allow all your freedmen to remain free, I believe. If your worship will agree that the Yellow City may trade and train slaves unmolested from this day forth, no more blood need flow. Save for the blood of those slaves that the Yunkai will trade and train, Danny said, but she recognized the truth in his words even so. It may be that is the best end we can hope for. You have not said you love me. I will, if it would please your radiance. That is not the answer of a man in love. What is love? Desire? No man with all his parts could ever look on you and not desire you, Daenerys. That is not why I would marry you, however. Before you came, Marion was dying. Our rulers were old men with withered cocks and crones whose pocket cunts were dry as dust. They sat atop their pyramids, sipping apricot wine and talking of the glories of the old empire whilst the centuries slipped by and the very bricks of the city crumbled all round them. Custom and caution had an iron grip upon us, till you awakened us with fire and blood. A new time has come, and new things are possible. Marry me. He is not hard to look at, Danny told herself, and he has a king's tongue. Kiss me, she commanded. He took her hand again and kissed her fingers. Not that way. Kiss me as if I were your wife. His daughter took her by the shoulders as tenderly as if she were a baby bird. Leaning forward, he pressed his lips to hers. His kiss was light and dry and quick. Danny felt no stirrings. Shall I um, kiss you again? he asked when it was over. No. On her terrace, in her bathing pool, the little fish would nibble at her legs as she soaked. Even they kissed with more fervor than his dar Zolorek. I do not love you, his dar shrugged. That may come in time. It has been known to happen that way. Not with us, she thought. Not whilst Daria so close. It's him I want, not you. One day I will want to return to Westeros to claim the seven kingdoms that were my father's. One day all men must die, but it serves no good to dwell on death. I prefer to take each day as it comes. Danny folded her hands together. Words are wind, even words like love and peace. I put more trust in deeds. In my seven kingdoms, knights go on quests to prove themselves worthy of the maiden that they love. They seek for magic swords, for chests of gold, for crowns stolen from a dragon's hoard. His daughter arched an eyebrow. The only dragons that I know are yours, and magic swords are even scarcer. 
I will gladly bring you rings and crowns and chests of gold, if that is your desire. Peace is my desire. You say that you can help me end the nightly slaughter in my streets. I say do it. Put an end to the shadow war, my lord. That is your quest. Give me ninety days and ninety nights without a murder, and I will know that you are worthy of a throne. Can you do that? Hisdar looked thoughtfully. Ninety days and ninety nights without a corpse, and on the ninety-first day we wed. Perhaps, said Danny, with a coy look, though young girls have been known to be fickle, I may still want a magic sword. Hisdar laughed. Then you shall have that too, Radiance. Your wish is my command. Best tell your seneschal to begin making preparations for our wedding. Nothing would please the noble Resnick more. If Miri knew that a wedding was in the offing, that alone might buy her a few nights' respite, even if Hesdar's efforts came to naught. The shave pate will not be happy with me, but Resnick mo Resnick will dance for joy. Danny did not know which of those concerned her more. She needed Skarhas and the brazen beasts, and she had come to mistrust all of Resnick's counsel. Beware the perfume Seneschal. Has Resnick made common cause with Hisdar and the Green Grace, and set some trap to snare me? No sooner had Hisdar Zolorek taken his leave of her than Sir Barristan appeared behind her in his long white cloak. Years of service in the King's Guard had taught the White Knight how to remain unobtrusive when she was entertaining, but he was never far. He knows, she saw at once, and he disapproves. The lines around his mouth had deepened. So, she said to him, it seems that I may wed again. Are you happy for me, sir? If that is your command, your grace— Hisdar is not the husband you would have chosen for me. It is not my place to choose your husband. It is not, she agreed, but it is important to me that you should understand. My people are bleeding, dying. A queen belongs not to herself, but to the realm. Marriage or carnage, those are my choices, a wedding or a war. Your Grace, may I speak frankly? Always. There is a third choice. Westerus? He nodded. I am sworn to serve your grace and to keep you safe from harm wherever you may go. My place is by your side, whether here or in King's Landing. But your place is back in Westerus, upon the iron throne that was your father's. The seven kingdoms will never accept his Zolorek as king. No more than Marion will accept Daenerys Targaryen as queen. The Green Grace has the right of that. I need a king beside me, a king of old Gascari blood. Elsewise they will always see me as the uncouth barbarian who smashed through their gates, impaled their kin on spikes, and stole their wealth. In Westeros you will be the lost child who returns to gladden her father's heart. Your people would cheer when you ride by, and all good men will love you. Westeros is far away. Lingering here will never bring it any closer. 
the sooner we take our leave of this place. I know. I, I do. Dennett did not know how to make him see. She wanted Westeros as much as he did. But first she must heal Mirin. Ninety days is a long time. His star may fail, and if he does, the trying buys me time. Time to make alliances, to strengthen my defences, to— And if he does not fail, what will your grace do then? Her duty. The word felt cold upon her tongue. You saw my brother Rhaegar wed. Tell me, did he wed for love or duty? The old knight hesitated. Princess Elia was a good woman, your grace. She was kind and clever, with a gentle heart and a sweet wit. I know the prince was very fond of her. Fond, thought Danny. The word spoke volumes. I could become fond of his Zoloric in time, perhaps. Sir Barristan went on. I saw your father and your mother wed as well. Forgive me, but there was no fondness there, and the realm paid dearly for that, my queen. Why did they wed if they did not love each other? Your grandsire commanded it. A woods witch had told him that the prince who was promised would be born of their line. A woods witch, Danny was astonished. She came to court with Jenny of Oldstones, a stunted thing, grotesque to look upon. A dwarf, most people said, though dear to Lady Jenny, who always claimed that she was one of the children of the forest. What became of her? Summer Hall. The word was fraught with doom. Danny sighed. Leave me now. I am very weary. As you command. Sir Barrison bowed and turned to go, but at the door he stopped. Forgive me. Your grace has a visitor. Shall I tell him to return upon the morrow? Who is it? Naharis. The Stormcurs have returned to the city. Dario! Her heart gave a flutter in her chest. How long is... When did he... She could not seem to get the words out. Sir Barristan seemed to understand. Your Grace was with the priestess when he arrived. I knew you would not want to be disturbed. The captain's news can wait until the morrow. No! How could I ever hope to sleep, knowing that my captain was so close? Send him up at once, and I will have no more need of you this evening. I shall be safe with Dario. Oh, and send Iri and Jiqui, if you'll be so good, and Miss Andy. I need to change to make myself beautiful. She said as much to her handmaids when they came. What does your grace wish to wear? asked Miss Sandy. Starlight and sea foam, Danny thought, a wisp of silk that leaves my left breast bare for Dario's delight. Oh, and flowers for my hair. When first they met, the captain brought her flowers every day, all the way from Yonkai to Mirin. Bring the grey linen gown with the pearls on the bodice, oh, and, and my white lion's pelt. She always felt safer, wrapped in Drogo's lineskip. Daenerys received the captain on her terrace, seated on a carved stone bench beneath a pear tree. A half-moon floated in the sky above the city, attended by a thousand stars. Dario Nahadis entered swaggering. He swaggers, even when he's standing still. The captain 
wore striped pantaloons tucked into high boots of purple leather, a white silk shirt, a vest of golden rings. His trident beard was purple, his flamboyant mustachios gold, his long curls equal parts of both. On one hip he wore a stiletto, on the other a Dothraki arak. Bright queen, he said, you have grown more beautiful in my absence. How is this thing possible? The queen was accustomed to such praise, yet somehow the compliment meant more coming from Dario than from the likes of Resnek, Zaro, or Hisdar. Captain, they tell us you did as good service in Lazar. I have missed you so much. Your captain lives to serve his cruel queen. Cruel? Moonlight glimmered in his eyes. He raced ahead of all his men to see her face the sooner, only to be left languishing while she ate lamb and figs with some dried-up old woman. They never told me you were here, Danny thought, or I might have played the fool and sent for you at once. I was supping with the green grace. It seemed best not to mention his dar. I had urgent need of her wise counsel. I have only one urgent need. Daenerys. Shall I send for food? You must be hungry. I have not eaten in two days, but now that I am here, it is enough for me to feast upon your beauty. My beauty will not fill up your belly. She plucked down a pear and tossed it at him. Eat this. If my queen commands it. He took a bite of the pear, his gold tooth gleaming. Juice ran down into his purple beard. The girl in her wanted to kiss him so much it hurt. His kisses would be hard and cruel, she told herself, and he would not care if I cried out or commanded him to stop. But the queen in her knew that would be folly. Uh, tell me of your journey. He gave a careless shrug. The Yunkai sent some hired swords to close the Kaizai Pass. The Long Lancers, they named themselves. We descended on them in the night and sent a few to hell. In Lazar I slew two of my own sergeants for plotting to steal the gems and gold plate my queen had entrusted to me as gifts for the lamb men. Elsewise, all went as I had promised. How many men did you lose in the fighting? Nine, said Dario, but a dozen of the long lances decided they would sooner be storm crows than corpses. So we came out three ahead. I told them they would live longer fighting with your dragons than against them, and they saw the wisdom in my words. That made her wary. They might be spying for Yonkai. They are too stupid to be spies. You do not know them. Neither do you. Do you trust them? I trust all my men, just as far as I can spit. He spat out a seed and smiled at her suspicions. Shall I bring their heads to you? I will if you command it. One is bald and two have braids, and one dyes his beard four different colors. What spy would wear such a beard, I ask you? The slinger can put a stone through a gnat's eye at forty paces, and the ugly one has a way with horses, but if my queen says that they must die— I did not say that. I only— See that you keep your eye on them, that's all.
she felt foolish saying it. She always felt a little foolish when she was with Dario. Gawky and girlish and slow-witted, what must he think of me? She changed the subject. Will the lambmen send us food? Grain will come down the Skahazadan by barge, my queen, and other goods by caravan over the Karzai. Not the Skahazadan. The river has been closed to us. The seas as well. You will have seen the ships out in the bay. The Carthine have driven off a third of our fishing fleet and seized another third. The others are too frightened to leave port. What little trade we still had has been cut off. Dario tossed away the pear stem. Carthine have milk in their veins. Let them see your dragons and they'll run. Danny did not want to talk about the dragons. Farmers still came to her court with burnt bones, complaining of missing sheep, though Drogon had not returned to the city. Some reported seeing him north of the river, above the grass of the Dothraki Sea. Down in the pit, Viserion had snapped one of his chains. He and Rhaegal grew more savage every day. Once the iron doors had glowed red-hot, her unsolid told her, and no one dared to touch them for a day. Astapor is under siege as well. This I knew. One of the long lancers lived long enough to tell us that men were eating one another in the Red City. He said Mirian's turn would come soon. So I cut out his tongue and fed it to a yellow dog. No dog will eat a liar's tongue. When the yellow dog ate his, I knew he spoke the truth. I have war inside the city too. She told him of the harpy's sons and the brazen beasts, of blood upon the bricks. My enemies are all around me, within the city and without. Attack, he said at once. A man surrounded by foes cannot defend himself. Try, and the axe will take you in the back whilst you are parrying the sword. No, when faced with many enemies, choose the weakest, kill him, ride over him, and escape. Where should I escape to? Into my bed, into my arms, into my heart. The hilts of Dario's arrack and stiletto were wrought in the shape of golden women, naked and wanton. He brushed his thumbs across them in a way that was remarkably obscene, and smiled a wicked smile. Danny felt blood rushing to her face. It was almost as if he were caressing her. Would he think me wanton too if I pulled him into bed? He made her want to be his wanton. I should never see him alone. He's too dangerous to have near me. The green grace says that I must take a Giscari king, she said, flustered. She urges me to wed the noble Hizda Zoloric. That one, Dario chuckled. Why not Grey Worm, if you want a eunuch in your bed? Do you want a king? I want you. I want peace. I gave his daughter ninety days to end the killings. If he does, I will take him for a husband. Take me for your husband. I will do it in nine. You know, I cannot do that, she almost said. You are fighting shadows when you should be fighting the men who cast them, Dario went on. Kill them all and take their treasures, I say. 
whisper the command, and your Dario will make your pile of their heads taller than this pyramid. If I knew who they were, Zack and Paul and Merrick, them and all the rest, the great masters, who else would it be? He is as bold as he is bloody. We have no proof this is their work. Would you have me slaughter my own subjects? Your own subjects will gladly slaughter you. He had been so long away, Danny had almost forgotten what he was. Cell swords were treacherous by nature, she reminded herself. Fickle, faithless, brutal, he will never be more than he is. He will never be the stuff of kings. The pyramids are strong, she explained to him. We could take them only at great cost. The moment we attack one, the others will rise against us. Then winkle them out of the pyramids on some pretext. A wedding might serve. Why not? Promise your hand to his door, and all the great masters will come to see you married. When they gather in the Temple of the Graces, turn us loose upon them. Danny was appalled. He is a monster, a gallant monster, but a monster still. Did you take me for the Butcher King? Better the butcher than the meat. All kings are butchers. Are queens so different? This queen is... Dario shrugged. Most queens have no purpose but to warm some king's bed and pop out sons for him. If that's the sort of queen you mean to be, best marry his doll. Her anger flashed. Have you forgotten who I am? No. Have you? Viserys would have his head off for that insolence. I am the blood of the dragon. Do not presume to teach me lessons. When Danny stood, the lion pelt slipped from her shoulders and tumbled to the ground. Leave me. Dario gave her a sweeping bow. I live to obey. When he was gone, Daenerys called Sir Barristan back. I want the storm crows back in the field. Your grace, they have only now returned. I want them gone. Let them scout the Yunkish hinterlands and give protection to any caravans coming over the Kaisai Pass. Henceforth, Dario shall make his reports to you. Give him every honor that is due to him, and see that his men are well paid. But on no account admit him to my presence. As you say, Your Grace. That night she could not sleep but turned and twisted restlessly in her bed. She even went so far as to summon Iri, hoping her caresses might help ease her way to rest. But after a short while she pushed the Dothraki girl away. Iri was sweet and soft and willing, but she was not Dario. What have I done, she thought, huddled in her empty bed. I have waited so long for him to come back, and I sent him away. He would make a monster of me, she whispered, a butcher queen. But then she thought of Drogon far away and the dragons in the pit. There is blood on my hands, too, and on my heart. We are not so different, Dario and I. We are both monsters. The Lost Lord 
It should not have taken this long, Drift told himself as he paced the deck of the shy maid. Had they lost Holden as they had Tyrion Lannister? Could the Volantines have taken him? I should have sent Dockville with him. Holden alone could not be trusted. He had proved that in Sel Horis when he let the dwarf escape. The shy maid was tied up in one of the meaner sections of the long, chaotic riverfront, between a listing pole boat that had not left the pier in years and the gaily painted Mummer's Barge. The Mummers were a loud and lively lot, always quoting speeches at each other, and drunk more off than not. The day was hot and sticky, as all the days had been since they left the sorrows. A ferocious southern sun beat down upon the crowded riverfront of volunteers, but heat was the last and least of Griff's concerns. The Golden Company was encamped three miles south of town, well north of where he had expected them, and Triarch Malaquo had come north with five thousand foot and a thousand horse to cut them off from the Delta Road. Daenerys Targaryen remained a world away, and Tyrion Lannister, well, he could be most anywhere. If the guards were good, Lannister's severed head was halfway back to King's Landing by now, but more like the dwarf was hale and whole and somewhere close, stinking drunk and plotting some new infamy. "'Where in the seven hells is Alden?' Griff complained to Lady Lamore. "'How long should it take to buy three horses?' she shrugged. "'My lord, wouldn't it be safer to leave the boy here aboard the boat?' "'Safer, yes. Wiser, no. He is a man-grown now, and this is the road that he was born to walk.' Griff had no patience for this, quibbling. He was sick of hiding, sick of waiting, sick of caution. "'I do not have time enough for caution.' "'We have gone to great lengths to keep Prince Aegon hidden all these years,' Lamore reminded him. "'The time will come for him to wash his hair and declare himself. "'I know, but that time is not now. "'Not to a camp of sellswords. "'If Harry Strickland means him ill, hiding on the shy maid will not protect him. "'Strickland has ten thousand swords at his command. "'We have Doc.' Egan is all that could be wanted in a prince. They need to see that, Strickland and the rest. These are his own men. His because they're bought and paid for. Ten thousand armed strangers plus hangers-on and camp followers. All it takes is one to bring us all to ruin. If Hugo's head was worth a lord's honours, how much will Cersei Lannister pay for the rightful heir to the Iron Throne? "'You do not know these men, my lord. "'It has been a dozen years since you last rode with the Golden Company, "'and your old friend is dead.' "'Blackheart.' "'Marstwine had been so full of life the last time Griff had left him. "'It was hard to accept that he was gone. "'A golden skull atop a pole, "'and homeless Harry Strickland in his place.' Limor was not wrong, he knew. Whatever their sires or their grandsires might have been back in Westeros before their exile, the men of the Golden Company were sellswords now, and no sellsword could be trusted. Even so. Last night he dreamt of Stony Septian, 
Alone with sword in hand, he ran from house to house, smashing down doors, racing upstairs, leaping from roof to roof as his ears rang to the sound of distant bells. Deep bronze booms and silver chiming pounded through his skull, a maddening cacophony of noise that grew ever louder until it seemed as if his head would explode. Seventeen years had come and gone since the Battle of the Bells, yet the sound of bells ringing still tied a knot in his guts. Others might claim that the realm was lost when Prince Rhaegar fell to Robert's warhammer on the Trident. But the Battle of the Trident would never have been fought if the Griffin had only slain the stag there in Stony Sept. The bells told for all of us that day, for Ares and his queen, for Elia of Dorne and her little daughter, for every true man and honest woman in the Seven Kingdoms, and for my silver prince. The plan was to reveal Prince Aegon only when we reached Queen Daenerys, Lamore was saying. That was when we believed the girl was coming west. Our dragon queen has burned that plan to ash, and thanks to that fat fool in Pentos, we have grasped the she-dragon by the tail and burned our fingers to the bone. Illyrio could not have been expected to know that the girl would choose to remain a slave as bay. No more than he knew that the beggar king would die young, or that Khal Drogo would follow him into the grave. Very little of what the fat man has anticipated has come to pass. Griff slapped the hilt of his longsword with a gloved hand. I've danced to the fat man's pipes for years or more. What has it availed us? The prince is a man grown. His time is... Griff! Yandri called loudly above the clanging of the mummer's bell. It's olden. So it was. The half-maester looked hot and bedraggled as he made his way along the waterfront to the foot of the pier. Sweat had left dark rings beneath the arms of his light linen robes, and he had the same sour look on his long face as at Salori's when he returned to the shy maid to confess that the dwarf was gone. He was leading three horses, however, and that was all that mattered. "'Bring the boy,' Griff told Lamore. "'See that he's ready.' "'As you say,' she answered unhappily. "'So be it.' He'd grown fond of Lamore, but that did not mean he required her approval. Her task had been to instruct the prince in the doctrines of the faith, and she had done that. No amount of prayer would put him on the iron throne, however. That was Griff's task. He had failed Prince Rhaegar once. He would not fail his son, not whilst life remained in his body. Holden's horses did not please him. Were these the best that you could find? he complained to the half-maester. They were, said Holden, in an irritated tone, and you had best not ask what they cost us. With Dothraki across the river, half the populace of volunteers has decided they would sooner be elsewhere, so horse-flesh grows more expensive every day. I should have gone myself. After Selhoris, he had found it difficult to put the same trust in Holden as previously. He let the dwarf beguile him with that glib tongue of his, 
let him wander off into a whorehouse alone, while he lingered like a moon-calf in the square. The brothel-keeper had insisted that the little man had been carried off at sword-point, but Griff was still not sure he believed that. The imp was clever enough to have conspired in his own escape. This drunken captor that the whore spoke of could have been some henchman in his hire. I share the blame. After the dwarf put himself between Aegon and the stone man, I let down my guard. I should have slit his throat the first time I laid eyes on him. They will do well enough, I suppose, he told Alden. The camp is only three miles south. The shy maid would have gotten them there more quickly, but he preferred to keep Harry Strickland ignorant of where he and the prince had been. Nor did he relish the prospect of splashing through the shallows to climb some muddy riverbank. That sort of entrance might serve for a sellsword and his son, but not for a great lord and his prince. When the lad emerged from the cabin with Lamore by his side, Griff looked him over carefully from head to heel. The prince wore sword and dagger, black boots polished to a high sheen, a black cloak lined with blood-red silk. With his hair washed and cut and freshly dyed a deep dark blue, his eyes looked blue as well. At his throat he wore three huge square-cut rubies on a chain of black iron, a gift for Magister Illyrio. Red and black dragon colours, that was good. You look a proper prince, he told the boy. Your father would be proud if he could see you. Young Griff ran his fingers through his hair. I am sick of this blue dye. We should have washed it out. Soon enough. Griff would be glad to go back to his own true colours too, though his once red hair had gone to grey. He clapped the lad on the shoulder. Shall we go? Your army awaits your coming. I like the sound of that. My army? A smile flashed across his face, then vanished. Are they, though? They're cell swords. Yolo warned me to trust no one. There is wisdom in that, Griff admitted. It might have been different if Blackheart still commanded. But Miles Toyne was four years dead, and homeless Harry Strickland was a different sort of man. He would not say that to the boy, however. That dwarf had already planted enough doubts in his young head. Not every man is what he seems, and a prince especially has good cause to be weary. But go too far down that road, and the mistrust can poison you, make you sour and fearful. King Ares was one such. By the end, even Rhaegar saw that plain enough. You would do best to walk a middle course. Let men earn your trust with leal service, but when they do, be generous and open-hearted. The boy nodded. I will remember. They gave the prince the best of the three horses, a big grey gelding so pale that he was almost white. Griff and Holden rode beside him on lesser mounts. The road ran south, beneath the high white walls of Volunteerus for a good half-mile. Then they left the town behind, following the winding course of the Rhoyne through willow groves and poppy fields and past a tall wooden windmill, whose blades creaked like old bones as they turned.
They found the Golden Company beside the river, as the sun was lowering in the west. It was a camp that even Arthur Dane might have approved of, compact, orderly, defensible. A deep ditch had been dug around it, with sharp mistakes inside. The tents stood in rows with broad avenues between them. The latrines had been placed beside the river, so the current could wash away the wastes. The horse lions were to the north, and beyond them two dozen elephants grazed beside the water, pulling up reeds with their trunks. Griff glanced at the great grey beasts with approval. There is not a war horse in all of Westeros that will stand against them. Tall battle standards of cloth of gold flapped atop lofty poles along the perimeters of the camp. Beneath them, armed and armored sentries walked their rounds with spears and crossbows, watching every approach. Griff had feared that the company might have grown lax under Harry Strickland, who had always seemed more concerned with making friends than enforcing discipline, but it would seem his worries had been misplaced. At the gate, Halden said something to the sergeant of guards, and a runner was sent off to find a captain. When he turned up, he was just as ugly as the last time Griff laid eyes on him. A big-bellied, shambling hulk of a man. The cell-sword had a seamed face, crisscrossed with old scars. His right ear looked as if a dog had chewed on it, and his left was missing. "'Have they made you a captain, Flowers?' Griff said. "'I thought the Golden Company had standards.' "'It's worse than that, you bugger.' said Franklin Flowers. They knighted me as well. He clasped Griff by the forearm, pulled him into a bone-crushing hug. You look awful, even for a man's been dead a dozen years. Blue hair, is it? When Harry said you'd be turning up, I almost shit myself. And Alden, you icy cunt. Good to see you too. Still have that stick up your ass? He turned to young Griff. And this would be, um... My squire, lad... This is Franklin Flowers. The prince acknowledged him with a nod. Flowers is a bastard name. You're from the rich. Aye, my mother was a washerwoman at Cider Hall till one of my lord's sons raped her. Makes me a sort of brown apple fuss away, the way I see it. Flowers waved them through the gate. Come with me. Strickland's called all the officers to his tent. War council. The bloody Valentines are rattling their spears and demanding to know our intentions. The men of the Golden Company were outside their tents, dicing, drinking, and swatting away flies. Griff wondered how many of them knew who he was. Few enough. Twelve years is a long time. Even the men who'd ridden with him might not recognize the exile Lord Connington of the fiery red beard in the lined, clean-shaven face and dyed blue hair of the cell-sword Griff. So far as most of them were concerned, Cunnington had drunk himself to death in lice, after being driven from the company in disgrace for stealing from the war-chest. The shame of the lies still stuck in his crawl, but Varys had insisted it was necessary. "'We want no songs about the gallant exile,' the eunuch had tittered in that mincing voice of his. Those who die heroic deaths are long remembered, thieves and drunks and cravens soon forgotten.
What does a eunuch know of a man's honor? Griff had gone along with a spider scheme for the boy's sake, but that did not mean he liked it any better. Let me live long enough to see the boy sit the iron throne, and Varys will pay for that slight, and so much more. Then we'll see who's soon forgotten. The Captain General's tent was made of cloth of gold and surrounded by a ring of pikes, topped with gilded skulls. One skull was larger than the rest, grotesquely malformed. Below it was a second, no larger than a child's fist. Melis, the monstrous, and his nameless brother. The other skulls had a sameness to them, though several had been cracked and splintered by the blows that had slain them, and one had filed, pointed teeth. Which one is Miles? Griff found himself asking. There, on the end. Flowers pointed. Wait! I'll go announce you. He slipped inside the tent, leaving Griff to contemplate the gilded skull of his old friend. In life, Sir Miles Toyne had been ugly as sin. His famous forebear, the dark and dashing Terence Toyne, of whom the singers sang, had been so fair a face that even the king's mistress could not resist him. But Miles had been possessed of jug ears, a crooked jaw, and the biggest nose that John Cunnington had ever seen. When he smiled at you, though, none of that mattered. Blackheart, his men had named him, for the sigil on his shield. Miles had loved the name and all it hinted at. A captain general should be feared by friend and foe alike, he had once confessed. If men think me cruel, so much the better. The truth was otherwise. Soldiers of the bone, Toyne was fierce but always fair, a father to his men and always generous to the exiled Lord John Connington. Death had robbed him of his ears, his nose, and all his warmth. The smile remained, transformed into a glittering golden grin. All the skulls were grinning, even bitter steels on the tall pike in the center. What does he have to grin about? He died defeated and alone, a broken man in an alien land. On his deathbed, Sir Agor Rivers had famously commanded his men to boil the flesh from his skull, dip it in gold, and carry it before them when they crossed the sea to retake Westeros. His successors had followed his example. John Cunnington might have been one of those successors if his exile had gone otherwise. He had spent five years with the company, rising from the ranks to a place of honour at Toyne's right hand. Had he stayed, it might well have been him the men turned to after Miles died, instead of Harry Strickland. But Griff did not regret the path he'd chosen. When I return to Westeros, it will not be as a skull atop a pole. Flower stepped out the tent. Go on in. The high officers of the Golden Company rose from stools and camp chairs as they entered. Old friends greeted Griff with smiles and embraces, the new men more formally. Not all of them were as glad to see us as they would have me believe. He sensed knives behind some of the smiles, until quite recently most of them had believed that Lord John Connington was safely in his grave, and no doubt many felt that was a fine place for him a man who would steal from his brothers-in-arms. Griff might have felt the same way, 
in their place. Sir Franklin did the introductions. Some of the sail-sword captains bore bastard names, as Flowers did. Rivers, Hill, Stone. Others claimed names that had once loomed large in the histories of the Seven Kingdoms. Griff counted two strongs, three peaks, a mud, a mandrake, a lowston, a pair of coals. Not all were genuine, he knew. In the free companies, a man could call himself whatever he chose. By any name, the sellswords displayed a rude splendor. Like many in their trade, they kept their worldly wealth upon their person, jewel swords, inlaid armor, heavy talks, and fine silks were much in evidence, and every man there wore a lord's ransom in golden armrings. Each ring signified one year's service with the golden company. Mark Mandrake, whose puck-scarred face had a hole in one cheek where a slave's mark had been burned away, wore a chain of golden skulls as well. Not every captain was of West Rossi blood. Black Ballock, a white-haired summer islander with skin dark as soot, commanded the company's archers, as in Blackheart's day. He wore a feathered cloak of green and orange, magnificent to behold. The cadaverous volantine, Goris Edorian, had replaced Strickland as paymaster. A leopard skin was draped across one shoulder, and hair as red as blood tumbled to his shoulders in oiled ringlets, though his pointed beard was black. The spymaster was new to Griff, a Lyceni named Lysino Mauer, with lilac eyes and white gold hair and lips that would have been the envy of a whore. At first glance, Griff had almost taken him for a woman. His fingernails were painted purple, and his earlobes dripped with pearls and amethysts. Ghosts and liars, Griff thought, as he surveyed their faces. Revenants from forgotten wars, lost causes, failed rebellions, a brotherhood of the failed and the fallen, the disgraced and disinherited. This is my army. This is our best hope. He turned to Harry Strickland. Homeless Harry looked little like a warrior, portly, with a big round head, mild grey eyes, and thinning hair that he brushed sideways to conceal a bald spot. Strickland sat in a camp chair, soaking his feet in a tub of salt water. "'You will pardon me if I do not rise,' he said, by way of greeting. "'Our march was wearisome, and my toes are prone to blisters. It's a curse.' "'It is a mark of weakness.' You sound like an old woman. The Stricklands had been part of the Golden Company since its founding. Harry's great-grandsire, having lost his lands when he rose, with a black dragon during the first Blackfire Rebellion. Gold for four generations, Harry would boast, as if four generations of exile and defeat were something to take pride in. I can make you an ointment for that, said Holden, and there are certain mineral salts that will toughen your skin. That is kind of you, Strickland beckoned to his squire. Watkin, wine for our friends. Thank you, but no, said Griff. We will drink water. As you prefer, the Captain General smiled up at the Prince. And this must be your son. Does he know, Griff wondered, how much did Miles tell him? Varys had been adamant about the need for secrecy. The plans that he and Illyrio 
had made with Blackheart had been known to them alone. The rest of the company had been left ignorant. What they did not know, they could not let slip. That time was done, though. No man could have asked for a worthier son, Griff said, but the lad is not of my blood, and his name is not Griff. My lords, I give you Aegon Targaryen, first-born son of Rhaegar, prince of Dragonstone, by Princess Elia of Dawn, soon, with your help, to be Aegon, the sixth of his name, king of Andals, the Rhoynar and the first men, and lord of the seven kingdoms. Silence greeted his announcement. Someone cleared his throat. One of the coals refilled his wine cup from the flagon. Goris Edorian played with one of his corkscrew ringlets and murmured something in a tongue grifted up now. Laswell Peak coughed. Mandrake and Lowston exchanged a glance. They know, Griff realized then. They have known all along. He turned to look at Harry Strickland. When did you tell them? The Captain General wriggled his blistered toes in his footbath. When we reached the river, the company was restless with good reason. We walked away from an easy campaign in the disputed lands, and for what? So we could swelter in this god-awful heat, watching our coins melt away and our blades go to rust, whilst I turn away rich contracts? That news made Griff's skin crawl. Oh, the Yunkish men. The envoy that they sent to woo Volantis has already dispatched three free companies to Slaver's Bay. He wishes us to be the fourth, and offers twice what Mir was paying us, plus a slave for every man in the company, ten for every officer, and a hundred choice maidens, all for me. Bloody hell! That will require thousands of slaves— where do the Yunkish men expect to find so many? In Meereen, Strickland beckoned to his choir. Watkin, a towel. This water's growing cool, and my toes have wrinkled up like raisins. No, not that towel, the soft one. You refused him, said Griff. I told him I would think on his proposal. Harry winced as his choir toweled his feet. "'Gentle with the toes. Think of them as thin-skinned grapes, lad. You want to dry them without crushing them. Pat, do not scrub. Yeah, that, like that.' He turned back to Griff. "'A blunt refusal would have been unwise. The men might rightly ask if I had taken leave of my wits. "'You will have work for your blade soon enough.' "'Will we?' asked Lysano Mar. "'I assume you know.' That the Targaryen girl has not started for the West. We heard that tale in Solaris. No tale, simple truth. The why of it is harder to grasp. Sack marrying, I, why not? I would have done the same in her place. The slaver cities reek of gold, and conquests require coin. But why linger? Fear? Madness? Sloth? The why of it does not matter. Harry Strickland unrolled a pair of striped woolen stockings. She is in Meering, and we are here where the Valentines grow daily more unhappy with our presence. We came to raise up a king and queen who would lead us home to Westeros, but this Targaryen girl seems more intent on planting olive trees than in reclaiming her father's throne. 
Meanwhile, our foes gather, young Kai, new Gis, Tullis. Bloodbeard and the tattered prince will both be in the field against her, and soon enough the fleets of old Valentis will descend on her as well. What does she have? Bed slaves with sticks. Unsolid, said Griff, and dragons. Dragons, aye, the captain general said, but young ones, hardly more than hatchlings. Strickland eased his sock over his blisters and up his ankle. How much will they avail her when all these armies close about our city like a fist? Tristan Rivers drummed his fingers on his knee. All the more reason that we must reach her quickly, I say. If Daenerys will not come to us, we must go to Daenerys. Can we walk across the wave, sir? asked Lysen Omar. I tell you again, we cannot reach the Silver Queen by sea. I slipped into Valentus myself, posing as a trader, to learn how many ships might be available to us. The harbour teems with galleys, cogs, and carracks of every sort and size. Even so, I soon found myself consorting with smugglers and pirates. We have ten thousand men in the company, as I am sure Lord Connington remembers from his years of service with us. Five hundred knights, each with three horses, five hundred squires with one mount apiece, and elephants. <laughs> we must not forget the elephants. A pirate ship will not suffice. We would need a pirate fleet. And even if we found one, the word has come back from Slaver's Bay that Murrain has been closed off by blockade. We could fail acceptance of the Yunkish offer, urged Gores Adorian. Allow the Yunkai to transport us to the east, then return their gold beneath the walls of Merrin. One broken contract is stain enough upon the honour of the company. Homeless Harry Strickland paused with his blistered foot in hand. Let me remind you, it was Miles Toyne who put his seal to the secret pact, not me. I would honour his agreement if I could, but oh, it seems plain to me that the Targaryen girl is never coming west. Westeros was her father's kingdom. Meereen is hers. If she can break the Yunkai, she'll be Queen of Slaver's Bay. If not, she'll die long before we can hope to reach her. His words came as no surprise to Griff. Harry Strickland had always been a genial man, better at hammering out contracts than at hammering on foes. He had a nose for gold, but whether he had the belly for battle was another question. There is a land route, suggested Franklin Flowers. The demon road is death. We will lose half the company to desertion if we attempt that march, and of those who remain, bury half beside the road. It grieves me to say it, but Magister Illyrio and his friends may have been unwise to put so much hope on this child queen. No, thought Griff but they were most unwise to put their hopes on you. And then Prince Aegon spoke. Then put your hopes on me, he said. Daenerys is Prince Rhaegar's sister, but I am Rhaegar's son. I am the only dragon that you need. Griff put a black-gloved hand upon Prince Aegon's shoulder. Spoken boldly, he said, but think what you're saying. I have, the lad insisted. Why should I go run into my aunt? as if I were a beggar. My claim is better than her own. Let her come to me, in Westeros. 
Franklin Flowers laughed. Oh, I like it. Sail west, not east. Leave the little queen to her olives and seat Prince Aegon upon the Iron Throne. The boy has stones. Give him that. The Captain General looked as if someone had slapped his face. As the sun curdled your brains, Flowers, we need the girl, we need the marriage. If Daenerys accepts our princeling and takes him for her consort, the Seven Kingdoms will do the same. Without her, the lords will only mock his claim and brand him a fraud and a pretender. And how do you propose to get to Westeros? You heard Lysona. There are no ships to be had. This man is afraid to fight, Griff realized. How could they have chosen him to take the Blackheart's place? No ships for Slaver's Bay. Westeros is another matter. The east is close to us, not the sea. The Triarchs will be glad to see the back of us, I do not doubt. They might even help to arrange passage back to the Seven Kingdoms. No city wants an army on its doorstep. He's not wrong, said Lysano Ma. By now the lion surely has the dragon scent, said one of the coals. But Cersei's attentions will be fixed upon Meryn and this other queen. She knows nothing of our prince. Once we land and raise our banners, many and more will flock to join us. Some, allowed homeless Harry, not many. Rhaegar's sister has dragons. Rhaegar's son does not. We do not have the strength to take the realm without Daenerys and her army, her unsullied. The first Aegon took Westeros without eunuchs, said Lysinomar. Why shouldn't the sixth Aegon do the same? The plan, which plan, said Tristan Rivers. The fat man's plan? The one that changes every time the moon turns? First, Viserys Targaryen was to join us with fifty thousand Dothraki screamers at his back. Then the beggar king was dead, and it was to be the sister, a pliable young child queen who was on her way to Pentos with three new hatched dragons. Instead, the girl turns up on Slaver's Bay and leaves a string of burning cities in her wake and the fat man decides we should meet her by Volantis. Now that plan is in ruins as well. I have had enough of Valerio's plans. Robert Baratheon won the Iron Throne without the benefit of dragons. We can do the same. And if I am wrong, and the realm does not rise for us, we can always retreat across the narrow sea, as Bitter Steel once did, and others after him. Strickland shook his head stubbornly. The risk is not what it was now that Tywin Lannister is dead. The Seven Kingdoms will never be more ripe for conquest. Another boy king sits the Iron Throne, this one even younger than the last, and rebels are thick upon the ground as autumn leaves. Even so, said Strickland, alone we cannot hope to— Griff had heard enough of the Captain General's cowardice. We will not be alone. Dawn will join us, must join us. Prince Aegon is Ilya's son, as well as Rhaegar's. That's so, the boy said. And who is there left in Westeros to oppose us? A woman. A Lannister woman, insisted the Captain General. The bitch will have the Kingslayer at her side. Count on that. And they will have all the wealth of Castle Rock behind them. 
And Illyrio says this boy king is betrothed to the Tyrol girl, which means we must face the power of High Garden as well. Leswell Peak wrapped his knuckles on the table. Even after a century, some of us still have friends in the Reach. The power of High Garden may not be what Mace Tyrell imagines. Uh, Prince Egan, said Tristan Rivers, we are your men. Is this your wish that we sail west instead of east? It is, Egan replied eagerly. If my aunt wants Mary in, she is welcome to it. I will claim the Iron Throne by myself. With your swords and your allegiance, move fast and strike hard, and we can win some easy victories before the Lannisters even know that we have landed. That will bring others to our cause. Rivers was smiling in approval. Others traded thoughtful looks. Then Peake said, I would sooner die in Westeros than on the Demon Road. And Mark Mandrake chuckled and responded, Me? <laughs> I'd sooner live. Windlands and some great castle. And Franklin Flowers slapped his sword hilt and said, So long as I can kill some fussaways, I'm for it. When all of them began to speak at once, Griff knew the tide had turned. This is a side of Aegon I never saw before. It was not the prudent course, but he was tired of prudence, sick of secrets, weary of waiting. Win or lose, he would see Griffin's roost again before he died, and be buried in the tomb beside his father's. One by one, the men of the Golden Company rose, knelt, and laid their swords at the feet of his young prince. The last to do so was homeless Harry Strickland, blistered feet and all. The sun was reddening the western sky and painting scarlet shadows on the golden skulls atop their spears when they took their leave of the Captain General's tent. Franklin Flowers offered to take the prince around the camp and introduce him to some of what he called the lads. Griff gave his consent. But remember, so far as the company is concerned, he must remain young Griff until we cross the narrow sea. In Westeros, we'll wash his hair and let him don his armour. I understood. Flowers clapped a hand on young Griff's back. With me, we'll start with the cooks. Good men to know. When they were gone, Griff turned to the half-master. Ride back to the shy maid and return with Lady Lamore and Sir Rolly. We'll need Illyrio's chests as well, all the coin and all the armour. Give Yandri and Yasilla our thanks. Their part in this is done. They will not be forgotten when his grace comes into his kingdom. As you command, my lord. Griff left him there and slipped inside the tent that homeless Harry had assigned him. The road ahead was full of perils, he knew. But what of it? All men must die. All he asked was time. He had waited so long. Surely the gods would grant him a few more years, enough time to see the boy he'd called a son, seated on the Iron Throne, to reclaim his lands, his name, his honour, to still the bells that rang so loudly in his dreams whenever he closed his eyes to sleep. Alone in the tent, as the golden scarlet rays of the setting sun shone through the open flap, John Cunnington shrugged off his wolfskin cloak, slipped his mail shirt off over his head, settled on the camp stool, 
and peeled the glove from his right hand. The nail on his middle finger had turned as black as jet, he saw, and the grey had crept up almost to the first knuckle. The tip of his ring finger had begun to darken too, and when he touched it with the point of his dagger, he felt nothing. Death, he knew, but slow. I still have time. A year, two years, five. Some stonemen live for ten. Time enough to cross the sea, to see Griffin's roost again, to end the usurper's line for good and all, and put Rhaegar's son upon the iron throne. Then Lord John Connington could die content. The Windblown The word passed through the camp like a hot wind. She is coming. Her host is on the march. She is racing south to Yunkai to put the city to the torch and its people to the sword, and we are going north to meet her. Frog had it from Dick Straw, who had it from Old Bill Bone, who had it from a pentoshi named Miriam Maracus, who had a cousin who served as cupbearer to the tattered prince. Cos heard it in a command tent, from Kago's own lips, Dick Straw insisted. We'll march before the day's out, see if we don't. That march proved true. The command came down from the tattered prince, through his captains and his sergeants. Strike the tents, load the mules, saddle the horses. We march for Yunkai at the break of day. Not that them Yunkish bastards will be wanting us inside their yellow city, sniffing round their daughters, predicted back. The squint-eyed Mirish bowman, whose name meant beans, will get provisions in Yunkai, maybe fresh horses, and then it will be on to Murine to dance with a dragon queen. So hop quick, Frog, and put a nice edge on your master's sword. Might be he'll need it soon. In dawn, Quentin Martell had been a prince, in Volantis a merchant's man, but on the shores of Slaver's Bay he was only Frog, squire to the big bold Dornish knight, the cell swords called Green Guts. The men of the windblown used what names they would and changed them at a whim. They fastened Frog on him because he hopped so fast when the big man shouted a command. Even the commander of the windblown kept his true name to himself. Some free companies had been born during the century of blood and chaos that had followed the doom of Valeria. Others had been formed yesterday and would be gone upon the morrow. The windblown went back thirty years and had but one commander, the soft-spoken, sad-eyed, Pentoshi nobleman, called the Tattered Prince. His hair and mail were silver-gray, but his ragged cloak was made of twists of cloth of many colors, blue and gray and purple, red and gold and green, magenta and vermilion and cerulean, all faded by the sun. When the Tattered Prince was three-and-twenty, as Dick Straw told the story, the magisters of Pentos had chosen him to be their new prince, hours after beheading their old prince. Instead, he'd buckled on a sword, mounted his favorite horse, and fled to the disputed lands, never to return. He had ridden with the second sons, the iron shields, and the maiden's men, then joined with five brothers in arms to form the windblown. 
Of those six founders, only he survived. Frog had no notion whether any of that was true. Since signing into the windblown in Volantis, he had seen the tattered prince only at a distance. The Dornish men were new hands, raw recruits, arrow fodder, three amongst two thousand. Their commander kept more elevated company. I am not a squire, Quentin had protested, when Gareth Drinkwater, known here as Dornish Gerald, to distinguish him from Gerald Redback and Black Gerald, and sometimes as Drink, since the big man had slipped and called him that, suggested the ruse. I earned my spurs in Dorn. I am as much a knight as you are. But Gareth had the right of it. He and Arch were here to protect Quentin, and that meant keeping him by the big man's side. Arch is the best fighter of the three of us, Drinkwater had pointed out, but only you can hope to wed the Dragon Queen. Wed her or fight her either way, I will face her soon. The more Quentin heard of Daenerys Targaryen, the more he feared that meeting. The Yunker claimed that she fed her dragons on human flesh and bathed in the blood of virgins to keep her skin smooth and supple. Beans laughed at that, but relished the tales of the Silver Queen's promiscuity. One of her captains comes of a line where the men have foot-long members, he told them, but even he's not big enough for her. She rode with a Dothraki and grew accustomed to being fucked by stallions, so now no man can fill her. And Books, the clever volunteer swordsman, who always seemed to have his nose poked in some crumbly scroll, thought the Dragon Queen both murderous and mad. Her cow killed her brother to make her queen, then she killed her cow to make herself Callisti. She practices blood sacrifice, lies as easily as she breathes, turns against her own on a whim. She's broken truces, tortured envoys. Her father was mad too, it runs in the blood. It runs in the blood. King Aerys II had been mad. All of Westeros knew that. He had exiled two of his hands and burnt a third. If Daenerys is as murderous as her father, must I still marry her? Prince Doran had never spoken of that possibility. Frog would be glad to put Astabor behind him. The Red City was the closest thing to hell he ever hoped to know. The Yunkai had sealed the broken gates to keep the dead and dying inside the city, but the sights that he had seen riding down those red brick streets would haunt Quentin Martell forever. A river choked with corpses, the priestess in her torn robes impaled upon a stake and attended by a cloud of glistening green flies. Dying men staggering through the streets, bloody and befouled, children fighting over half-cooked puppies, the last free king of Astapor screaming naked in the pit as he was set upon by a score of starving dogs, and fires, fires everywhere. He could close his eyes and see them still, flames whirling from brick pyramids larger than any castle he'd ever seen, plumes of greasy smoke coiling upward like great black snakes. When the wind blew from the south, the air smelled of smoke even here, three miles from the city. Behind its crumbling red brick walls, Astapor was still a smolder. 
though by now most of the great fires had burned out. Ashes floated lazy on the breeze like fat grey snowflakes. It would be good to go. The big man agreed. Past time, he said, when Frog found him dicing with beans and books and old Bill Bone, and losing yet again. The cell swords love green guts, who bet as fearlessly as he fought, but with far less success. I want my armor, Frog. Did you scrub that blood off my mail? Aye, sir. Green Guts's mail was old and heavy, patched and patched again, much worn. The same was true of his helm, his gorget, greaves, and gauntlets, and the rest of his mismatched plate. Frog's kit was only slightly better, and Sir Geras's was notably worse. Company Steel, the armorer had called it. Quentin had not asked how many other men had worn it before him, how many men had died in it. They had abandoned their own fine armor in Valentus, along with their gold and their true names. Wealthy knights from houses old in honor did not cross the narrow sea to sell their swords, unless exiled for some infamy. I'd sooner pose as poor than evil, Quentin had declared, when Garrus had explained his ruse to them. It took the windblown less than an hour to strike their camp. And now we ride, the tattered prince proclaimed from his huge grey war-horse, in a classic high valerian that was the closest thing they had to a company tongue. His stallion-spotted hindquarters were covered with ragged strips of cloth torn from the surcoats of men his master had slain. The prince's cloak was sewn together for more of the same. An old man he was, past sixty, yet he still sat straight and tall in the high saddle, and his voice was strong enough to carry to every corner of the field. Master Paul, was but a taste, he said. Mirin will be the feast, and the cell swords sent up a wild cheer. Streamers of pale blue silk fluttered from their lances, whilst fork-tailed blue and white banners flew overhead the standards of the wind-blown. The three Dornish men cheered with all the rest. Silence would have drawn notice. But as the wind-blown rode north along the coast road, close behind Bloodbeard and the company of the cat, Frog fell in beside Dornish Gerald. Soon, he said, in the common tongue of Westeros, there were other Westerosi in the company, but not many and not near. We need to do it soon. Not here, warned Garrus with a mummer's empty smile. We'll speak of this tonight, when we make camp. It was a hundred leagues from Astabor to Yonkai, by the old Gascari coast road, and another fifty from Yonkai to Mirin. The free companies, well mounted, could reach Yonkai in six days, of hard riding, or eight at a more leisurely pace. The legions from Olgus would take half again as long, marching afoot, and the Yunkai and their slave soldiers, with their generals, it's a wonder they don't march into the sea, Bean said. The Yunkai did not lack for commanders. An old hero named Yerkazo Yansak had the supreme command, though the men of the windblown glimpsed him only at a distance, coming and going in a palanquin so huge it required forty slaves to carry it. They could not help but see his underlings, however. 
The youngish lordlings scuttled everywhere, like roaches. Half them seemed to be named Gazdan, Grazdan, Mazdan, or Gaznak. Telling one Gaskari name from another was an art few of the windblown had mastered, so they gave them mocking styles of their own devising. Foremost amongst them was the Yellow Whale, an obscenely fat man who always wore yellow silk tokars with golden fringes. Too heavy even to stand unassisted, he could not hold his water, so he always smelled of piss, a stench so sharp that even heavy perfumes could not conceal it. But he was said to be the richest man in Yonkai, and he had a passion for grotesques. His slaves included a boy with the legs and hooves of a goat, a bearded woman, a two-headed monster for Mantarius, and a hermaphrodite who warmed his bed at night. Cock and Connie both, Dick Straw told them. The whale used to own a giant, too, liked to watch him fuck his slave girls. Then he died. I hear the whale and give a sack of gold for a new one. Then there was the girl general, who rode about on a white horse with a red mane and commanded a hundred strapping slave soldiers that she had bred and trained herself, all of them young, lean, rippling with muscle, and naked but for breech clouts, yellow cloaks, and long bronze shields with erotic inlays. Their mistress could not have been more than sixteen, and fancied herself Yankai's own Daenerys Targaryen. The little pigeon was not quite a dwarf, but he might have passed for one in a bad light. Yet he strutted about as if he were a giant, with his plump little legs spread wide and his plump little chest puffed out. His soldiers were the tallest that any of the wind-blown had ever seen. The shortest stood seven feet tall, the tallest close to eight. All were long-faced and long-legged, and the stilts built into the legs of their ornate armor made them longer still. Pink enamel scales covered their torsos. On their heads were perched elongated helms, complete with pointed steel beaks and crests of bobbing pink feathers. Each man wore a long curved sword upon his hip, and each clasped a spear as tall as he was, with a leaf-shaped blade at either end. The little pigeon breeds them, Dick Straw informed them. He buys tall slaves from all over the world, mates the men to the women, and keeps the tallest offspring for the errands. One day he hopes to be able to dispense with the stilts. A few sessions on the wreck might speed along the process, suggested the big man. Gareth's drinkwater laughed. A fearsome lot. <laughs> Nothing scares me worse than stilt walkers in pink scales and feathers. If one was after me, I'd laugh so hard my bladder might let go. Some say that errands are majestic, said old Bill Bone. If your king eats frogs while standing on one leg, errands are craven, the big man put in. One time me and Drink and Cletus were hunting, and we came on these errands wading in the shallows, feasting on tadpoles and small fish. They made a pretty sight, aye, but then a hawk passed overhead, and they all took to the wing, like they'd seen a dragon. Kicked up so much wind, it blew me off me horse, but Cletus knocked an arrow to his string and brought one down. 
tasted like duck, but not so greasy. Even the little pigeon and his herons, pale beside the folly of the brothers the sellswords, called the clanker lords. The last time the slave soldiers of Yonkai had faced the dragon queens unsolid, they'd broken and run. The clanker lords had devised a stratagem to prevent that. They chained their troops together in groups of ten, wrist to wrist and ankle to ankle. None of the poor bastards can run unless they all run, Dick Straw explained, laughing. And if they do all run, <laughs> they won't run very fast. They don't fucking march very fast either, observed Beans. You can hear them clanking ten leagues off. There were more, near as mad or worse. Lord Wobblecheeks, the drunken conqueror, the beastmaster, Pudding Face, the rabbit, the charioteer, the perfumed hero. Some had twenty soldiers, some two hundred, or two thousand, all slaves. They had trained and equipped themselves. Everyone was wealthy, everyone was arrogant, and everyone was a captain and commander. Answerable to no one but Yerkes Zoyansek, disdainful of mere sellswords, and prone to squabbles over precedents that were as endless as they were incomprehensible. In the time it took the windblown to ride three miles, the Yonkai had fallen two and a half miles behind. A pack of stinking yellow fools, Beans complained. They still ain't managed to puzzle out why the stone crows and the second stones went over to the Dragon Queen. For gold, they believe, said Books. Why do you think they're paying us so well? Gold is sweet, but life is sweeter, said Beans. We were dancing with cripples at Astapor. Do you want to face real unsolid with that lot on your side? We fought the unsolid at Astapor, the big man said. I said real on solid, hacking off some boy's stones with a butcher's cleaver and handing him a pointy hat. Don't make him on solid. That dragon queen's got the real item, the kind that don't break and run when you fart in their general direction. Them and dragons too. Dick Straw glanced up at the sky, as if he thought the mere mention of dragons might be enough to bring them down upon the company. Keep your sword sharp, boys. We'll have us a real fight soon. A real fight, thought Frog. The words stuck in his craw. The fight beneath the walls of Astapor had seemed real enough to him, though he knew the sellswords felt otherwise. That was butchery, not battle. The warrior bard Denzo Dan had been heard to declare afterwards. Denzo was a captain and veteran of a hundred battles. Frog's experience was limited to practice yard and tawny ground, so he did not think it was his place to dispute the verdict of such a seasoned warrior. It seemed like a battle when it first began, though. He remembered how his gut had clenched when he was kicked awake at dawn with a big man looming over him. "'Eat your armor, slug a bit,' he boomed. "'The butcher's coming out to give us battle.' Up, unless you meet a beast, meat. The butcher king is dead, Frog had protested sleepily. That was a story all of them had heard as they scrambled from the ships that had brought them from old Volantis. A second King Cleon 
had taken the crown and died in turn, supposedly, and now the Astapori were ruled by a whore and a mad barber whose followers were fighting with each other to control the city. Maybe they lied, the big man had replied, or else this is some other butcher. Might be the first one to come back screaming from his tomb to kill some youngish men. Makes no bloody matter, Frog. Get your armor on. The tent slept ten, and all of them had been on their feet by then, wriggling into breeches and boots, sliding long coats of ringmail down onto their shoulders, buckling breastplates, tightening the straps on greaves or van braces, grabbing for helms and shields and sword belts. Garris, quick as ever, was the first one fully clad, arch close behind him. Together they helped Quentin don his own harness. Three hundred yards away, Astapor's new unsolid had been pouring through their gates and forming up in ranks beneath their city's crumbling red-brick walls, dawn-like glinting off their spiked bronze helmets and the points of their long spears. The three Dornishmen spilled from the tent together to join the fighters sprinting for the horse lines. Battle! Quentin had trained with spear and sword and shield since he was old enough to walk, but that meant nothing now. Warrior, make me brave, Frog had prayed, as drums beat in the distance. Boom, 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 boom. The big man pointed out the butcher king to him, sitting stiff and tall, upon an armored horse in a suit of copper scale that flashed brilliantly in the morning sun. He remembered Garrus sidling up close just before the fight began. Stay close to watch, whatever happens. Remember, you are the only one of us who can get the girl. By then, the Astapori were advancing. Dead or alive, the Butcher King still took the wise masters unawares. The youngish men were still running about in fluttering tokars, trying to get their half-trained slave soldiers into some semblance of order, as unsolid spears came crashing through their siege lines. If not for their allies and their despised hirelings, they might well have been overwhelmed. But the windblown and the company of the cat were a horse in minutes, and came thundering down on the Astapori flanks, even as a legion from New Gis pushed through the Yunkish camp from the other side, and met the unsolid spear to spear and shield to shield. The rest was butchery, but this time it was the butcher king on the wrong end of the cleaver. Kago was the one who finally cut him down, fighting through the king's protectors on his monstrous war-horse and opening Cleon the Great from shoulder to hip with one blow of his curved Valerian arach. Frog did not see it, but those who did claimed Cleon's copper armor rent like silk, and from within came an awful stench and a hundred wriggling grave-worms. Cleon had been dead after all. The desperate Astapori had pulled him from his tomb, clapped him into armor, and tied him onto a horse in hopes of giving heart to their unsolid. Dead Cleon's fall wrote an end to that. The new unsolid threw down their spears and shields and ran, only to find the gates of Astapor shut behind them. Frog had done his part in the slaughter that followed, riding down the frightened eunuchs 
with the other windblown. Hard by the big man's hip he rode, slashing right and left as their wedge went through the unsolid like a spear point. When they burst through on the other side, the tattered prince had wheeled them round and led them through again. It was only coming back that Frog got a good look at the faces beneath the spiked bronze caps and realized that most were no older than he. Green boys screaming for their mothers, he thought, but he killed them all the same. By the time he'd left the field, his sword was running red with blood and his arm was so tired he could hardly lift it. Yet that was no real fight, he thought. The real fight will be on us soon, and we must be away before it comes, or we'll find ourselves fighting on the wrong side. That night the windblown made camp beside the shore of Slaver's Bay. Frog drew the first watch and was sent to guard the horse lines. Garrus met him there just after sundown, as a half-moon shone upon the waters. "'The big man should be here as well,' said Quentin. "'He's going to look up old Bill Bone and lose the rest of his silver,' Jerris said. "'Leave him out of this. He'll do as we say, though he won't like it much.' "'No. There was much and more about this Quentin did not like himself. "'Sailing on an overcrowded ship, tossed by wind and sea, eating hard bread, crawling with weevils, and drinking black tar rum to sweet oblivion, sleeping on piles of mouldy straw with a stench of strangers in his nostrils. All that he had expected when he made his mark on that scrap of parchment in Volantis, pledging the tattered prince his sword and service for a year. Those were hardships to be endured, the stuff of all adventures. But what must come next was plain betrayal. The Yunkai had brought them from old Volantis to fight for the Yellow City, but now the Dornishmen meant to turn their cloaks and go over to the other side. That meant abandoning their new brothers-in-arms as well. The windblown were not the sort of companions Quentin would have chosen, but he had crossed the sea with them, shared their meat and mead, fought beside them, traded tales with those few whose talk he understood. And of all his tales were lies... Well, that was a cost of passage to Murrin. It is not what you call honourable, Garris had warned them back at the merchant's house. Daenerys may be halfway to Yonkai by now, with an army at her back, Quentin said as they walked amongst the horses. She may be, Garris said, but she's not. We've heard such talk before. The Astapori were convinced Daenerys was coming south with her dragons to break the siege. She didn't come then, and she's not coming now. We can't know that, not for certain. We need to steal away before we end up fighting the woman I was sent to woo. Wait till Yunkai, Garris gestured at the hills. These lands belong to the Yunkai. No one is like to want to feed or shelter three deserters. North of Yunkai, that's no man's land. He was not wrong, even so... Quentin felt uneasy. The big man's made too many friends. He knows the plan was always to steal off and make our way to Daenerys, but he's not going to feel good about abandoning men he's fought with. If we wait too long, it's going to feel as if we're deserting them on the eve of battle. He will never do that. You know him as well as I do. 
It's desertion whenever we do it, argued Geras. And the tattered prince takes a dim view of deserters. He'll send hunters after us, and seven savers if they catch us. If we're lucky, they'll just chop off a foot to make sure we never run again. If we're unlucky, they'll give us to pretty Meris. That last gave Quentin pause. Pretty Meris frightened him. A Westerosi woman, but taller than he was, just a thumb under six feet. After twenty years amongst the free companies, there was nothing pretty about her, inside or out. Geras took him by the arm. Wait! A few more days, that's all. We have crossed half the world. Be patient for a few more leagues. Somewhere north of Yankai, our chance will come. If you see, said Frog doubtfully. But for once the guards were listening, and their chance came much sooner than that. It was two days later. Hugh Hungerford reined up by their cook fire and said, Dornish, you're wanted in the command tent. Which one of us? asked Garrus. We're all Dornish. All of you, then. Sar and Saturnine, with a maimed hand, Hungerford had been company paymaster for a time, until the tattered prince had caught him stealing from the coffers and removed three of his fingers. Now he was just a sergeant. What could this be? Up to now, Frog had no notion that their commander knew he was alive. Hungerford had already ridden off, however, so there was no time for questions. All they could do was gather up the big man and report as ordered. Admit to nothing and be prepared to fight, Quinton told his friends. I'm always prepared to fight, said the big man. The great grey sailcloth pavilion that the tattered prince liked to call his canvas castle was crowded when the Dornishman arrived. It took Quentin only a moment to realize that most of those assembled were from the Seven Kingdoms or boasted Westerosi blood. Exiles or the sons of exiles. Dick's tour claimed there were threescore Westerosi in the company. A good third of those were here, including Dick himself, Hugh Hungerford, Pretty Maris, and golden-haired Lewis Leinster, the company's best archer. Denzo Dan was there as well, with Kago huge beside him. Kago corpse killer, the men were calling him now, though not to his face. He was quick to anger, and that cur-black sword of his was as nasty as its owner. There were hundreds of Valerian longswords in the world, but only a handful of Valerian arracs. Neither Kago nor Dan was West Rossi, but both were captains, and stood high in the tattered prince's regard. His right arm and his left. Something major is afoot. It was the tattered prince himself who did the speaking. Orders have come down from Yarkas, he said. What Astoporia still survive have come creeping from their hidey-holes, it seems. There's nothing left in Astapor but corpses. So they're pouring out into the countryside, hundreds of them, maybe thousands, all starved and sick. The Yankai don't want them near their yellow city. We've been commanded to hunt them down and turn them, drive them back to Astapor or north to Murrin. If the Dragon Queen wants to take them in, she's welcome to them. Half of them have the bloody flux, and even the healthy ones are mouths to feed. Yankai is closer than Murrin, 
Hugh Hungerford objected. What if they won't turn, my lord? That's why you have swords and lances, Hugh. Though bows might serve you better. Stay well away from those who show signs of the flux. I'm sending half our strength into the hills. Fifty patrols, twenty riders each. Bloodbeard's got the same orders, so the cats will be in the field as well. A look passed between the men, and a few muttered under their breath. Though the windblown and the company of the cat were both under contract to Yunkai, a year ago in their disputed lands they had been on opposite sides of the battle lines, and bad blood still lingered. Bloodbeard, the savage commander of the cats, was a roaring giant with a ferocious appetite for slaughter, who made no secret of his disdain for old grey beards in rags. Dick Straw cleared his throat, begging your pardon, but we're all seven kingdoms born here. My lord never broke up the company by blood or tongue before. Why send us lot together? A fair question. You're to ride east, deep into the hills, then swing wide about Yonkai, making for Murrien. Should you come on any Astapori, drive them north or kill them. But no, that is not the purpose of your mission. Beyond the Yellow City, you're like to come up against the Dragon Queen's patrols. Second sons or storm crows. Either will serve. Go over to them. Go over to them, said the bastard knight, Sir Orson Stone. You'd have us turn our cloaks. I would, said the tattered prince. Quentin Martell almost laughed aloud. Ah, the gods are mad. The Westerussi shifted uneasily. Some stared into their wine cups, as if they hoped to find some wisdom there. Hugh Hungerford frowned. You think Queen Daenerys will take us in? I do. But if she does, what then? Are we spies, assassins, envoys? Are you thinking to change sides? Kago scowled. That is for the prince to decide, Hungerford. Your part is to do as you're told. Always. Hungerford raised his two-fingered hand. Let us be frank said Denzodan, the warrior bard. The Yankai do not inspire confidence. Whatever the outcome of this war, the windblown should share in the spoils of victory. Our prince is wise to keep all roads open. Meris will command you, said the tattered prince. She knows my mind in this, and Daenerys Targaryen may be more accepting of another woman. Quentin glanced back to pretty Maris, when her cold, dead eyes met his, he felt a shiver. I do not like this. Dick Straw still had doubts as well. The girl would be a fool to trust us, even with Meris. Especially with Meris. Hell, I don't trust Meris, and I've fucked her a few times. He grinned, but no one laughed. Least of all, pretty Meris. I think you are mistaken, Dick, the tattered prince said. You are all West Rossier. Friends from home. You speak her tongue, worship her gods. As for motive, all of you have suffered wrongs at my hands. Dick, I've whipped you more than any man in the company, and you have the back to prove it. Hugh lost three fingers to my discipline. Meris was raped half round the company. Not this company, true, but we need not mention that. 
Will of the woods? Well, <laughs> you're just filth. Sir Orson blames me for dispatching his brother to the sorrows, and Sir Lucifer is still seething about that slave girl Kago took from him. He could have given her back when he'd had her, Lucifer long complained. He had no cause to kill her. She was ugly, said Kago. That's cause enough. The tattered prince went on as if no one had spoken. Weber, you nurse claims to lands lost in Westeros. Lanster, I killed that boy you were so fond of. You Dornish three, you think we lied to you. The plunder from Astapor was much less than you were promised in Volantis, and I took the lion's share of it. The last part is true, Sir Orson said. The best ruses always have some seed of truth, said the tattered prince. Every one of you has ample reason for wanting to abandon me, and the nearest Targaryen knows that sellswords are a fickle lot. Her own second sons and stormcrows took yunkish gold, but did not hesitate to join her when the tide of battle began to flow her way. When should we leave? asked Lewis Lanster. At once. Be wary of the cats and any long lances you may encounter. No one will know your defection is a ruse, but those of us in this tent. Turn your tiles too soon, and you will be maimed as deserters or disemboweled as turncloaks. The three Dornishmen were silent as they left the command tent. Twenty riders, all speaking the common tongue, thought Quentin. Whispering has just gotten a deal more dangerous. The big man slapped him hard across the back. So, this is sweet, Frog. A dragon hunt. The Wayward Bride Asher Greyjoy was seated in Gorbett Glover's long hall, drinking Gorbett Glover's wine, when Gorbett Glover's maester brought the letter to her. My lady, the maester's voice was anxious, as it always was when he spoke to her. A bird from Barreton. He thrust the parchment at her, as if he could not wait to be rid of it. It was tightly rolled and sealed with a button of hard pink wax. Barreton. Asher tried to recall who ruled in Barreton. Some northern lord, no friend of mine. And that seal, the Boltons of the Dreadfort, went into battle beneath pink banners spattered with little drops of blood. It only stood to reason that they would use pink sealing wax as well. This is poison that I hold, she thought. I ought to burn it. Instead, she cracked the seal. A scrap of leather fluttered down into her lap. When she read the dry brown words, her black mood grew blacker still. Dark wings, dark words. The ravens never brought glad tidings. The last message sent to Deepwood had been from Stannis Baratheon, demanding homage. This was worse. The Northmen have taken Moat Kaelin. The bastard of Bolton, asked Carl beside her. Ramsay Bolton, Lord of Winterfell, he signs himself. But there are other names as well. Lady Dustin, Lady Serwyn, and four Risewells had appended their own signatures beneath his. Beside them was drawn a crude giant, the mark of some umber, 
Those were done in maester's ink, made of soot and coal tar, but the message above was scrawled in brown in a huge spiky hand. It spoke of the fall of Moat Kalin, of the triumphant return of the Warden of the North to his domains, of a marriage soon to be made. The first words were, I write this letter in the blood of Ironman. The last, I send you each a piece of prince. Linger in my lands and share his fate. Asher had believed her little brother dead. Better dead than this. The scrap of skin had fallen into her lap. She held it to the candle and watched the smoke curl up until the last of it had been consumed and the flame was licking at her fingers. Gorbert Glover's maester hovered expectantly at her elbow. There will be no answer, she informed him. May I share these tidings with Lady Sibel? If it please you. Whether Sibel Glover would find any joy in the fall of Moat Kalin, Asher could not say. Lady Sibel all but lived in her godswood, praying for her children and her husband's safe return. Another prayer late to go unanswered. Her heart tree is as deaf and blind as our drone god. Robert Glover and his brother Gorbert had ridden south with the young wolf. If the tales they had heard of the Red Wedding were even half true, they were not like to ride north again. Her children are alive, at least, and that is thanks to me. Asher had left them at Ten Towers, in the care of her aunts. Lady Isabel's infant daughter was still on the breast, and she had judged the girl too delicate to expose to the rigors of another stormy crossing. Asher shoved the letter into the maester's hands. Here, let her find some solace here, if she can. You have my leave to go. The maester inclined his head and departed. After he was gone, Triss Butley turned to Asher. If Moat Kalen has fallen, Torrens Square will soon follow. Then it will be our turn. Not for a while yet, the cleft jaw will make them bleed. Torrent Square was not a ruin like Moat Caitlin, and Dagmar was iron to the bone. He would die before he'd yield. If my father still lived, Moat Caitlin would never have fallen. Balin Greyjoy had known that the moat was the key to holding the north. Euron knew that as well. He simply did not care. No more than he cared what happened to Deepwood Mutt or Torren Square. Euron has no interest in Balin's conquest. My uncle's off chasing dragons. The crow's eye had summoned all the strength of the Iron Isles to Old Wick and sailed out into the deepness of the Sunset Sea, with his brother Victorian following behind like a whipped cur. There was no one left on Pike to appeal to, save for her own lord husband. We stand alone. Dagmar will smash them, insisted Crumb, who had never met a woman he had loved half so much as battle. They're only wolves. The wolves are all slain. Asher picked at the pink wax with her thumbnail. These are the skinners who slew them. We should go to Torrent Square and join the fight, urged Quentin Greyjoy, a distant cousin and captain of the salty wench. Aye, said Dagon Greyjoy, a cousin still more distant. Dagon the drunkard, men called him, but drunk or sober he loved to fight. 
Why should the cleft-jaw have all the glory for himself? Two of Gorbut Glover's serving men brought forth the roast, but that strip of skin had taken Asher's appetite. My men have given up all hope of victory, she realized glumly. All they look for now is a good death. The wolves would give them that, she had no doubt. Soon or late, they will come to take this castle back. The sun was sinking behind the tall pines of the wolf's wood, as Asher climbed the wooden steps to the bedchamber that had once been Gorbett Glover's. She had drunk too much wine, and her head was pounding. Asher Greyjoy loved her men, captains and crew alike, but half of them were fools. Brave fools, but fools nonetheless. Go to the cleft jaw, yes, as if we could. Between Deepwood and Dagmar lay long leagues, rugged hills, thick woods, wild rivers, and more Northmen than she cared to contemplate. Asher had four longships and not quite two hundred men, including Christopher Butley, who could not be relied on. For all his talk of love, she could not imagine Triss rushing off to Torren Square to die with Dagmar Cleftjaw. Carl followed her up to Gorbett Glover's bedchamber. Uh, get out, she told him. I want to be alone. What you want is me. He tried to kiss her. Asher pushed him away. Touch me again and I'll... What? He drew his dagger. Undress yourself, girl. Fuck yourself, you beardless boy. I'd sooner fuck you. One quick slash unlaced her jerkin. Asher reached for her axe, but Carl dropped his knife and caught her wrist, twisting back her arm until the weapon fell from her fingers. He pushed her back onto Glover's bed, kissed her hard, and tore her off her tunic to let her breasts spill out. When she tried to knee him in the groin, he twisted away and forced her legs apart with his knees. I'll have you now. Do it, she spat, and I'll kill you in your sleep. She was sopping wet when he entered her. Damn you, she said. Damn you, damn you, damn you. He sucked her nipples till she cried out, half in pain and half in pleasure. Her cunt became the world. She forgot Moat Kalin and Ramsay Bolton and his little piece of skin, forgot the king's moot, forgot her failure, forgot her exile and her enemies and her husband. Only his hands mattered. Only his mouth, only his arms around her, his cock inside her. He fucked her till she screamed, and then again until she wept, before he finally spent his seed inside her womb. I am a woman wed, she reminded him afterward. You've despoiled me, you beardless boy. My lord husband will cut your balls off and put you in a dress. Carl rolled off her, if he can get out of his chair... The room was cold. Asher rose from Gorbett Glover's bed and took off her torn clothes. The jerkin would need fresh laces, but her tunic was ruined. I never liked it anyway. She tossed it on the flames. The rest she left in a puddle by the bed. Her breasts were sore, and Carl's seed was trickling down her thigh. She would need to brew some moon tea, or risk bringing another kraken into the world. What does it matter? My father's dead, my mother's dying, my brother's being fleed, and there's naught that I can do about any of it. 
and I married, wedded and bedded, though not by the same man. When she slipped back beneath the furs, Carl was asleep. Now your life is mine. Where did I put my dagger? Asher pressed herself against his back and slid her arms about him. On the aisles he was known as Carl the Maid, in part to distinguish him from Carl Shepherd, Queer Carl Kenning, Carl Quickaxe, and Carl the Thrall. But more for his smooth cheeks. When Asher had first met him, Carl had been trying to raise a beard. Peach Fuzz, she had called it, laughing. Carl confessed that he had never seen a peach, so she told him he must join her on her next voyage south. It had still been summer then. Robert sat the iron throne, Balin brooded on the sea-stone chair, and the seven kingdoms were at peace. Asher sailed the black wind down the coast, trading. They called it Fair Isle and Lannisport, and a score of smaller ports before reaching the arbor, where the peaches were always huge and sweet. You see, she said, the first time she'd held one up against Carl's cheek. When she made him try a bite, the juice ran down his chin, and she had to kiss it clean. That night they'd spent devouring peaches and each other, and by the time daylight returned, Asher was sated and sticky and as happy as she'd ever been. Was that six years ago, or seven? Summer was a fading memory, and it had been three years since Asher last enjoyed a peach. She still enjoyed Carl, though. The captains and the kings might not have wanted her, but he did. Asher had known other lovers. Some shared her bed for half a year, some for half a night. Carl pleased her more than all the rest together. He might shave but once a fortnight, but a shaggy beard does not make a man. She liked the feel of his smooth, soft skin beneath her fingers. She liked the way his long, straight hair brushed against his shoulders. She liked the way he kissed. She liked how he grinned when she brushed her thumbs across his nipples. The hair between his legs was a darker shade of sand than the hair in his head, but fine as down compared to the coarse black bush around her own sex. She liked that, too. He had a swimmer's body, long and lean, with not a scar upon him. A shy smile, strong arms, clever fingers— and two sure swords. What more could any woman want? She would have married Carl, and gladly, but she was Lord Balin's daughter, and he was common-born, the grandson of a thrall. Too low born for me to wed, but not too low for me to suck his cock. Drunk, smiling, she crawled beneath the furs and took him in her mouth. Carl stirred in his sleep, and after a moment he began to stiffen. By the time she had him hard again, he was awake and she was wet. Asher draped the furs across her bare shoulders and mounted him, drawing him so deep inside her that she could not tell who had the cock and who the cunt. This time the two of them reached their peak together. "'My sweet lady,' he murmured after, in a voice still thick with sleep, "'my sweet queen.' "'No,' Asher thought, "'I am no queen.' nor shall I ever be. Go back to sleep. She kissed his cheek, padded across Gorbert Glover's bedchamber, and threw the shutters open. 
The moon was almost full, the night so clear that she could see the mountains, their peaks crowned with snow. Cold and bleak and inhospitable, but beautiful in the moonlight. Their summits glimmered pale and jagged as a row of sharpened teeth. The foothills and the smaller peaks were lost in shadow. The sea was closer, only five leagues north, but Asher could not see it. Too many hills stood in the way, and trees, so many trees. The wolfswood, the Northmen named the forest. Most nights you could hear the wolves calling to each other through the dark. An ocean of leaves, would it were an ocean of water? Deepwood might be closer to the sea than Winterfell, but it was still too far for her tastes. The air smelled of pines instead of salt. Northeast of those grim grey mountains stood the wall, where Stannis Baratheon had raised his standards. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, men said, but the other side of that coin was, the enemy of my friend is my enemy. The Arnborn were the enemies of the northern lords this Baratheon pretender needed desperately. I could offer him my fair young body, she thought, pushing a strand of hair from her eyes. But Stannis was wed, and so was she, and he and the Arnborn were old foes. During her father's first rebellion, Stannis had smashed the Arn fleet off Fair Isle and subdued Great Wick in his brother's name. Deepwood's mossy walls enclosed a wide, rounded hill with a flattened top, crowned by a cavernous long hall with a watch-tire at one end rising fifty feet above the hill. Beneath the hill was a bailey, with its stables, paddock, smithy, well, and sheepfold, defended by a deep ditch, a sloping earthen dyke, and a palisade of logs. The outer defences made an oval, following the contours of the land. There were two gates, each protected by a pair of square wooden towers and wall walks around the perimeter. On the south side of the castle, moss grew thick upon the palisade and crept halfway up the towers. To east and west were empty fields. Oats and barley had been growing there when Asher took the castle, only to be crushed underfoot during her attack. A series of hard frosts had killed the crops they'd planted afterwards, leaving only mud and ash and wilted, rotting stalks. It was an old castle, but not a strong one. She had taken it from the Glovers, and the bastard of Bolton would take it from her. He would not flay her, though. Asher Greyjoy did not intend to be taken alive. She would die as she had lived, with an axe in her hand and a laugh upon her lips. Her lord father had given her thirty longships to capture Deepwood. Four remained, counting her own black wind, and one of those belonged to Triss Botley, who had joined her when all her other men were fleeing. No, that is not just. They sailed home to do homage to their king. If anyone fled, it was me. The memory still shamed her. Go, the reader urged, as the captains were bearing her uncle Urin down Nagas Hill to don his driftwood crown. Said the raven to the crow, Come with me, I need you to raise the men of Harlow. Back then she meant to fight. The men of Harlow are here, 
and the ones who count, some were shouting Euron's name. I will not set Harlow against Harlow. Euron's mad and dangerous. That hellhorn, I heard it. Go, Asher. Once Euron has been crowned, he'll look for you. You dare not let his eye fall upon you. If I stand with my other uncles, you will die outcasts with every hand against you. When you put your name before the captains, you submitted yourself to their judgment. You cannot go against that judgment now. Only once has the choice of a king's moot been overthrown. Read Herrick. Only Rudrick the reader would talk of some old book whilst their lives were balanced on a sword's edge. If you are staying, so am I, she told him stubbornly. Don't be a fool. Euron shows the world his smiling eye tonight, but come the morrow, Asher, you are Balin's daughter, and your claim is stronger than his own. So long as you draw breath, you remain a danger to him. If you stay, you will be killed, or wed to the red oarsman. I don't know which would be worse. Go! You will not have another chance. Asher had landed Black Wind on the far side of the island for just such an eventuality. Old Wick was not large. She could be back aboard her ship before the sun came up, on her way to Harlaw before Euron realized she was missing. Yet she hesitated, until her uncle said, Do it, for the love you bear me, child. Do not make me watch you die. So she went. To ten towers first, to bid farewell to her mother. It may be a long while before I come again, Asher warned her. Lady Alanis had not understood. Where is Theon? she asked. Where is my baby boy? Lady Gwynis only wanted to know when Lord Roderick would return. I am seven years his elder. Ten towers should be mine. Asher was still at ten towers, taking on provisions, when the tidings of her marriage reached her. My wayward niece needs taming, the crow's eye was reported to have said and I know the man to tame her. He had married her to Eric Ironmaker and named the Anvil Breaker to rule the Iron Islands whilst he was chasing dragons. Eric had been a great man in his day, a fearless reaver who could boast of having sailed with her grandsire's grandsire, that same Dagon Greyjoy whom Dagon the Drunkard had been named for. Old women on Fair Isle still frightened their grandchildren, with tales of Lord Dagon and his men. I wounded Alex's pride at the king's moot, Asher reflected. He's not like to forget that. She had to pay her nuncle his just due. With one stroke, Euron had turned a rival into a supporter, secured the isles in his absence, and removed Asher as a threat, and enjoyed a good belly laugh too. Tris Botley said, that the crow's eye had used a seal to stand in for her at her wedding. I hope Eric did not insist on a consummation, she'd said. I cannot go home, she thought, but I dare not stay here much longer. The quiet of the woods unnerved her. Asher had spent her life on islands and on ships. The sea was never silent. The sound of the waves washing against a rocky shore was in her blood but there were no waves at Deepwood Mutt, only the trees, the endless trees, 
Soldier pines and sentinels, beech and ash and ancient oaks, chestnut trees and ironwoods and firs. The sound they made was softer than the sea, and she heard it only when the wind was blowing. Then the sighing seemed to come from all around her, as if the trees were whispering to one another in some language she could not understand. Tonight the whispering seemed louder than before. A rush of dead brown leaves, Asher told herself, bare branches creaking in the wind. She turned away from the window, away from the woods. I need a deck beneath my feet again, or failing that, some food in my belly. She'd had too much wine tonight, and too little bread, and none of that great bloody roast. The moonlight was bright enough to find her clothes. She donned thick black breeches, a quilted tunic, and a green leather jerkin covered with overlapping plates of steel. Leaving Carl to his dreams, she padded down the keep's exterior stair, the steps creaking under her bare feet. One of the men walking sentry on the walls spied her making her descent and lifted his spear to her. Asher whistled back at him. As she crossed the inner yard to the kitchens, Gorbuk Glover's dogs began to bark. Good, she thought. That will drown out the sound of the trees. She was cutting a wedge of yellow cheese from around as big as a cartwheel when Tris Butley stepped into the kitchen, bundled up in a thick fur cloak. My queen! Don't mock me. You will always rule my heart. No amount of fools shouting at a king's moot can change that. What am I to do with this boy? Asher could not doubt his devotion. Not only had he stood her champion on Nagas Hill and shouted out her name, but he had even crossed the sea to join her afterwards, abandoning his king and kin and home. Not that he dared defy Urin to his face. When the crow's eye took the fleet to sea, Triss had simply lagged behind, changing course only when the other ships were lost to sight. Even that took a certain courage, though. He could never return to the isles. Cheese, she asked him. There's ham as well, and mustard. It's not food I want, my lady. You know that. Triss had grown himself a thick brown beard at Deepwood. He claimed it helped to keep his face warm. I, I saw you from the watchtower. If you have the watch, what are you doing here? Crumbs up there, and Hagen the horn. How many eyes do we need to watch leaves rustle in the moonlight? We need to talk. Again, she sighed. You know Hagen's daughter, the one with the red hair. She steers a ship as well as any man, and she has a pretty face. Seventeen, and I've seen her looking at you. I don't want Hagen's daughter. He almost touched her before thinking better of it. Asher, it's time to go. Moat Kalin was the only thing holding back the tide. If we remain here... The Northmen would kill us all. You know that. Would you have me run? I would have you live. I love you. No, she thought. You love some innocent maiden who lives only in your head, a frightened child in need of your protection. I do not love you, she said bluntly. And I do not run. What's here that you should hold so tight to it but pine and mud and foes? We have our ships. Sail away with me, and we'll make new lives upon the sea. 
As pirates, it was almost tempting. Let the wolves have back their gloomy woods and retake the open sea. As traders, he insisted, we'll voyage east as the crow's eye did, but we'll come back with silks and spices instead of a dragon's horn. One voyage to the Jade Sea and we'll be as rich as gods. We can have a manse in Old Town or one of the free cities. You and me and Carl... She saw him flinch at the mention of Carl's name. Hagen's girl might like to sail the Jade Sea with you. I am still the Kraken's daughter. My place is... Where? You cannot return to the Isles, not unless you mean to submit to your lord husband. Asha tried to picture herself a bed with Eric Ironmaker, crushed beneath his bulk, suffering his embraces. Better him than the Red Oarsman or left-hand Lucas Cod. The Anvil Breaker had once been a roaring giant, fearsomely strong, fiercely loyal, utterly without fear. It might not be so bad. He's like today the first time he tries to do his duty as a husband. That would make her Eric's widow instead of Eric's wife, which could be better or a good deal worse, depending on his grandsons. And my uncle. In the end, all the winds blow me back to Euron. I have hostages on Harlow, she reminded him, and there is still Sea Dragon Point. If I cannot have my father's kingdom, why not make one of my own? Sea Dragon Point had not always been as thinly peopled as it was now. Old ruins could still be found amongst its hills and bogs, the remains of ancient strongholds of the first men. In the high places there were weirwood circles, left by the children of the forest. You are clinging to Sea Dragon Point the way a drowning man clings to a bit of wreckage. What does Sea Dragon have that anyone could ever want? There are no mines, no gold, no silver, not even tin or iron. The land is too wet for wheat or corn. I do not plan on planting wheat or corn. What's there, I'll tell you. Two long coastlines, a hundred hidden coves, utters in the lakes, salmon in the rivers, clams along the shore, colonies of seals offshore, tall pines for building ships. Who will build these ships, my queen? Where will your grace find subjects for a kingdom if the Northmen let you have it? Or do you mean to rule over a realm of seals and utters? She gave a rueful laugh. Otters might be easier to rule than men, I grant you, and seals are smarter. No, you may be right. My best course may still be to return to Pike. There are those on Harlow who would welcome my return, on Pike as well. And Euron won no friends on Black Tide when he slew Lord Baylor. I could find my uncle Aaron, raise the isles. No one had seen the damp hair since the king's moot but his drowned men claimed he was hiding on Great Wick, and would soon come forth to call down the wrath of the drowned god on the crow's eye and his minions. The anvil breaker is searching for the damp hair too. He is hunting down the drowned men. Blind Baron Blacktide was taken and put to the question. Even the old grey gull was given shackles. How will you find the priest when all of Euron's men cannot? He is my blood. My father's brother. It was a feeble answer, and Asher knew it. Do you know what I think? 
I'm about to, I suspect. I think the damn hare is dead. I think the crow's eye slit his throat for him. I'll make a search. It's just to make us believe the priest escaped. Urin is afraid to be seen as a kinslayer. Never let my uncle hear you say that. Tell the crow's eye he's afraid of kinslaying, and he'll murder one of his own sons just to prove you wrong. Asher was feeling almost sober by then. Christopher Butley had that effect on her. Even if he did find your uncle damp hair, the two of you would fail. You were both part of the king's moot, so you cannot say it was unlawful called, as Torgan did. You are bound to its decision by all the laws of gods and men. You, Asher frowned. Wait, Torgan? Which Torgan? Torgan the latecomer? He was a king during the Age of Heroes. She recalled that much about him, but little else. What of him? Torgan Grayon was a king's eldest son, but the king was old and Torgan restless, so it happened that when his father died he was raiding along the Manda from his stronghold on Greyshield. His brother sent no word to him, but instead quickly called a king's moot, thinking that one of them would be chosen to wear the driftwood crown. But the captains and the kings chose Urigan, good brother, to rule instead. The first thing the new king did was command that all the sons of the old king be put to death. And so they were. After that, men called him bad brother, though in truth they'd been no kin of his. He ruled for almost two years. Asher remembered now. Torgan came home and said the king's moot was unlawful since he had not been there to make his claim. Bad Brother had proved to be as mean as he was cruel, and he had few friends left upon the isles. The priests denounced him, the lords rose against him, and his own captains hacked him into pieces. Torgan the latecomer became the king, and ruled for forty years. Asher took Triss Butley by the ears and kissed him full upon the lips. He was red and breathless, by the time she'd let him go. "'What was that?' he said. "'A kiss, it's called. Ach, drown me for a fool, Triss. I should have remembered.' She broke off suddenly. When Triss tried to speak, she shushed him, listening. "'That's a warhorn. Hagen!' Her first thought was of her husband. Could Eric Ironmaker have come all this way to claim his wayward wife?' The drone god loves me after all. Here I was wondering what to do, and he has sent me foes to fight. Asher got to her feet and slammed her knife back into its sheath. The battle's come to us. She was trotting by the time she reached the castle bailey, with Triss dogging her heels. But even so, she came too late. The fight was done. Asher found two northmen bleeding by the eastern wall, not far from the postern gate, with Lauren Longex, Six-Toed Hull, and Grimtongue standing over them. Crum and Egan saw them coming over the wall, Grimtongue explained. Just these two? asked Asher. Five. We killed two before they could get over, and Hull slew another on the wall walk. These two made it to the yard. One man was dead, his blood and brains crusting Lauren's long axe, but the second was still breathing, raggedly. Though Grimtong's spear had pinned him to the ground in a spreading pool of blood, 
Both were clad in boiled leather and mottled cloaks of brown and green and black, with branches, leaves, and brush sewn about their heads and shoulders. "'Who are you?' Asher asked the wounded man. "'A flint. Who are you?' "'Asher of House Greyjoy. This is my castle. Deep would be Galbert's glover seat. No home for squids.' "'Are there any more of you?' Asher demanded of him. When he did not answer, she seized Grimtong's spear and turned it, and the Northman cried out in anguish as more blood gushed from his wound. "'What was your purpose here?' "'The lady,' he said, shuddering. "'Gods, stop! We come for the lady to rescue her. He was just as five. Asher looked into his eyes. When she saw the falsehood there, she leaned upon the spear, twisting it. "'How many more?' she said. "'Tell me, or I'll make ye dying last until the dawn.' "'Many!' he finally sobbed between screams. "'Thousands! Three thousand! Four! Please!' She ripped the spear out of him and drove it down two-handed through his lying throat. Gorbet Glover's maester had claimed the mountain clans were too quarrelsome to ever band together without a start to lead them. He might not have been lying. He might just have been wrong. She had learned what that tasted like at her uncle's king's moot. These five were sent to open our gates before the main attack, she said. Lauren, Hall, fetch me Lady Glover and her maester. Owl or bloody? asked Lauren Longaxe. Whole and unharmed. Grimtongue, get up that thrice-damned tower and tell Crom and Hagen to keep a sharp eye out. If they see so much as a hare, I want to know of it. Deepwood's Bailey was soon full of frightened people. Her own men were struggling into armour or climbing up onto the wall walks. Gorbert Glover's folk looked on with fearful faces, whispering to one another. Glover Stewart had to be carried up from the cellar, having lost a leg when Asher took the castle. The maester protested noisily until Lauren cracked him hard across the face with a male fist. Lady Glover emerged from the godswood on the arm of her bedmaid. I warned you that this day would come, my lady, she said, when she saw the corpses on the ground. The maester pushed forward, with blood dripping from a broken nose. Lady Asher, I beg you. Strike your banners and let me bargain for your life. You have used us fairly, and with honour I will tell them so. We will exchange you for the children. Sybil Glover's eyes were red from tears and sleepless nights. Gowan is four now. I missed his name day. And my sweet girl, give me back my children, and no harm need come to you, nor to your men. The last part was a lie, Asher knew. She might be exchanged, perhaps, shipped back to the Arn Islands to her husband's loving arms. Her cousins would be ransomed too, as would Triss Butley and a few more of her company, those whose kin had coin enough to buy them back. For the rest, it would be the axe, the noose, or the wall. Still, they have the right to choose. Asher climbed on a barrel so all of them could see her. The wolves are coming down on us with their teeth bared. They will be at our gates before the sun comes up.
Shall we throw down our spears and axes and plead with them to spare us? No, Carl the maid drew his sword. No, echoed Loren Longaxe. No, boom Rolf the dwarf, a bear of a man who stood a head taller than anyone else in her crew. Never! And Hagen's horn sounded again from on high, ringing out across the bailey. Oh! The war horn cried, long and low, a sound to curdle blood. Asher had begun to hate the sound of horns. On Old Wick, her uncle's hell horn had blown a death knell for her dreams, and now Hagen was sounding what might well be her last hour on earth. If I must die, I will die with an axe in my hand and a curse upon my lips. To the walls, Asher Greyjoy told her men. She turned her own steps for the watchtower, with Chris Botley right behind her. The wooden watchtower was the tallest thing this side of the mountains, rising twenty feet above the biggest sentinels and soldier pines in the surrounding woods. There, Captain, said Crom, when she made the platform. Asher saw only trees and shadows, the moonlit hills and the snowy peaks beyond. Then she realized that the trees were creeping closer. Oh, ho, she laughed. These mountain goats have cloaked themselves in pine boughs. The woods were on the move, creeping toward the castle like a slow green tide. She thought back to a tale she'd heard as a child about the children of the forest and their battles with the first men, when the green seers turned the trees to warriors. We, we cannot fight so many, Trispotley said. We can fight as many as come, Pop, insisted Crom. The more they are, the more the glory. Men will sing of us. Ay, but will they sing of your courage or my folly? The sea was five long leagues away. Would they do better to stand and fight behind deep woods, deep ditches, and wooden walls? Deep woods, wooden walls, did the glover a small good when I took their castle, she reminded herself. Why should they serve me any better? Come the morrow we will feast beneath the sea, Crom stroked his axe, as if he could not wait. Hagen lowered his horn. If we die with dry feet, how will we find our way to the drowned guard's watery halls? These woods are full of little streams, Crom assured him. All of them lead to rivers, and all the rivers to the sea. Asher was not ready to die. Not here, not yet. A living man can find the sea more easily than a dead one. Let the wolves keep their gloomy woods. We're making for the ships. She wondered who was in command of her foes. If it were me, I would take the strand and put our long ships to the torch before attacking Deepwood. The wolves would not find that easy, though, not without long ships of their own. Asher never beached more than half her ships. The other half stood safely off to sea, with orders to raise sail and make for Sea Dragon Point if the Northmen took the strand. He can blow your horn and make the forest shake. Trist done some mail. It's time you tried out that sweet sword of yours. When she saw how pale he was, she pinched his cheek. Splash some blood upon the moon with me, and I promise you a kiss for every kill. My queen, said Christopher, 
here we have the walls, but if we reach the sea and find that the walls have taken our ships or driven them away, we die, she finished cheerfully, but at least we'll die with our feet wet. Arnborn fight better with salt spray in their nostrils and the sound of the waves at their backs. Hagen blew three short blasts in quick succession, the signal that would send the Arnborn to their ships. From down below came shouting, the clatter of spear and sword, the whinnying of horses. Too few horses and too few riders. Asher headed for the stair. In the bailey she found Carl, the maid, waiting with her chestnut mare, her war helm, and her throwing axes. Iron men were leading horses from Gorbett Glover's stables. A ram! a voice shouted down from the walls. They have a battering ram! Which gate? asked Asher, mounting up. The north! From beyond Deepwood's mossy wooden walls came the sudden sound of trumpets. Trumpets? Walls with trumpets? That was wrong, but Asher had no time to ponder it. Open the south gate, she commanded, even as the north gate shook to the impact of the ram. She pulled a short-hafted throwing axe from the belt across her shoulder. The hour of the owl has fled, my brothers. Now comes the hour of the spear, the sword, the axe. Form up! We're going home! From a hundred throats came roars of home and asher. Tris Butley galloped up beside her on a tall roan stallion. In the bailey, her men closed about each other, hefting shields and spears. Carl the maid, no horse rider, took his place between Grimtongue and Lauren Longaxe. As Hagen came scrambling down the watchtower steps, a wolfling's arrow caught him in the belly and sent him plunging headfirst to the ground. His daughter ran to him, wailing. "'Bring her!' Asher commanded. This was no time for mourning. Rolf the dwarf pulled the girl onto his horse, her red hair flying. Asher could hear the north gate groaning, as the ram slammed into it again. We may need to cut our way through them, she thought, as the south gate swung wide before them. The way was clear. For how long? Move out! Asher drove her heels into a horse's flanks. Men and mounts alike were trotting by the time they reached the trees, on the far side of the sodden field where dead shoots of winter wheat rotted beneath the moon. Asher held her horsemen back as a rear guard to keep the stragglers moving and see that no one was left behind. Tall soldier pines and gnarled old oaks closed in around them. Deep wood was aptly named. The trees were huge and dark, somehow threatening. Their limbs weaved through one another and creaked with every breath of wind, and their higher branches scratched at the face of the moon. The sooner we are shut of here, the better I will like it, Asher thought. The trees hate us all, deep in their wooden hearts. They pressed on south and southwest, until the wooden towers of deep wood mott were lost to sight, and the sounds of trumpets had been swallowed by the woods. The wolves have their castle back, she thought. Perhaps they will be content to let us go. Tris Butley trotted up beside her, 
We're going the wrong way, he said, gesturing at the moon as it peered down through the canopy of branches. We need to turn north for the ships. West first, Asher insisted. West until the sun comes up, then north. She turned to Rolf the Dwarf and Rogan Rossbeard, her best riders. Scout ahead and make sure our way is clear. I want no surprises when we reach the shore. If you come on wolves, ride back to me with word. If we must, promised Rogan, through his huge red beard. After the scouts had vanished into the trees, the rest of the Arnborn resumed their march, but the going was slow. The trees hid the moon and stars from them, and the forest floor beneath their feet was black and treacherous. Before they had gone half a mile, her cousin Quentin's mare stumbled into a pit and shattered her foreleg. Quentin had to slit her throat to stop her screaming. "'We should make torches,' urged Triss. "'Fire will bring the Northmen down on us.' Asher cursed beneath her breath, wondering if it had been a mistake to leave the castle. "'No, if we had stayed and fought, we might all be dead by now.' but it was no good blundering on through the dark either. These trees will kill us if they can. She took off her helm and pushed back her sweat-soaked hair. The sun will be up in a few hours. We'll stop here and rest till break of day. Stopping proved simple. Rest came hard. No one slept, not even Drupai Dale, an oarsman who had been known to nap between strokes. Some of the men shared a skin of Gorbett Glover's apple wine, passing it from hand to hand. Those who had brought food shared it with those who had not. The riders fed and watered their horses. Her cousin, Quentin Greyjoy, sent three men up trees to watch for any sign of torches in the woods. Crum honed his axe and Carl the maid his sword. The horses cropped dead brown grass and weeds. Hagen's red-haired daughter seized Triss Butley by the hand to draw him off into the trees. When he refused her, she went off with six-toed Harl instead. Would that I could do the same. It would be sweet to lose herself in Carl's arms one last time. Asher had a bad feeling in her belly. Would she ever feel Black Wind's deck beneath her feet again? And if she did, where would she sail her? The aisles are closed to me, unless I mean to bend my knees and spread my legs and suffer Eric Ironmaker's embraces, and no port in Westeros is like to welcome the Kraken's daughter. She could turn merchanter as Triss seemed to want, or else make for the stepstones and join the pirates there, or— I send you each a piece of prince, she muttered. Carl grinned. I would sooner have a piece of you, he whispered. The sweet piece that's... Something flew from the brush to land with a soft thump in their midst, bumping and bouncing. It was round and dark and wet, with long hair that whipped about it as it rolled. When it came to rest amongst the roots of an oak, Grimtongue said, Rolf the dwarfs, not so tall as he once was. Half her men were on their feet by then, reaching for shields and spears and axes. They lit no torches either, 
Asher had time enough to think, and they know these woods better than we ever could. Then the trees erupted all around them, and the Northmen poured in, howling. Wolves, she thought. They howl like bloody wolves, the war cry of the North. Her Arnborn screamed back at them, and the fight began. No singer would ever make a song about that battle. No maester would ever write down an account for one of the reader's beloved books. No banners flew, no war horns moaned, no great lord called his men about him to hear his final ringing words. They fought in the pre-dawn gloom, shadow against shadow, stumbling over roots and rocks, with mud and rotting leaves beneath their feet. The Arnborn were clad in mail and salt-stained leather, the Northmen in furs and hides and piney branches. The moon and stars looked down upon their struggle. Their pale light filtered through the tangle of bare limbs that twisted overhead. The first man to come at Asher Greyjoy died at her feet with her throwing axe between his eyes. That gave her respite enough to slip her shield onto her arm. To me, she called. But whether she was calling to her own men or the foes, even Asher could not have said for certain. A Northman with an axe loomed up before her, swinging with both hands as he howled in wordless fury. Asher raised her shield to block his blow, then shoved in close to gut him with her dirk. His howling took on a different tone as he fell. She spun and found another wolf behind her, and slashed him across the brow beneath his helm. His own cut caught her below the breast, but her mail turned it. So she drove the point of her dirk into his throat, and left him to drown in his own blood. A hand seized her hair, but short as it was, he could not get a good enough grip to wrench her head back. Asher slammed her boot heel down into his instep, and wrenched loose when he cried out in pain. By the time she turned, the man was down and dying, still clutching a handful of her hair. Carl stood over him, with his longsword dripping and moonlight shining in his eyes. Grimtongue was counting the Northmen as he killed them, calling out, Four! as one went down, Five! a heartbeat later. The horses screamed and kicked and rolled their eyes in terror, maddened by the butchery and blood. All but Triss Butler's big roan stallion. Triss had gained the saddle, and his mount was rearing and wheeling as he laid about with his sword. I may owe him a kiss or three before the night is done, thought Asher. Seven, shouted Grimtongue, but beside him Lauren Longaxe sprawled with one leg twisted under him, and the shadows kept on coming, shouting and rustling. We are fighting shrubbery, Asher thought, as she slew a man who had more leaves on him than most of the surrounding trees. That made her laugh. Her laughter drew more wolves to her, and she killed them too, wondering if she should start a count of her own. I am a woman wed, and here's my suckling babe. She pushed her dirk into a north man's chest, through fur and wool and boiled leather. His face was so close to hers that she could smell the sour stench of his breath, and his hand was at her throat. Asher felt iron scraping against bone 
as her point slid over a rib. Then the man shuddered and died. When she let go of him, she was so weak she almost fell on top of him. Later she stood back to back with Carl, listened to the grunts and curses all around them, to brave men crawling through the shadows, weeping for their mothers. A bush drove at her, with a spear long enough to punch through her belly and Carl's back as well, pinning them together as they died. Better that than die alone, she thought. But her cousin Quentin killed the spearman before he reached her. A heartbeat later, another bush killed Quentin, driving an axe into the base of his skull. Behind her, Grimtongue shouted, Nine and damn you all! Hagen's daughter burst naked from beneath the trees with two wolves at her heels. Asher wrenched loose a throwing axe and sent it flying end over end to take one of them in the back. When he fell, Hagen's daughter stumbled to her knees, snatched up his sword, stabbed the second man, then rose again, smeared with blood and mud, her long red hair unbound, and plunged into the fight. Somewhere in the ebb and flow of battle, Asher lost Carl, lost Triss, lost all of them. Her dirk was gone as well, and all her throwing axes. Instead she had a sword in hand, a short sword with a broad, thick blade, almost like a butcher's cleaver. For her life she could not have said where she had gotten it. Her arm ached, her mouth tasted of blood, her legs were trembling, and shafts of pale dawn light were slanting through the trees. Has it been so long? How long have we been fighting? Her last foe was a Northman with an axe, a big man, bald and bearded, clad in a burnie of patched and rusted mail that could only mean he was a chief or champion. He was not pleased to find himself fighting a woman. Cunt! he roared each time he struck at her, his spittle dampening her cheeks. Cunt! Cunt! Asher wanted to shout back at him, but her throat was so dry she could do no more than grunt. His axe was shivering her shield, cracking the wood on the downswing, tearing off long, pale splinters when he wrenched it back. Soon she would have only a tangle of kindling on her arm. She backed away and shook free of the ruined shield, then backed away some more and danced left and right and left again to avoid the down-rushing axe. And then her back came up hard against a tree, and she could dance no more. The wolf raised the axe above his head to split her head in two. Asher tried to slip to her right, but her feet were tangled in some roots, trapping her. She twisted, lost her footing, and the axe head crunched against her temple with a scream of steel on steel. The world went red and black and red again. Pain crackled up her leg like lightning, and far away she heard her northman say, "'You bloody cunt!' as he lifted up his axe for the blow that would finish her. A trumpet blew. "'That's wrong,' she thought. "'There are no trumpets in the drowned guard's watery halls. "'Below the waves the merlings hail their lord by blowing into seashells.' She dreamed of red hearts burning, and a black stag in a golden wood with flame streaming from his antlers. 
Tyrion. By the time they reached Volantis, the sky was purple to the west and black to the east, and the stars were coming out. The same stars as in Westeros, Tyrion Lannister reflected. He might have taken some comfort in that if he had not been trussed up like a goose and lashed to a saddle. He had given up squirming. The knots that bound him were too tight. Instead, he'd gone as limp as a sack of meal. Saving my strength, he told himself, though for what he could not have said. Volantis closed its gates at dark, and the guardsmen on the northern gate were grumbling impatiently at the stragglers. They joined the queue behind a wagon laden with limes and oranges. The guards motioned the wagon through with their torches, but took a harder look at the big andal on his war-horse, with his long sword in his mail. A captain was summoned. Whilst he and the knight exchanged some words in Volantine, one of the guardsmen pulled off his clawed gauntlet and gave Tyrion's head a rub. "'I'm full of good fortune,' the dwarf told him. "'Cut me loose, friend, and I'll see you're well rewarded.' His captor overheard. "'Save your lives to those who speak your tongue, imp,' he said when the volunteers waved them on. Then they were moving again, through the gate and beneath the city's massive walls. "'You speak my tongue?' Can I sway you with promises, or are you determined to buy a lordship with my head? I was a lord, by right of birth. I want no hollow titles. That's all you're likely to get from my sweet sister. And here I've heard a Lannister always pays his debts. Oh, every penny, but never a groat more, my lord. You'll get the meal you bargain for, but it won't be sourced with gratitude and in the end it will not nourish you. Might be all I want is to see you pay for crimes. The king's there is accursed in the eyes of gods and men. The gods are blind, and men only see what they wish. I see you plain enough, imp. Something dark had crept into the knight's tone. I've done things I'm not proud of, things that brought shame unto my house and my father's name. But to kill your own sire— how could any man do that? Give me a crossbow and pull down your breeches, and I'll show you, gladly. You think this is a jape? I, I think life is a jape. Yours, mine, everyone's. Inside the city walls, they rode past guild halls, markets, and bathhouses. Fountains splashed and sang in the centers of wide squares where men sat at stone tables, moving Sivas pieces and sipping wine from glass flutes, as slaves lit ornate lanterns to hold the dark at bay. Palms and cedars grew along the cobbled road, and monuments stood at every junction. Many of the statues lacked heads, the dwarf noted, yet even headless they still managed to look imposing in the purple dusk. As the warhorse plodded south along the river, the shops grew smaller and meaner. The trees along the street became a row of stumps. Cobblestones gave way to devil grass beneath their horses' hooves, then to soft wet mud, the color of babies' night soil. The little bridges that spanned the small streams that fed the ruin creaked alarmingly beneath their weight. Where a fort had once overlooked the river stood a broken gate, 
gaping open like an old man's toothless mouth. Goats could be glimpsed, peering over the parapets. Old Valentus, first daughter of Valeria, the dwarf mused. Proud Valentus, queen of the Rhoyne and mistress of the summer sea, home to noble lords and lovely ladies of the most ancient blood. Never mind the packs of naked children that roam the alleys screaming in shrill voices, or the bravos standing at the doors of wine shops, fingering their sword hilts, or the slaves with their bent backs and tattooed faces who scurried everywhere like cockroaches. Mighty Valantis, grandest and most populous of the nine free cities. Ancient wars had depopulated much of the city, however, and large areas of Valantis had begun to sink back into the mud on which it stood. Beautiful Valantis, city of fountains and flowers, but half the fountains were dry, half the pools cracked and stagnant. Flowering vines sent up creepers from every crack in wall or pavement, and young trees had taken root in the walls of abandoned shops and roofless temples. And then there was the smell. It hung in the hot, humid air, rich, rank, pervasive. There's fish in it, and flowers, and some elephant dung as well. Something sweet, and something earthy, and something dead and rotten. This city smells like an old whore, Tyrion announced, like some sagging slattern who has drenched her privy parts in perfume to drown the stench between her legs. Not that I am complaining. With whores, the young ones smell much better, but the old ones know more tricks. You would know more of that than I do. Oh, of course, that brothel where we met. Did you take it for a sept? Was that your virgin sister squirming in your lap? That made him scowl. Give that tongue of yours a rest, unless you'd rather I tied it in a knot. Tyrion swallowed his retort. His lip was still fat and swollen than the last time he had pushed the big knight too far. Hard hands and no sense of humor makes for a bad marriage. That much he'd learned on the road from Selhoris. His thoughts went to his boot, to the mushrooms in his toe. His captor had not searched him quite as thoroughly as he might have. There is always that escape. Cersei would not have me alive, at least. Farther south, signs of prosperity began to reappear. Abandoned buildings were seen less often. The naked children vanished. The bravos in the doorways seemed more sumptuously dressed. A few of the inns they passed actually looked like places where a man might sleep, without fear of having his throat slit. Lanterns swung from iron stanchions along the river road, swaying when the wind blew. The streets grew broader, the buildings more imposing. Some were topped with great domes of colored glass. In the gathering dusk, with fires lit beneath them, the domes glowed blue and red and green and purple. Even so, there was something in the air that made Tyrion uneasy. West of the Rhoyne, he knew, the wharfs of Valantis teemed with sailors, slaves, and traders, and the wine shops, inns, and brothels all catered to them. East of the river, strangers from across the seas were seen less seldom.
We are not wanted here, the dwarf realized. The first time they passed an elephant, Tyrion could not help but stare. There had been an elephant in the menagerie at Lannisport when he had been a boy, but she had died when he was seven, and this great grey behemoth looked to be twice her size. Farther on they fell in behind a smaller elephant, white as old bone, and pulling an ornate cart. "'Is an ox-cart an ox-cart without an ox?' Tyrion asked his captor. When that sally got no response, he lapsed back into silence, contemplating the rolling rump of the white dwarf elephant ahead of them. Volantis was overrun with white dwarf elephants. As they drew closer to the Black Wall and the crowded districts near the Long Bridge, they saw a dozen of them. Big, grey elephants were not uncommon either. Huge beasts with castles on their backs. And in the half-light of evening, the dung carts had come out, attended by half-naked slaves, whose task it was to shovel up the steaming piles left by elephants both great and small. Swarms of flies followed their carts, so the dung slaves had flies tattooed upon their cheeks, to mark them for what they were. "'There's a trade for my sweet sister,' Tyrion mused. "'She'd look so pretty with the little shovel and flies tattooed on those sweet pink cheeks.' By then they had slowed to a crawl. The river road was thick with traffic, almost all of it flowing south. The night went with it, a log caught in a current. Tyrion eyed the passing throngs. Nine men of every ten bore slave marks on their cheeks. So many slaves. Where are they all going? The red priests light their night fires at sunset. The high priest will be speaking. I would avoid it if I could, but to reach the Long Bridge we must pass the Red Temple. Three blocks later, the street opened up before them onto a huge torch-lit plaza, and there it stood. Seven save me! That's got to be three times the size of the great sept of Baylor. An enormity of pillars, steps, buttresses, bridges, domes, and towers, flowing into one another as if they had all been chiseled from one colossal rock. The Temple of the Lord of Light loomed like Aegon's high hill. A hundred hues of red, yellow, gold, and orange met and melded into the temple walls, dissolving one into the other like clouds at sunset. Its slender towers twisted ever upwards, frozen flames dancing as they reached for the sky. Fire turned to stone. Huge nightfires burned beside the temple steps, and between them the high priest had begun to speak. Benero! The priest stood atop a red stone pillar, joined by a slender stone bridge to a lofty terrace where the lesser priests and acolytes stood. The acolytes were clad in robes of pale yellow and bright orange. Priests and priestesses in red. The great plaza before them was packed almost solid. Many and more of the worshippers were wearing some scrap of red cloth, pinned to their sleeves or tied around their brows. Every eye was on the high priest, save theirs. Make way, the knight growled, as his horse pushed through the throng. Clear a path. The volunteers 
gave way resentfully, with mutters and angry looks. Venera's high voice carried well. Tall and thin, he had a drawn face and skin as white as milk. Flames had been tattooed across his cheeks and chin and shaven head to make a bright red mask that crackled about his eyes and coiled down and around his lipless mouth. "'Is that a sleeve, Tattoo?' asked Tyrion. The knight nodded. "'The Red Temple buys them as children and makes them priests or temple prostitutes or warriors. Look there.' He pointed at the steps, where a line of men in ornate armour and orange cloaks stood before the temple's doors, clasping spears with points like writhing flames. "'The fiery hand, the Lord of Light's sacred soldiers,' "'Defenders of the temple. "'Fire knights. "'And how many fingers does this hand have, pray?' "'One thousand. "'Never more, never less. "'A new flame is kindled for everyone that gutters out.' "'Venero jabbed a finger at the moon, "'made a fist, spread his hands wide. "'When his voice rose up in a crescendo, "'flames leapt from his fingers with a sudden whoosh.' and made the crowd gasp. The priest could trace fiery letters in the air as well. Valerian glyphs? Tyrion recognized perhaps two in ten. One was doom, the other darkness. Shouts erupted from the crowd. Women were weeping, and men were shaking their fists. I have a bad feeling about this. The dwarf was reminded of the day Marcella sailed for dawn and the riot that boiled up as they made their way back to the Red Keep. Holden Halfmaster had spoken of using the Red Priest to young Griff's advantage, Tyrion recalled. Now that he had seen and heard the man himself, that struck him as a very bad idea. He hoped that Griff had better sense. Some allies are more dangerous than enemies, but Lord Cunnington will need to puzzle that one out for himself. I am like to be a head on a spike. The priest was pointing at the black wall behind the temple, gesturing up at its parapets where a handful of armoured guardsmen stood gazing down. What is he saying? Tyrion asked the knight. The Daenerys stands in peril. The dark eye has fallen upon her, and the minions of night are plotting her destruction, praying to their false gods in temples of deceit conspiring at betrayal with godless outlanders. The hairs on the back of Tyrion's neck began to prickle. Prince Aegon will find no friend here. The red priest spoke of ancient prophecy, a prophecy that foretold the coming of a hero to deliver the world from darkness. One hero, not two. Daenerys has dragons. Aegon does not. The dwarf did not need to be a prophet himself, to foresee how Benero and his followers might react to a second Targaryen. Griff will see that too, surely, he thought, surprised to find how much he cared. The knight had forced their way through most of the press at the back of the plaza, ignoring the curses that were flung at them as they passed. One man stepped in front of them, but his captor gripped the hilt of his longsword and drew it just far enough to show a foot of naked steel. The man melted away, and all at once an alley opened up before them. The knight urged his mount 
to a trot, and they left the crowd behind them. For a while, Tyrion could still hear Bonero's voice growing fainter at their back, and the roars his words provoked, sudden as thunder. They came upon a stable. The knight dismounted, then hammered on the door until a haggard slave, with a horse head on his cheek, came running. The dwarf was pulled down roughly from the saddle and lashed to a post, whilst his captor woke the stable's owner and haggled with him over the price of his horse and saddle. Cheaper to sell a horse than to ship one half across the world. Tyrion sensed a ship in his immediate future. Perhaps he was a prophet after all. When the dickering was done, the knight slung his weapon, shield, and saddlebag over his shoulder and asked for directions to the nearest smithy. That proved shuttered too, but opened quick enough at the knight's shout. The smith gave Tyrion a squint, then nodded and accepted a fistful of coins. "'Come here,' the knight told his prisoner. He drew his dagger and slit Tyrion's bonds apart. "'My thanks,' said Tyrion, as he rubbed his wrists. But the knight only laughed and said, "'Save your gratitude for someone who deserves it, imp. You will not like this next bit.' He was not wrong. The manacles were black iron, thick and heavy, each weighing a good two pounds if the dwarf was any judge. The chains added even more weight. "'I must be more fearsome than I knew,' Tyrion confessed, as the last links were hammered closed. Each blow sent a shock up his arm almost to the shoulder. "'Or were you afraid that I would dash away on these stinted little legs of mine?' The ironsmith did not so much as look up from his work, but the knight chuckled darkly. "'It's your mouth that concerns me, not your legs. In fetters or a slave, no one will listen to a word you say, not even those who speak the tongue of Westeros.' "'There is no need for this,' Tyrion protested. "'I will be a good little prisoner. I will, I will.' "'Prove it, then, and shut your mouth.' So he bowed his head and bit his tongue as the chains were fixed, wrist to wrist, wrist to ankle, ankle to ankle. These bloody things weigh more than I do. Still at least he drew breath. His captor could just as easily have cut his head off. That was all Cersei required, after all. Not striking it off straight away had been his captor's first mistake. There is half a world between Volantis and King's Landing, and much and more can happen along the way, sir. The rest of the way they went by foot, Tyrion clanking and clattering as he struggled to keep up with his captor's long, impatient strides. Whenever he threatened to fall behind, the knight would seize his fetters and yank them roughly, sending the dwarf stumbling and hopping along beside him. It could be worse. He could be urging me along with a whip. Valantis straddled one mouth of the Rhoyne, where the river kissed the sea, its two halves joined by the long bridge. The oldest, richest part of the city was east of the river, but sellswords, barbarians, and other uncouth outlanders were not welcome there, so they must needs cross over to the west. The gateway to the long bridge was a black stone arch, carved with sphinxes, manacores, dragons, 
and creatures stranger still. Beyond the arch stretched the great span that the Valerians had built at the height of their glory, its few stone roadway supported by massive piers. The road was just wide enough for two carts to pass abreast, so whenever a wagon headed west, past one going east, both had to slow to a crawl. It was well they were afoot. A third of the way out, a wagon laden with melons had gotten its wheels tangled with one piled high with silken carpets and brought all wheel traffic to a halt. Much of the foot traffic had stopped as well to watch the drivers curse and scream at one another, but the knight grabbed hold of Tyrion's chain and bulled a path through the throng for both of them. In the middle of the press, a boy tried to reach into his purse, but a hard elbow put an end to that and spread the thief's bloody nose across half his face. Buildings rose to either side of them, shops and temples, taverns and inns, Sivas, parlors, and brothels. Most were three or four stories tall, each floor overhanging the one beneath it. Their top floors almost kissed. Crossing the bridge felt like passing through a torch-lit tunnel. Along the span were shops and stalls of every sort. Weavers and lace-makers displayed their wares, cheek by jowl with glass-blowers, candle-makers, and fishwives selling eels and oysters. Each goldsmith had a guard at his door, and every spicer had two, for their goods were twice as valuable. Here and there, between the shops, a traveller might catch a glimpse of the river he was crossing. To the north, the ruin was a broad black ribbon bright with stars, five times as wide as the black water rush at King's Landing. South of the bridge, the river opened up to embrace the briny sea. At the bridge's centre span, the severed hands of thieves and cutpurses hung like strings of onions from iron stanchions along the roadway. Three heads were on display as well, two men and a woman, their crimes scrawled on tablets underneath them. A pair of spearmen attended them, clad in polished helms and shirts of silver mail. Across their cheeks were tiger stripes, as green as jade. From time to time the guards waved their spears to chase away the kestrels, gulls, and carrion crows paying court to the deceased. The birds returned to the heads within moments. What did they do? Tyrion inquired innocently. The knight glanced at the inscriptions. The woman was a slave who raised her hand to her mistress. The older man was accused of fomenting rebellion and spying for the dragon queen. And the young one uh, killed his father. Tyrion gave the rotting head a second look. Why, it almost looks as if those lips are smiling. Farther on, the knight paused briefly to consider a jeweled tiara displayed upon a bed of purple velvet. He passed that by, but a few steps on, he stopped again, to haggle over a pair of gloves at a leather worker's stall. Tyrion was grateful for the respites. The headlong pace had left him puffing, and his wrists were chafed raw from the manacles. From the far end of the long bridge, it was only a short walk through the teeming waterfront districts of the West Bank. 
down tortured streets, crowded with sailors, slaves, and drunken merrymakers. Once an elephant lumbered past with a dozen half-naked slave girls wavering from the castle on its back, teasing passers-by with glimpses of their breasts. Malaquo! Malaquo! They made such an entrancing sight that Tyrion almost waddled right into the steaming pile of dung the elephant had left to mark its passage. He was saved at the last instant when the knight snatched him aside, yanking on his chain so hard it made him reel and stumble. "'How much farther?' the dwarf asked. "'Just there, Fishmonger Square.' Their destination proved to be the merchant's house, a four-story monstrosity that squatted amongst the warehouses, brothels, and taverns of the waterside like some enormous fat man surrounded by children. Its common room— was larger than the great halls of half the castles in Westeros, a dim-lit maze of a place with a hundred private alcoves and hidden nooks whose blackened beams and cracked ceilings echoed to the din of sailors, traders, captains, money-changers, shippers, and slavers lying, cursing, and cheating each other in half a hundred different tongues. Tyrion approved the choice of hostelry. Soon or late, the shy maid must reach Volantis. This was the city's biggest inn, first choice for shippers, captains, and merchantmen. A lot of business was done in that cavernous warren of a common room. He knew enough of Volantis to know that. Let Griff turn up here, with Duck and Holden, and he would be free again soon enough. Meanwhile, he would be patient. His chance would come. The rooms upstairs proved rather less than grand, however, particularly the cheap ones up on the fourth floor. Wedged into a corner of the building beneath a sloping roof, the bedchamber his captor had engaged featured a low ceiling, a sagging feather bed with an unpleasant odour, and a slanting wood plank floor that reminded Tyrion of his sojourn at the Eyrie. At least this room has walls. It had windows, too. Those were its chief amenity, along with the iron ring set in the wall so useful for chaining up one's slaves. His captor paused only long enough to light a tallow candle before securing Tyrion's chains to the ring. Must you? the dwarf protested, rattling feebly. Where am I going to go? Out the window? You might. We are four floors up, and I cannot fly. You can fall. I want you alive. Aye, but why, Cersei, is not like to care? Tyrion rattled his chains. I know who you are, sir. It had not been hard to puzzle out. The bear in his surcoat, the arms and his shield. The lost lordship he had mentioned. I know what you are, and if you know who I am, you also know that I was the king's hand, and sat in council with the spider. Would it interest you to know that it was the eunuch who dispatched me on this journey? Him and Jamie, but I'll leave my brother out of it. I am as much his creature as you are. We ought not to be at odds. That did not please the knight. I took the spider's coin, I'll not deny it, but I was never his creature, and my loyalties lie elsewhere now. With Cersei? Oh, more fool you. All my sister requires is my head, and you have a fine sharp sword, 
Why not end this farce now and spare us both? The knight laughed. Is this some dwarf's trick? Beg for death in hopes I'll let you live? He went to the door. I'll bring you something from the kitchens. How kind of you. I'll wait here. I know you will. Yet when the knight left, he locked the door behind him with a heavy iron key. The merchant's house was famous for its locks. As secure as a jail, the dwarf thought bitterly. But at least there are those windows. Tyrion knew that the chances of his escaping his chains were little and less, but even so, he felt obliged to try. His efforts to slip a hand through the manacle served only to scrape off more skin and leave his wrist slick with blood, and all his tugging or twisting could not pull the iron ring from the wall. Bugger this, he thought, slumping back as far as his chains would allow. His legs had begun to cramp. This was going to be a hellishly uncomfortable night. The first of many, I do not doubt. The room was stifling, so the knight had opened the shutters to let in a cross breeze. Cramped into a corner of the building under the eaves, the chamber was fortunate in having two windows. One looked toward the long bridge and the black-walled heart of Old Valentis across the river. The other opened on the square below. Fishermonger's Square, Mormon called it. As tight as the chains were, Tyrion found he could see out of the latter by leaning sideways and letting the iron ring support his weight. Not as long a fall as the one from Lysa Aaron's sky cells, but it would leave me just as dead. Perhaps if I were drunk. Even at this hour, the square was crowded, with sailors roistering, whores prowling for custom, and merchants going about their business. A red priestess scurried past, attended by a dozen acolytes with torches, their robes whisking about their ankles. Elsewhere, a pair of Sivas players waged war outside a tavern. A slave stood beside their table, holding a lantern over the board. Tyrion could hear a woman singing. The words were strange. The tune was soft and sad. If I knew what she was singing, I might cry. Closer to hand, a crowd was gathering around a pair of jugglers throwing flaming torches at each other. His captor returned shortly, carrying two tankards and a roasted duck. He kicked the door shut, ripped the duck in two, and tossed half of it to Tyrion. He would have snatched it from the air, but his chains brought him up short when he tried to lift his arms. Instead, the bird struck his temple and slid hot and greasy down his face, and he had to hunker down and stretch for it with fetters clanking. He got it on the third try and happily tore into it with his teeth. Some ale to wash this down? Mormont handed him a tankard. Most of Volantis is getting drunk, why not you? The ale was sweet as well. It tasted of fruit. Tyrion drank a healthy swallow and belched happily. The tankard was pewter, very heavy. Empty it and fling it as he said, he thought. If I am lucky, it might crack his skull. If I am very lucky, it will miss, and he'll beat me to death with his fists. He took another gulp. Is this some holy day? Third day of their elections. They last for ten, ten days of madness. Torchlight marches, speeches, 
mummers and minstrels and dancers, bravos fighting death duels for the honour of their candidates, elephants with the names of would-be triarchs painted on their sides. Those jugglers are performing for Methiso. Remind me to vote for someone else. Tyrion licked grease from his fingers. Below the crowd was flinging coins at the jugglers. Do all these would-be triarchs provide mama shows? They do whatever they think will win them votes, said Mormont. Food, drink, spectacle. Alias has sent a hundred pretty slave girls out into the streets to lay with voters. I'm for him, Tyrion decided. Bring me a slave girl. They're for freeborn volunteers with enough property to vote. Precious few voters west of the river. And this goes on for ten days? Tyrion laughed. <laughs> I, I, I might enjoy that, though three kings is too, too many. I am trying to imagine ruling the seven kingdoms with my sweet sister and brave brother beside me. One of us would kill the other two inside a year. I am surprised these triarchs don't do the same. If you have tried, might be the Valentines or the clever ones, and us west to Rossi, the fools. Valentus has known her share of follies, but she's never suffered a boy triarch. Whenever a madman's been elected, his colleagues restrain him until his year has run its course. Think of the dead who might still live if mad Ares only had two fellow kings to share the rule. Instead, he had my father, Tyrion thought. Some of the free cities think that we're all savages on our side of the narrow sea, the knight went on. The others think that we're children, crying out for a father's strong hand. Or a mother's? Cersei will love that, especially when he presents her with my head. You seem to know this city well. I spent the best part of a year here. The knight slushed the dregs at the bottom of his tankard. When Stark drove me into uh, exile, I fled to lice with my second wife. Brothers would have suited me better, but Linus wanted some place warm. Instead of serving the Bravosi, I fought them on the Rhoyne, but for every silver I earned, my wife spent ten. By the time I got back to Lice, she had taken a lover, who told me cheerfully that I would be enslaved for debt unless I gave her up and left the city. That was how I came to Valantis. One step ahead of slavery, owning nothing but my sword and the clothes upon my back. And now you want to run home? The knight drained the last of his ale. On the morrow, I'll find us a ship. Uh, the bed is mine. You can have whatever piece of floor your chains will let you reach. Sleep, if you can. If not, count your crimes. That should see you through till the morning. You have your crimes to answer for, Jorah Mormont, the dwarf thought but it seemed wiser to keep that thought to himself. Sir Jorah hung his sword-belt on a bedpost, kicked off his boots, pulled his chain-mail over his head, and stripped out of his wool and leather and sweat-stained under-tunic to reveal a scarred, brawny torso covered with dark hair. If I could skin him, I could sell that pelt for a fur coat, Tyrion thought, as Mormont tumbled into the slightly smelly comfort of his sagging feather bed. In no time at all, the knight was snoring, 
leaving his prize alone with his chains. With both windows open wide, the light of the waning moon spilled across the bedchamber. Sounds drifted up from the square below, snatches of drunken song, the yearling of a cat in heat, the far-off ring of steel on steel. Someone's about to die, thought Tyrion. His wrist was throbbing where he'd torn the skin, and his fetters made it impossible for him to sit, let alone stretch out. The best he could do was twist sideways to lean against the wall, and before long he began to lose all feeling in his hands. When he moved to relieve the strain, sensation came flooding back as pain. He had to grind his teeth to keep from screaming. He wondered how much his father had hurt when the quarrel punched through his groin. What Shay had felt as he twisted the chain around her lying throat. What Tysha had been feeling as they raped her. His sufferings were nothing compared to their own. But that did not make him hurt any less. Just make it stop. Sir Jorah had rolled onto one side, so all that Tyrion could see of him was a broad, hairy, muscular back. Even if I could slip these chains, I'd need to climb over him to reach his sword belt. Perhaps if I could ease the dagger loose. Or else he could try for the key, unlock the door, creep down the stairs, and through the common room. And go where? I have no friends, no coin. I do not even speak the local tongue. Exhaustion finally overwhelmed his pains, and Tyrion drifted off into a fitful sleep. But every time another cramp took root inside his calf and twisted, the dwarf would cry out in his sleep, trembling in his chains. He woke with every muscle aching to find morning streaming through the windows, bright and golden as the Lion of Lannister. Below he could hear the cries of fishmongers and the rumble of iron-rimmed wheels on cobblestones. Jara Mormont was standing over him. If I take off the uh, ring, will you do as you're told? Will it involve dancing? I might find dancing difficult. I cannot feel my legs. They may have fallen off. Elsewise, I am your creature. On my honor as a Lannister. The Lannisters have no honor. Sir Jorah loosed his chains anywhere. Tyrion took two wobbly steps and fell. The blood rushing back into his hands brought tears to his eyes. He bit his lip and said, Wherever we're going, you will need to roll me there. Instead, the big knight carried him, hoisting him by the chain between his wrists. The common room of the merchant's house was a dim labyrinth of alcoves and grottoes built around a central courtyard where a trellis of flowering vines threw intricate patterns across a flagstone floor, and green and purple moss grew between the stones. Slave girls scurried through light and shadow, bearing flagons of ale and wine and some ice-green drink that smelled of mint. One table in twenty was occupied at this hour of the morning. One of those was occupied by a dwarf, clean-shaven and pink-cheeked, with a mop of chestnut hair, a heavy brow and a squash nose. He perched on a high stool with a wooden spoon in his hand, contemplating a bowl of purplish gruel with red-rimmed eyes. 
Ugly little bastard, Tyrion thought. The other dwarf felt his stare. When he raised his head and saw Tyrion, the spoon slipped from his hand. He saw me, Tyrion warned Mormont. What of it? He knows me, who I am. Should I stuff you in a sack so no one will see you? The knight touched the hilt of his longsword. If he means to try and take you, he is welcome to try. Welcome to die, you mean, thought Tyrion. What threat could he pose to a big man like you? He's only a dwarf. Sir Jorah claimed a table in a quiet corner and ordered food and drink. They broke their fast with warm, soft flatbread, pink fish roe, honey sausage, and fried locusts, washed down with a bittersweet black ale. Tyrion ate like a man half-starved. "'You have a healthy appetite this morning,' the knight observed. "'I've heard the food in hell is wretched.' Tyrion glanced at the door where a man had just come in. Tall and stooped, his pointed beard was dyed a splotchy purple. "'Some Tyrushy trader?' A gust of sound came with him from outside. The cries of gulls, a woman's laughter, the voices of the fishmongers. For half a heartbeat, he thought he glimpsed Illyrio Mopatis. But it was only one of those white dwarf elephants passing the front door. Mormon spread some fish row across a slice of flatbread and took a bite. Are you expecting someone? Tyrion shrugged. You never know who the wind might blow in. My one true love, my father's ghost, a duck. He popped a locust into his mouth and crunched it. Mmm, not bad, for a bug. Last night the talk here was all of Westeros. Some exile lord has hired the Golden Company to win back his lands for him. Half the captains in Volantis are racing upriver to Volantheris to offer him their ships. Tyrion had just swallowed another locust. He almost choked on it. Is he mucking me? How much could he know of Griffin Aegon? Bugger, he said. I meant to hire Golden Company myself to win me Castle Rock. Could this be some ploy of Griff's? False reports deliberately spread? Unless... Could the pretty princeling have swallowed the bait? Turn them west instead of east? Abandoning his hopes of wedding Queen Daenerys? Abandoning the dragons? Would Griff allow that? I'd gladly hire you as well, sir. My father's seat is mine by rights. Swear me your sword, and once I win it back, I'll drown you in gold. I, I saw a man drowned in gold once. It was not a pretty sight. If you ever get my sword, it will be through your bowels. A sure cure for constipation, said Tyrion. Just ask my father. He reached for his tankard and took a slow swallow to help conceal whatever might be showing on his face. It had to be a stratagem, designed to lull Volantine's suspicions. Get the men aboard with this false pretext, and seize the ships when the fleet is out to sea. Is that Griff's plan? It might work. The Golden Company was ten thousand strong, seasoned and disciplined. None of them seamen, though. Griff will need to keep a sword at every throat, and should they come on Slaver's Bay and need to fight...
The serving girl returned. The widow will see you next, noble sir. Have you brought a gift for her? Yes, thank you. Sir Joral slipped a coin into the girl's palm and sent her on her way. Tyrion frowned. Whose widow is this? The widow of the waterfront, east of the ruin, they still call her Vogaro's whore, though never to her face. The dwarf was not enlightened. And Vogaro was? An elephant, seven times a triarch, very rich, at par on the docks. Whilst other men built the ships and sailed them, he built piers and storehouses, brokered cargoes, changed money, insured ship-owners against the hazards of the sea. He dealt in slaves as well. When he grew besotted with one of them, a bed-slave trained at Yunkai in the way of seven sighs, it was a great scandal, and a greater scandal when he freed her and took her for his wife. After he died, she carried on his ventures. No freed man may dwell within the Black Wall, so she was compelled to sell Vogari's mets. She took up residence at the merchant's house. That was thirty-two years ago, and she remains here to this day. That's her behind her, back by the courtyard, holding court at her customary table. No, no, don't, don't look. There's someone with her now. When he's done, it will be our turn. And this old Harridan will help you? How? Sir Jorah stood. Watch and see. He's leaving. Tyrion hopped down off his chair with a rattle of iron. This should be enlightening. There was something vulpine about the way the woman sat in her corner by the courtyard, something reptilian about her eyes. Her white hair was so thin that the pink of her scalp showed through. Under one eye she still bore faint scars where a knife had cut away her tears. The remnants of her morning meal littered the table, sardine heads, olive pits, chunks of flatbread. Tyrion did not fail to note how well chosen her customary table was. Solid stone at her back, a leafy alcove to one side for entrances and exits, a perfect view of the inn's front door, yet so steeped in shadow that she herself was nigh invisible. The sight of him made the old woman smile. A dwarf, she purred, in a voice as sinister as it was soft. She spoke the common tongue with only a trace of accent. Valantis has been overrun with dwarfs of late, it seems. Does this one do tricks? Yes, Tyrion wanted to say. Give me a crossbow, and I'll show you my favourite. Uh, no, Sir Jorah answered. A pity. I once had a monkey who could perform all sorts of clever tricks. Your dwarf reminds me of him. Is he a gift? Uh, no, I brought you these. Sir Jorah produced his pair of gloves and slapped them down on the table beside the other gifts the widow had received this morning. A silver goblet, an ornate fan, carved of jade leaves, so thin they were translucent, and an ancient bronze dagger marked with runes. Besides such treasures, the gloves looked cheap and tawdry. Gloves for my poor old wrinkled hands! How nice! The widow made no move to touch them. I bought them on the long bridge. 
A man can buy most anything on the long bridge. Gloves, slaves, monkeys. The years had bent her spine and put a crone's hump upon her back. But the widow's eyes were bright and black. Now tell this old widow how she may be of service to you. We need swift passage east to Mirin. One word, Tyrion Lannister's world turned upside down. One word, Mirin, or had he misheard? One word, Mirin. He said Mirin. He's taking me to Mirin. Mirin meant life, or hope for life at least. Why come to me, the widow said. I own no ships. You have many captains in your debt. Deliver me to the queen, he says. Aye, but which queen? He isn't selling me to Cersei. He's giving me to Daenerys Targaryen. That's why he hasn't hacked my head off. We're going east, and Griff and his prince are going west, the bloody fools. Oh, it was all too much. Plots within plots, but all roads lead down the dragon's gullet. A guffaw burst from his lips, and suddenly Tyrion could not stop laughing. Your dwarf is having a fit, the widow observed. My dwarf will be quiet, or I'll see him gagged. Tyrion covered his mouth with his hands. Marin! The widow of the waterfront decided to ignore him. Shall we have a drink? she asked. Dust motes floated in the air as a serving girl filled two green glass cups for Sajara and the widow. Tyrion's throat was dry but no cup was poured for him. The widow took a sip, rolled the wine around her mouth, swallowed. All the other exiles are sailing west, or so these old ears have heard, and all those captains in my debt are falling over one another to take them there, and leech a little gold from the coffers of the Golden Company. Our noble triarchs have pledged a dozen warships to the cause, to see the fleet safely as far as the stepstones. Even old Donifus has given his assent such a glorious adventure, and yet you would go the other way, sir. My business is in the east. And what business is that, I wonder? Not slaves. <laughs> the Silver Queen has put an end to that. She has closed the fighting pits as well, so it cannot be a taste for blood. What else could Murrain offer to a Westerosi knight? Bricks? Olives? Dragons? Ah, there it is. <laughs> the old woman's smile turned feral. I've heard it said that the Silver Queen feeds them with the flesh of infants, while she herself bathes in the blood of virgin girls and takes a different lover every night. Sir Jorah's mouth had hardened. The Yunkai are pouring poison in your ears. My lady should not believe such filth. Oh, I'm no lady, but even Vergara's whore knows the taste of falsehood. This much is true, though. The Dragon Queen has enemies, Yunkai, Nugis, Tollis, Garth, I, and Valantis soon enough. You would travel to Murrain. Just wait a while, sir. Swords will be wanted soon enough when the warships bend their oars eastwards to bring down the Silver Queen. Tigers love to bear their claws, and even elephants will kill if threatened. 
Malaquo hungers for a taste of glory, and Nisus owes much of his wealth to the slave trade. Let Alias or Paquello or Belicho gain the triarchy, and the fleets will sail. Sir Jorah scowled. If Donifos is returned, Volgaro will be returned first, and my sweet lord has been dead these thirty years. Behind them, some sailor was bellowing loudly. They call this ale? Fuck! A monkey could piss better ale. And you would drink it? Another voice replied. Tyrion twisted round for a look, hoping against hope that it was Duck and Holden he was hearing. Instead, he saw two strangers, and the dwarf, who was standing a few feet away, staring at him intently. He seemed somehow familiar. The widow sipped daintily at her wine. Some of the first elephants were women, she said. The ones who brought the tigers down and ended the old wars. Triana was returned four times. That was three hundred years ago, alas. Volantis has had no female triarch since, though some women have the vote. Women of good birth who dwell in ancient palaces behind the black walls, not creatures such as me. The old blood will have their dogs and children voting before any freedmen. No, it will be Belicho, or perhaps Alias, but either way it will be war, or so they think. And what do you think? Sir Jorah asked. Good, Zotirian. The right question. Oh, I think it will be war as well, but not the war they want. The old woman leaned forward, her black eyes gleaming. I think that Red Riddle has more worshippers in this city than all the other gods together. Have you heard Benero preach? Last night. Benero can see the morrow in his flames, the widow said. Triarch Malaquo tried to hire the Golden Company, did you know? He meant to clean out the Red Temple and put Monero to the sword. He dare not use tiger cloaks. Half of them worship the Lord of Light as well. Oh, these are dire days in old Valentis, even for wrinkled old widows. But not half so dire as in Murrain, I think. So tell me, sir. Why do you seek the Silver Queen? That is my concern. I can pay for our passage and pay well. I have the silver. Fool, thought Tyrion. It's not coin she wants, it's respect. Haven't you heard a word, she said? He glanced back over his shoulder again. The dwarf had moved closer to their table, and he seemed to have a knife in his hand. The hairs on the back of his neck began to prickle. Keep your silver, I have gold, and spare me your black look, sir. I'm too old to be frightened of a skull. You are a hard man, I see, and no doubt skill with that long sword at your side. But this is my realm. Let me crook a finger, and you may find yourself travelling to a marine, chained to an oar in the belly of a galley. She lifted her jade fan and opened it. There was a rustle of leaves, and a man slid from the overgrown archway to her left. His face was a mass of scars, and in one hand he held a sword, 
short and heavy as a cleaver. Seek the widow of the waterfront, someone told you, but they should have also warned you, beware the widow's sons. It is such a sweet morning, though, I shall ask again. Why would you seek Daenerys Targaryen, whom half the world wants dead? Jorah Mormont's face was dark with anger, but he answered, To serve her, defend her, die for her, if need be. That made the widow laugh. <laughs> you, he want a rescuer, is that the way of it? Far more enemies than I can name, with swords beyond count. This is what you have the poor widow believe, that you are a true and chivalrous Westerosi knight. <laughs> crossing half the world to come to the aid of this, uh, well, she's no maiden, <laughs> though she may still be fair. She laughed again. Do you think your dwarf will please her? Will she bathe in his blood, do you think, or content herself with striking off his head? Sir Jorah hesitated. The dwarf is, I know who the dwarf is and what he is. Her black eyes turned to Tyrion, hard as stone. Kinslayer, Kingslayer, murderer, turncloak, Lannister. She made the last a curse. What do you plan to offer the Dragon Queen, little man? My hate, Tyrion wanted to say. Instead, he spread his hands as far as the fetters would allow. Whatever she would have of me. Sage counsel, savage wit. A bit of tumbling, my cock if she desires it, my tongue if she does not. I will lead her armies or rub her feet as she desires. And the only reward I ask is I might be allowed to rape and kill my sister. That brought the smile back to the old woman's face. This one at least is honest, she announced. But you, sir, I have known a dozen Westerosi knights and a thousand adventurers of the same ilk, but none so pure as you would paint yourself. Men are beasts, selfish and brutal. However gentle the words, there are always darker motives underneath. I do not trust you, sir. She flicked them off with her fan, as if they were no more than flies buzzing about her head. If you want to get to Marine, swim. I have no help to give you. Then seven hells broke out at once. Sir Jorah started to rise. The widow snapped her fan clothes. Her scarred man slid out of the shadows. And behind them, a girl screamed. Tyrion spun just in time to see the dwarf rushing toward him. She is a girl, he realized all at once. A girl dressed up in man's clothes, and she means to gut me with that knife. For half a heartbeat, Sir Jorah, the widow, and the scarred man stood still as stone. Idlers watched from nearby tables, sipping ale and wine, but no one moved to interfere. Tyrion had to move both hands at once, but his chains had just enough give for him to reach the flagon on the table. He closed his fist around it, spun, dashed its contents into the face of the charging dwarf girl, then threw himself to one side to avoid her knife. The flagon shattered underneath him as the floor came up to smack him in the head. Then the girl was on him once again. Tyrion rolled to one side as she buried the knife blade in the floorboards. 
yanked it free, raised it again, and suddenly she was rising off the floor, legs kicking wildly as she struggled in Sir Jorah's grasp. No, she wailed in the common tongue of Westeros. Let go! Tyrion heard her tunic rip as she fought to free herself. Mormont had her by the collar with one hand. With the other, he wrenched the dagger from her grasp. Enough! The landlord made his appearance then, a cudgel in his hand, but when he saw the broken flagon, he uttered a blistering curse and demanded to know what had happened here. Dwarf fight, replied the Tyrushi with a purple beard, chuckling. Tyrion blinked up at the dripping girl twisting in the air. Why? he demanded. What did I ever do to you? They killed him! All the fight went out of her at that. She hung limply in Mormon's grasp, as her eyes filled with tears. My brother, they took him, and they killed him. Who killed him? asked Mormon. Sailors. Sailors from the Seven Kingdoms. There were five of them, drunk. They saw us, jousting in the square, and followed us. When they realized I was a girl, they let me go, but they took my brother and killed him. They cut his head off. Tyrion felt a sudden shock of recognition. They saw us jousting in the square. He knew who the girl was then. Did you ride the pig, he asked her, or the dog? The dog, she sobbed. Apo always rode the pig. The dwarfs from Joffrey's wedding. It was their show that had started all the trouble that night. How strange to encounter them again half a world away, though perhaps not so strange as that. If they'd had half the wits of their pig, they would have fled King's Landing the night Joff died, before Cersei could assign them some share of blame in her son's death. Let her down, sir, he told Sir Jorah Mormont. She won't do us any harm. Sir Jorah dumped the dwarf girl on the floor. I'm sorry for your brother, but we had no part in his murder. He did. The girl pushed herself to her knees, clutching her torn, wine-drenched tunic to small, pale breasts. It was him they wanted. They thought Oppo was him. The girl was weeping, begging for help from anyone who would listen. He should die. The way my poor brother died, please. Someone help me. Someone kill him. The landlord seized her roughly by one arm and wrenched her back to her feet, shouting in volunteer, demanding to know who was going to pay for this damage. The widow of the waterfront gave Mormont a cool look. Knights defend the weak and protect the innocent, they say, and I am the fairest maid in all Volantis. <laughs> Her laugh was full of scorn. What do they call you, child? Penny. The old woman called out to the landlord in the tongue of old Volantis. Tyrion knew enough to understand that she was telling him to take the dwarf girl up to her rooms, give her wine, and find some clothes for her to wear. When they were gone, the widow studied Tyrion, her black eyes shining. Monsters should be larger. It seems to me. You're worth a lordship back in Westeros, little man. Here, I fear, your worth is somewhat less. But I think I'd best help you after all. 
Valencis is no safe place for dwarfs, it seems. You are too kind. Tyrion gave her his sweeter smile. Perhaps you would be so kind as to remove these charming iron bracelets as well. This monster has but half a nose, and it itches most abominably. The chains are too short for me to scratch it. I'll make you a gift of them, and gladly. How generous, but I have worn iron in my time, and now I find that I prefer gold and silver. And sad to say, this is Valantis, where fetters and chains are cheaper than day-old bread, and it is forbidden to help a slave escape. I'm no slave, or every man ever taken by slavers sings that same sad song. I dare not help you. Here, she leaned forward again. Two days from now, the cog, Selasori Corrin, will set sail for Carth by way of New Gith, carrying tin and iron, bales of wool and lace, fifty mirish carpets, a corpse pickled in brime, twenty jars of dragon peppers, and a red priest. Be on her when she sails. We will, said Tyrion, and thank you. Sir Jorah frowned. Carth is not our destination. She will never reach Carth, but Nero has seen it in his fires. The crone smiled, a vulpine smile. As you say, Tyrion grinned, if I were Valentine and free and had the blood, you'd have my vote for Triarch, my lady. I'm no lady, the widow replied, just Valgaro's whore. <laughs> you want to be gone from here before the tigers come. Should you reach your queen, give her a message from the slaves of old Valantis. She touched the faded scar upon her wrinkled cheek, where her tears had been cut away. Tell her we are waiting. <laughs> Tell her to come soon. John when he heard the order, Sir Alistair's mouth twisted into a semblance of a smile, but his eyes remained as cold and hard as flint. So, the bastard boy sends me out to die. Die, cried Mormon's raven. Die, die, die. You are not helping. John swatted the bird away. The bastard boy is sending you out to range, to find our foes and kill them if need be. You are skilled with a blade. You are master at arms here and at Eastwatch. Thorn touched the hilt of his longsword. I have squandered a third of my life trying to teach the rudiments of sword play to churls, muttonheads, and knaves. Small good that will do me in those woods. Diamond will be with you, and another seasoned ranger. We'll learn you what you need to know, sir. <laughs> Diamond told Thorn. Cackling, teach you how to wipe your high-born arse with leaves, <laughs> just like a proper ranger. Cage White-Eye laughed at that, and Blackjack Bulwer spat. Sir Alistair only said, You would like me to refuse. Then you could hack off me head, same as you did for Slint. I not give you that pleasure, bastard. 
You'd best pray that it's a wilding blade that kills me, though. The ones the others kill don't stay dead, and they remember. I'm coming back, Lord Snow. I pray you do. John would never count Sir Alistair Thorne amongst his friends, but he was still a brother. No one ever said you had to like your brothers. It was no easy thing to send men into the wild, knowing that the chances were good that they might never return. They are all seasoned men, John told himself. But his uncle Benjamin and his rangers had been seasoned men as well, and the haunted forest had swallowed them up without a trace. When two of them finally came straggling back to the wall, it had been as whites. Not for the first time or the last, Jon Snow found himself wondering what had become of Benjamin Stark. Perhaps the rangers would come upon some sign of them, he told himself, never truly believing it. Dywin would lead one ranging, Black Jack Bulwer and Kedge Whiteye the other two. They at least were eager for the duty. Feels good to have a horse under me again, Dywin said at the gate, sucking on his wooden teeth. Begging your pardon, my lord, but we was all of us getting splinters up our asses from sitting about. No man in Castle Black knew the woods as well as Dywin did, the trees and streams, the plants that could be eaten, the ways of predator and prey. Thorn is in better hands than he deserves. John watched the riders go from atop the wall. Three parties, each of three men, each carrying a pair of ravens. From on high their garrons looked no larger than ants, and John could not tell one ranger from another. He knew them, though. Every name was graven on his heart. Eight good men, he thought, and one, well, we shall see. When the last of the riders had disappeared into the trees, John Snow rode the winch cage down with Dolorous Ed. A few scattered snowflakes were falling as they made their slow descent, dancing on the gusty wind. One followed the cage down, drifting just beyond the bars. It was falling faster than they were descending, and from time to time it would vanish beneath them. Then a gust of wind would catch it and push it upwards once again. John could have reached through the bars and caught it, if he had wished. "'I had a frightening dream last night, my lord,' Dolores Ed confessed. "'You were my steward, eh? Fetching my food and cleaning up my leavings. I was Lord Commander, with never a moment's peace.' John did not smile. "'Your nightmare, my life.' Cutterpike's galleys were reporting ever-increasing numbers of free folk along the wooded shores to the north and east of the wall. Camps had been seen, half-built rafts, even the hull of a broken cog that someone had begun repairing. The wildlings always vanished into the woods when seen, no doubt to re-emerge as soon as Pike's ships had passed. Meanwhile, Sir Dennis Mallister was still seeing fires in the night north of the gorge. Both commanders were asking for more men. And where am I to get more men? John had sent ten of the Molestown wildlings to each of them, green boys, old men, some wounded and infirm, but all capable of doing work of one sort or another. Far from being pleased, Pike and Malister had both written back to complain. 
When I asked for men, I had in mind men of the Night's Watch, trained and disciplined, whose loyalty I should never have reason to doubt, wrote Sir Dennis. Cutterpike was blunter. I could hang them from the wall as a warning to other wildlings to stay away, but I don't see any other use for them. Mr. Harmoon wrote for him. I wouldn't trust such to clean my chamber pot, and ten is not enough. The iron cage moved downward, at the end of its long chain, creaking and rattling, until it finally jerked to a halt a foot above the ground at the base of the wall. Dolores Ed pushed open the door and hopped down, his boots breaking the crust of the last snow. John followed. Outside the armory, Iron Emmett was still urging on his charges in the yard. The song of steel on steel woke a hunger in John. It reminded him of warmer, simpler days when he had been a boy at Winterfell, matching blades with Rob, under the watchful eye of Sir Roderick Cassell. Sir Roderick, too, had fallen, slain by Theon Turncloak and his iron men as he tried to retake Winterfell. The great stronghold of House Stark was a scorched desolation. All my memories are poisoned. When Arne Emmett spied him, he raised a hand, and combat ceased. Lord Commander, how may we serve you? With your three best. Emmett grinned. Aaron, Emric, Jace. Horse and Hop Robin fetched padding for the Lord Commander, along with a ringmail hauberk to go over it, and greaves, gorget, and half helm. A black shield rimmed with iron for his left arm, a blunted longsword for his right hand. The sword gleamed silvery grey in the dawn light, almost new. One of the last to come from Donald's forge. A pity he didn't live long enough to put an edge on it. The blade was shorter than Longclaw, but made of common steel, which made it heavier. His blows would be a little slower. It will serve. John turned to face his foes. Come! Which one do you want first? asked Aaron. All three of you, at once. Three on one? Jace was incredulous. That wouldn't be fair. He was one of Conway's latest bunch, a cobbler's son from Fair Isle. Maybe that explained it. True? Come here. When he did, John's blade slammed him alongside his head, knocking him off his feet. In the blink of an eye, the boy had a boot on his chest and a sword point at his throat. War is never fair, John told him. It's two on one now, and you're dead. When he heard gravel crunch, he knew the twins were coming. Those two will make rangers yet. He spun, blocking Aaron's cut with the edge of his shield and meeting Emmerich's with his sword. Those aren't spears, he shouted. Get in close! He went to the attack to show them how it was done. Emmerich first. He slashed at his head and shoulders, right and left and right again. The boy got his shield up and tried a clumsy counter-cut. John slammed his own shield into Emmerich's and brought him down with a blow to the lower leg, none too soon, because Aaron was on him, with a crunching cut to the back of his thigh which sent him to one knee. That will leave a bruise. He caught the next cut on his shield, then lurched back to his feet and drove Aaron across the yard. He's quick, 
he thought, as the long swords kissed once and twice and thrice. But he needs to get stronger. When he saw relief in Aaron's eyes, he knew Emric was behind him. He came around and dealt him a cut to the back of the shoulders that sent him crashing into his brother. By that time, Jace had found his feet, so John put him down again. I hate it when dead men get up. You'll feel the same the day you meet a white. Stepping back, he lowered his sword. The big crow can pick the little crows, growled a voice behind him. But has he belly enough to fight a man? Rattleshirt was leaning against the wall. A coarse stubble covered his sunken cheeks, and thin brown hair was blowing across his little yellow eyes. You'll flatter yourself, John said. Aye, but I'll threaten you. Stannis burned the wrong man. No, the wildling grinned at him through a mouth of brown and broken teeth. He burned the man he had to burn for all the world to see. We all do what we have to do, Snow, even kings. Emmett, find some armour for him. I want him in steel, not old bones. Once clad in mail and plate, the Lord of Bones seemed to stand a little straighter. He seemed taller, too, his shoulders thicker and more powerful than John would have thought. It's the armour, not the man, he told himself. Even Sam could appear almost formidable, clad head to heel in Donald Noy's steel. The wilding waved away the shield horse offered him. Instead, he asked for a two-handed sword. There's a sweet sound, he said, slashing at the air. Flap closer, Snow, or me to make your feathers fly. John rushed him hard. Rattleshirt took a step backwards and met the charge with a two-handed slash. If John had not interposed his shield, it might have staved his breastplate in and broken half his ribs. The force of the blow staggered him for a moment and sent a solid jolt up his arm. He hits harder than I would have thought. His quickness was another unpleasant surprise. They circled round each other, trading blow for blow. The Lord of Bones gave as good as he was getting. By right, the two-handed greatsword should have been a deal more cumbersome than John's longsword, but the wilding wielded it with blinding speed. Arne Emmett's fledglings cheered their Lord Commander at the start, but the relentless speed of Rattleshirt's attack soon beat them down to silence. He cannot keep this up for long, John told himself as he stopped another blow. The impact made him grunt. Even dulled, the greatsword cracked his pinewood shield and bent the iron rim. He will tire soon. He must. John slashed at the wildling's face, and Rattleshirt pulled back his head. He hacked down at Rattleshirt's calf, only to have him deftly leap the blade. The greatsword crashed down onto John's shoulder hard enough to ding his pauldron and numb the arm beneath. John backed away. The Lord of Bones came after, chortling. He has no shield, John reminded himself, and that monster sword's too cumbersome for Paris. I shall be landing two blows for every one of his. Somehow he wasn't, though, and the blows he did land were having no effect. The wildling always seemed to be moving away or sliding sideways so John's longsword glanced off a shoulder or an arm. Before long he found himself giving more ground, trying to avoid the other's crashing cuts 
and failing half the time. His shield had been reduced to kindling. He shook it off his arm. Sweat was running down his face and stinging his eyes beneath his helm. He is too strong and too quick, he realized, and with that great sword he has weight and reach on me. It would have been a different fight if John had been armed with Longclaw, but his chance came on Rattleshirt's next backswing. John threw himself forward, bullying into the other man, and they went down together, legs entangled. Steel slammed on steel. Both men lost their swords as they rolled on the hard ground. The wildling drove a knee between John's legs. John lashed out with a male fist. Somehow Rattleshirt ended up on top. With John's head in his hands, he smashed it against the ground, then wrenched his visor open. If I had me a dagger, you'd be less than I by now, he snarled, before horse and iron Emmet dragged him off the Lord Commander's chest. Let go me, you bloody crows, he roared. John struggled to one knee. His head was ringing and his mouth was full of blood. He spat it out and said, Well fought. You flatter yourself, crow. I never broke a sweat. Next time you will, said John. Dolorous Ed helped him to his feet and unbuckled his helm. It had acquired several deep dents that had not been there when he donned it. Release him. John tossed the helm to Hop Robin, who dropped it. My lord, said Iron Emmet, he threatened your life, we all heard. He said that if he had a dagger, he does have a dagger, right there on his belt. There is always someone quicker and stronger, Sir Roderick had once told John and Rob. He's the man you want to face in the yard, before you need to face his like upon a battlefield. Lord Snow, a soft voice said, he turned to find Clytus standing beneath the broken archway, a parchment in his hand. From Stannis? John had been hoping for some word from the king. The Night's Watch took no part in you, and it should not matter to him which king emerged triumphant. Somehow it did. Is it Deepwood? Uh, no, my lord. Clytus thrust the parchment forward. It was tightly rolled and sealed with a button of hard pink wax. Only the Dreadfort uses pink sealing wax. John ripped off his gauntlet, took the letter, cracked the seal. When he saw the signature, he forgot the battering Rattleshirt had given him. Ramsay Bolton, Lord of the Hornwood, it read, in a huge spiky hand. The brown ink came away in flakes when John brushed it with his thumb. Beneath Bolton's signature, Lord Dustin, Lady Serwin, and four Risewells had appended their own marks and seals. A cruder hand had drawn the giant of House Umber. "'Might we know what it says, my lord?' asked Iron Emmet. John saw no reason not to tell him. "'Moat Kalen is taken. The flayed corpses of the Iron Men have been nailed to posts along the King's Road. Roose Bolton summons all leal lords to Barrowton to affirm their loyalty to the Iron Throne and celebrate his son's wedding to—' His heart seemed to stop for a moment. "'No, that is not possible. She died in King's Landing with father.' "'Lord Snow?' Clydus peered at him closely with his dim pink eyes. "'Are you uh, unwell?' 
You seem... He's to marry Iria Stark, my little sister. John could almost see her in that moment, long-faced and gawky, all knobby knees and sharp elbows with her dirty face and tangled hair. They would wash the one and comb the other, he did not doubt, but he could not imagine Arya in a wedding gown, nor Ramsay Bolton's bed. No matter how afraid she is, she will not show it. If he tries to lay a hand on her, she'll fight him. Your sister, Iron Emmett said, how old is Jim? By now she'd be eleven, John thought. Still a child. I have no sister. Only brothers. Only you. Lady Caitlin would have rejoiced to hear those words, he knew. That did not make them easier to say. His fingers closed around the parchment. Would that they could crush Ramsay Bolton's throat as easily. Clydus cleared his throat. Will there be an answer? John shook his head and walked away. By nightfall, the bruises that Rattleshirt had given him had turned purple. They'll go yellow before they fade away, he told Mormon's raven. I'll look as sallow as the Lord of Bones. Bones, the bird agreed. Bones, bones. He could hear the faint murmur of voices coming from outside, although the sound was too weak to make out words. They sound a thousand leagues away. It was Lady Melisandre and her followers at their nightfire. Every night at dusk the Red Woman led her followers in their twilight prayer, asking her Red God to see them through the dark. For the night is dark and full of terrors. With Stannis and most of the Queen's men gone, her flock was much diminished. Half a hundred of the free folk up from Molestown, the handful of guards the king had left her, perhaps a dozen black brothers who had taken her red god for their own. John felt as stiff as a man of sixty years. Dark dreams, he thought, and guilt. His thoughts kept returning to Arya. There is no way I can help her. I put all kin aside when I said my words. If one of my men told me his sister was in peril, I would tell him that was no concern of his. Once a man had said the words, his blood was black. Black as a bastard's heart. He'd had Micken make a sword for Aria once, a bravo's blade, made small to fit her hand. Needle. He wondered if she still had it. Stick them with a pointy end, he'd told her, but if she'd tried to stick the bastard, it could mean her life. Snow, muttered Lord Mormon's raven. Snow, snow. Suddenly, he could not suffer it a moment longer. He found Ghost outside his door, gnawing on the bone of an ox to get at the marrow. When do you get back? The direwolf got to his feet, abandoning the bone to come padding after John. Molly and Keg stood inside the door, leaning on their spears. A cruel cold out there, my lord, warned Molly through his tangled orange beard. Will you be out long? No, I just need a breath of air. John stepped out into the night. The sky was full of stars, and the wind was gusting along the wall. Even the moon looked cold. There were goosebumps all across its face. Then the first gust caught him slicing through his layers of wool and leather to set his teeth to chattering. 
he stalked across the yard, into the teeth of that wind. His cloak flapped loudly from his shoulders. Ghost came after. Where am I going? What am I doing? Castle Black was still and silent, its halls and towers dark. My seat, Jon Snow reflected. My hall, my home, my command. A ruin. In the shadow of the wall, the dire wolf brushed up against his fingers. For half a heartbeat, the night came alive with a thousand smells, and Jon Snow heard the crackle of the crust breaking on a patch of old snow. Someone was behind him, he realized suddenly. Someone who smelled warm as a summer day. When he turned, he saw Igrit. She stood beneath the scorched stones of the Lord Commander's tower, cloaked in darkness and in memory. The light of the moon was in her hair, her red hair, kissed by fire. When he saw that, John's heart leapt into his mouth. Igrit, he said. Lord Snow, the voice was Melisandre's. Surprise made him recoil from her. Lady Melisandre? He took a step backwards. I mistook you for someone else. At night all robes were grey, yet suddenly hers were red. He did not understand how he could have taken her for a grit. She was taller, thinner, older, though the moonlight washed years from her face. Mist rose from her nostrils and from pale hands naked to the night. You will freeze your fingers off, John warned. If that is the will of Rilor, night's powers cannot touch one whose heart is bathed in God's holy fire. Your heart does not concern me, just your hands. The heart is all that matters. Do not despair, Lord Snow. Despair is a weapon of the enemy whose name may not be spoken. Your sister is not lost to you. I have no sister. The words were knives. What do you know of my heart, priestess? What do you know of my sister? Melisandre seemed amused. What is her name, this little sister, that you do not have? Arya, his voice was hoarse. My half-sister, truly, for you are bastard-born. I had not forgotten. I have seen your sister in my fires, fleeing from this marriage they have made for her, coming here to you, a girl in grey on a dying horse. I have seen it plain as day. It has not happened yet, but it will. She gazed at Ghost. May I touch your uh, wolf? The thought made John uneasy. Uh, best not. He will not harm me. You call him Ghost, yes? Yes, but Ghost. Melisandre made the word a song. The dire wolf padded toward her. Weary, he stalked about her in a circle, sniffing. When she held out her hand, he smelled that too, then shoved his nose against her fingers. John let out a white breath. He is not always so warm. Warmth calls to warmth, Jon Snow. Her eyes were two red stars shining in the dark. At her throat, her ruby gleamed, a third eye glowing brighter than the others. John had seen ghost eyes blazing red the same way, 
when they caught the light just right. Ghost, he called, to me. The direwolf looked at him as if he were a stranger. John frowned in disbelief. That's queer. You think so? She knelt and scratched Ghost behind his ear. Your wall is a queer place, but there is power here. If you will use it, power in you and in this beast, you resist it, and that is your mistake. Embrace it, use it. I am not a wolf, he thought. And how would I do that? I can show you. Melisandre draped one slender arm over Ghost, and the dire wolf licked her face. The Lord of Light, in his wisdom, made us male and female, two parts of a greater whole. In our joining there is power, power to make life, power to make light, power to cast shadows. Shadows? The world seemed darker when he said it. Every man who walks the earth casts a shadow on the world. Some are thin and weak, others long and dark. You should look behind you, Lord Snow. The moon has kissed you and etched your shadow upon the ice twenty feet tall. John glanced over his shoulder. The shadow was there, just as she had said, etched in moonlight against the wall. A girl in grey, on a dying horse, he thought. Coming here to you, Arya. He turned back to the Red Priestess. John could feel her warmth. She has power. The thought came unbidden, seizing him with iron teeth. But this was not a woman he cared to be indebted to, not even for his little sister. Dala told me something once. Val's sister, Mance Raider's wife. She said that sorcery was a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. A wise woman, Melisandre rose, her red robes stirring in the wind. A sword without a hilt is still a sword, though, and a sword is a fine thing to have when foes are all about. Hear me now, Jon Snow. Nine crows flew into the white wood to find your foes for you. Three of them are dead. They have not died yet, but their death is out there waiting for them and they ride to meet it. You sent them forth to be your eyes in the darkness, but they will be eyeless when they return to you. I have seen their pale dead faces in my flames, empty sockets, weeping blood. She pushed her red hair back, and her red eyes shone. You do not believe me. You will. The cost of that belief will be three lives. A small price to pay for wisdom, some might say, but not one you had to pay. Remember that when you behold the blind and ravaged faces of your dead, and come that day, take my hand. The mist rose from her pale flesh, and for a moment it seemed as if pale, sorcerous flames were playing about her fingers. Take my hand she said again, and let me save your sister. Davis Even in the gloom of the wolf's den, Davis Seaworth 
could sense that something was awry this morning. He woke to the sound of voices and crept to the door of his cell, but the wood was too thick and he could not make out the words. Dawn had come, but not the porridge Garth brought him every morn to break his fast. That made him anxious. All the days were much the same inside the wolf's den, and any change was usually for the worse. This may be the day I die. Garth may be sitting with a whetstone even now to put an edge on Lady Lou. The Onion Knight had not forgotten Wyman Mandalay's last words to him. Take this creature to the wolf's den and cut off head and hands, the fat lord had commanded. I shall not be able to eat a bite until I see this smuggler's head upon a spike with an onion shoved between his lying teeth. Every night Davis went to sleep with those words in his head, and every morn he woke to them, and should he forget, Garth was always pleased to remind him. Dead man was his name for Davis. When he came by in the morning, it was always, Here, porridge for the dead man. At night it was, Blow out the candle, dead man. Once Garth brought his ladies by to introduce them to the dead man. The ore don't look like much, he said, fondling a rod of coal-black iron, but when I heat her up red-hot and let her touch your cock, oh, you cry for mother. And this here's my Lady Lou. It's her who'll take your head and hands when Lord Wyman sends down word. Davis had never seen a bigger axe than Lady Lou, nor one with a sharper edge. Gar spent his days honing her, the other keepers said. I will not plead for mercy, Davis resolved. He would go to his death a night, asking only that they take his head before his hands. Even Garth would not be so cruel as to deny him that, he hoped. The sounds coming through the door were faint and muffled. Davis rose and paced his cell. As cells went, it was large and queerly comfortable. He suspected it might once have been some lordling's bedchamber. It was thrice the size of his captain's cabin on Black Besser, and even larger than the cabin Salador San enjoyed on his valerian. Though its only window had been bricked in years before, one wall still boasted a hearth big enough to hold a kettle, and there was an actual privy built into a corner nook. The floor was made of warped planks full of splinters, and his sleeping pallet smelled of mildew, but those discomforts were mild compared to what Davis had expected. The food had come as a surprise as well. In place of gruel and stale bread and rotten meat, the usual dungeon fare, his keepers brought him fresh-caught fish, bread still warm from the oven, spiced mutton, turnips, carrots, even crabs. Garth was none too pleased by that. The dead should not eat better than the living, he complained more than once. Davis had furs to keep him warm by night. "'wood to feed his fire, clean clothing, a greasy tallow candle. "'When he asked for paper, quill, and ink, "'Theory brought them the next day. "'When he asked for a book so he might keep at his reading, "'Theory turned up with a seven-pointed star. "'For all his comforts, though, his cell remained a cell. "'Its walls were solid stone, so thick he could hear nothing of the outside world.' The door was oak and iron, 
and his keepers kept it barred. Four sets of heavy iron fetters dangled from the ceiling. Waiting for the day, Lord Manley decided to chain him up and give him over to the hall. Today may be that day. The next time Garth opens my door, it may not be to bring me porridge. His belly was rumbling, a sure sign that the morning was creeping past, and still no sign of food. The worst part is not the dying. It's not knowing when or how. He had seen the inside of a few jails and dungeons in his smuggling days, but those he'd shared with other prisoners, so there was always someone to talk with, to share your fears and hopes. Not here. Aside from his keepers, Dever Seaworth had the wolf's den to himself. He knew there were true dungeons done in the castle cellars, oubliettes and torture chambers and dank pits where huge black rats scrabbled in the darkness. His jailers claimed all of them were unoccupied at present. Only us here, Onion, Sir Bartimus had told him. He was a chief jailer, a cadaverous one-legged knight, with a scarred face and a blind eye. When Sir Bartimus was in his cups, and Sir Bartimus was in his cups most every day, he liked to boast of how he had saved Lord Wyman's life at the Battle of the Trident. The wolf's den was his reward. The rest of us consisted of a cook Davis never saw, six guardsmen in the ground-floor barracks, a pair of washerwomen, and the two turnkeys who looked after the prisoner. Therry was the young one, the son of one of the washerwomen, a boy of ten and four. The old one was Garth, huge and bald and taciturn, who wore the same greasy leather jerkin every day and always seemed to have a glower on his face. His years as a smuggler had given Davis Seaworth a sense of when a man was wrong, and Garth was wrong. The Onion Knight took care to hold his tongue in Garth's presence. With Theory and Sir Bartimus, he was less reticent. He thanked them for his food, encouraged them to talk about their hopes and histories, answered their questions politely, and never pressed too hard with queries of his own. When he made requests, they were small ones. A basin of water and a bit of soap, a book to read, more candles. Most such favors were granted, and Davis was duly grateful. Neither man would speak about Lord Manderley, or King Stannis, or the phrase, but they would talk of other things. Theory wanted to go off to war when he was old enough, to fight in battles and become a knight. He liked to complain about his mother, too. She was bedding two of the guardsmen he confided. The men were on different watches, and neither knew about the other. But one day one man or t'other would puzzle it out. Then there would be blood. Some nights the boy would even bring a skin of wine to the cell, and ask Davis about the smuggler's life as they drank. Sir Bartimus had no interest in the world outside, or indeed anything that had happened since he lost his leg to a riderless horse and a maester's saw. He had come to love the wolf's den, however, and liked nothing more than to talk about its long and bloody history. The den was much older than White Harbour, the knight told Davis. It had been raised by King John Stark to defend the mouth of the White Knife against raiders from the sea. 
Many a younger son of the king in the north had made his seat there. Many a brother, many an uncle, many a cousin. Some pass a castle to their own sons and grandsons, and offshoot branches of House Stark had arisen. The Grey Starks had lasted the longest, holding the wolf's den for five centuries, until they presumed to join the Dreadfort in rebellion against the Starks of Winterfell. After their fall, the castle had passed to many other hands. House Flint had held it for a century, House Lock for almost two. Slates, Longs, Holts, and Ashwoods had held sway here, charged by Winterfell to keep the river safe. Reavers from the Three Sisters took the castle once, making it their toehold in the north. During the wars between Winterfell and the Vale, it was besieged by Osgood Aaron, the old falcon, and burned by his son, the one remembered as the Talon. When old King Edric Stark had grown too feeble to defend his realm, the wolf's den was captured by slavers from the Stepstones. They would brand their captives with hot irons and break them to the whip before shipping them off across the sea, and these same blackstone walls bore witness. Then a long, cruel winter fell, said Sir Bartimus. The white knife froze hard, and even the firth was icing up. The winds came howling from the north and drove them slavers inside to huddle round their fires, and whilst they warmed themselves, the new king came down on them. Brandon Stark, this was, Edric Snowbeard's great-grandson, him that men called Ice Eyes. He took the wolf's den back, stripped the slavers naked, and gave them to the slaves he'd found chained up in the dungeons. It is said they hung their entrails in the branches of the heart tree as an offering to the gods. The old gods, not these new ones from the south. Your seven don't know winter, and winter don't know them. Davis could not argue with the truth of that. From what he had seen at Eastwatch by the sea, he did not care to know winter either. What gods do you keep? he asked the one-legged knight. The old ones. When Sir Bartimus grinned, he looked just like a skull. Me and mine were here before the Mandalays, like as not my own forebears strung those entrails through the tree. I never knew that Northmen made blood sacrifice to their art trees. There's much and more you Southrons do not know about the North, Sir Bartimus replied. He was not wrong. Davis sat beside his candle and looked at the letters he had scratched out word by word during the days of his confinement. I was a better smuggler than a knight, he had written to his wife, a better knight than a king's hand, a better king's hand than a husband. I'm so sorry. Marrier, I have loved you. Please forgive the wrongs I did you. Should Stannis lose his war, our lands will be lost as well. Take the boys across the narrow sea to Bravas, and teach them to think kindly of me, if you would. Should Stannis gain the Iron Throne, House Seaworth will survive, and Devon will remain at court. He will help you place the other boys with noble lords, where they can serve as pages and squires, and win their knighthoods. It was the best counsel 
he had for her, though he wished it sounded wiser. He had written to each of his three surviving sons as well, to help them to remember the father who had brought them names with his fingertips. His notes to Stefan and young Stannis were short and stiff and awkward. If truth be told, he did not know them half as well as he had his older boys, the ones who burned or drowned upon the black water. To Devon he wrote more, telling him how proud he was to see his own son as a king's squire, and reminding him that as the eldest it was his duty to protect his lady mother and his younger brothers. "'Tell his grace I did my best,' he ended. "'I'm sorry that I failed him. I lost my luck when I lost my finger-bones the day the river burned below King's Landing.' Davis shuffled through the letters slowly, reading each one over several times, wondering whether he should change a word here or add one there. A man should have more to say when staring at the end of his life, he thought, but the words came hard. I did not do so ill, he tried to tell himself. I rose up from flea bottom to be a king's hand, and I learned to read and write. He was still hunched over the letters, when he heard the sound of iron keys rattling on a ring. Half a heartbeat later, the door to his cell came swinging open. The man who stepped through the door was not one of his jailers. He was tall and haggard, with a deeply lined face and a shock of grey-brown hair. A longsword hung from his hip, and his deep-dyed scarlet cloak was fastened at the shoulder with a heavy silver brooch in the shape of a mailed fist. "'Lord Seaworth,' he said, "'we do not have much time. Please come with me.' Davis eyed the stranger warily. The pleas confused him. Men about to lose their heads and hands were not oft accorded such courtesies. "'Who are you?' "'Robert Glover, if it please, my lord.' "'Glover? Oh, your seat was deep wood mutt. My brother Galbert's seat. It was and is.' Thanks to your King Stannis, he has taken Deepwood back from the iron bitch who stole it, and offers to restore it to its rightful owners. Much and more has happened whilst you have been confined within these walls, Lord Davis. Moat Caelan has fallen, and Roose Bolton has returned to the north with Ned Stark's younger daughter. A host of Freys came with him. Bolton has sent forth ravens, summoning all the lords of the north to Barrowton. He demands homage and hostages, and witnesses to the wedding of Arya Stark and his bastard Ramsay Snow, by which match the Boltons mean to lay claim to Winterfell. Now, will you come with me or no? What choice do I have, my lord? Come with you, or remain with Garth and Lady Lou? Who is Lady Lou, one of the washerwomen? Glover was growing impatient. All will be explained if you will come. Davis rose to his feet. If I should die, I beseech my lord to see that my letters are delivered. You have my word on that. Though if you die, it will not be at Glover hands, nor Lord Wyman's. Quickly now, with me. Glover led him along a darkened hall and down a flight of worn steps. They crossed the castle's godswood, where the heart tree had grown so huge and tangled that it had choked out all the oaks and elms and birch, 
and sent its thick, pale limbs crashing through the walls and windows that looked down on it. Its roots were as thick around as a man's waist, its trunk so wide that the face carved into it looked fat and angry. Beyond the weirwood, Glover opened a rusted iron gate and paused to light a torch. When it was blazing red and hot, he took Davis down more steps into a barrel-vaulted cellar where the weeping walls were crusted white with salt and seawater sloshed beneath their feet with every step. They passed through several cellars and rows of small, damp, foul-smelling cells very different from the room where Davis had been confined. Then there was a blank stone wall that turned when Glover pushed on it. Beyond was a long, narrow tunnel and still more steps. These led up. "'Where are we?' asked Davis as they climbed. His words echoed faintly through the darkness. "'The steps beneath the steps. The passage runs beneath the castle stair, up to the new castle, a secret way. It would not do for you to be seen, my lord. You are supposed to be dead. Porridge for the dead man!' Davis climbed. They emerged to another wall, but this one was lath and plaster on the far side. The room beyond was snug and warm and comfortably furnished, with a mirish carpet on the floor and beeswax candles burning on a table. Davis could hear pipes and fiddles playing, not far away. On the wall hung a sheepskin with a map of the north painted across it in faded colours. Beneath the map sat Wyman Manderley, the colossal lord of White Harbour. Please sit. Lord Manderley was richly garbed. His velvet doublet was a soft blue-green, embroidered with golden thread at hem and sleeves and collar. His mantle was ermine, pinned at the shoulder with a golden trident. Are you hungry? No, my lord. Your jailers have fed me well. There is wine if you have a thirst. I will treat with you, my lord. My king commanded that of me. I do not have to drink with you. Lord Wyman sighed. I have treated you more shamefully, I know. I had my reasons, but uh, uh, please sit and drink, I beg you. Drink to my boy's safe return. Willis, my eldest son and heir, he is home. That is the welcoming feast you hear. In the merman's court, they are eating lamprey pie and venison with roasted chestnuts. Winifred is dancing with the fray she is to marry. The other freys are raising cups of wine to toast our friendship. Beneath the music, Davis could hear the murmur of many voices, the clatter of cups and platters. He said nothing. I have just come from the high table, Lord Wyman went on. I have eaten too much as ever, and all White Harbour knows my bowels are bad. My friends are free, will not question a lengthy visit to the privy, we hope. He turned his cup over. There, you will drink, and I will not. Sit, time is short, and there is much we need to say. Robert, wine for the hand, if you'll be so good. Lord Davis, you will not know, but you are dead. Robert Glover filled a wine cup and offered it to Davis. He took it, sniffed it, drank. How did I die, if I may ask? By the axe. Your head and hands were mounted above the sealed gate, 
with your face turned so your eyes looked out across the harbour. By now you are well rotted. Though we dipped your head in tar before we set it upon the spike, carrion crows and seabirds squabbled over your eyes, they say. Davis shifted uncomfortably. It was a queer feeling, being dead. If it pleased, my lord, who died in my place? Does it matter? You have a common face, Lord Davis. I hope my saying so does not offend you. The man had your colouring, a nose of the same shape, two ears that were not dissimilar, a long beard that could be trimmed and shaped like yours. You can be sure we tarred him well, and the onion shoved between his teeth served to twist the features. Sir Bartimus saw that the fingers of his left hand were shortened, the same as yours. The man was a criminal, if that gives you any solace. His dying may accomplish more good than anything he ever did whilst living. My lord, I bear you no ill will. The rancor I showed you in the merman's court was a mummer's farce put on to please our friends of free. My lord should take up a life of mummery, said Davis. You and yours were most convincing. Your good daughter seemed to want me dead most earnestly, and the little girl— Willa, Lord Wyman smiled. Did you see how brave she was? Even when I threatened to have her tongue out, she reminded me of the debt White Harbour owes to the Starks of Winterfell, a debt that can never be repaid. Willa spoke from the heart, as did Lady Leona. Forgive her if you can, my lord. She is a foolish, frightened woman, and Willis is her life. Not every man has it in him to be Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight or Simeon Star-Eyes, and not every woman can be as brave as my Willa and her sister Winifred, who did know, yet played her own part fearlessly. When treating with liars, even an honest man must lie. I did not dare defy King's Landing, so long as my last living son remained a captive. Lord Tywin Lannister wrote me, himself, to say that he had Willis. If I would have him freed unharmed, he told me, I must repent my treason, yield my city, declare my loyalty to the boy king on the Iron Throne, and bend my knee to Roose Bolton, his warden of the north. Should I refuse, Willis would die a traitor's death. White Harbour would be stormed and sacked and my people would suffer the same fate as the reigns of Castamere. I am fat, and many think that makes me weak and foolish. Uh, mayhaps Tywin Lannister was one such. I sent him back a raven to say that I would bend my knee and open my gates after my son was returned, but not before. There the matter stood when Tywin died. Afterwards the phrase turned up with Wendell's bones, to make a peace and seal it with a marriage pact, they claimed. But I was not about to give them what they wanted until I had Willis safe and whole. And they were not about to give me Willis until I proved my loyalty. Your arrival gave me the means to do that. That was the reason for the discourtesy I showed you in the merman's court 
and for the head and hands rotting above the sealed gate. You took a great risk, my lord, Davis said. If the phrase had seen through your deception, I took no risk at all. If any of the phrase had taken it upon themselves to climb my gate for a close look at the man with the onion in his mouth, I would have blamed my jailers for the error and produced you to appease them. Davis felt a shiver up his spine. I see. I hope so. You have sons of your own, you said. Three, thought Davis, though I fathered seven. Soon I must return to the feast to toast my friends of Frey, Mandalay continued. They watch me, sir. Day and night their eyes are on me, noses sniffing for some whiff of treachery. You saw them. The arrogant sir Jared and his brother Riga, that smirking worm who wears a dragon's name. Behind them both stands Simon, clinking coins. That one has bought and paid for several of my servants and two of my knights. One of his wife's handmaids has found her way into the bed of my own fool. If Stannis wonders that my letters say so little, it is because I dare not even trust my mister. Theomore is all head and no heart. You heard him in my hall. Maesters are supposed to put aside all loyalties when they don their chains. But I cannot forget that Theomore was born a Lannister of Lannisport and claims more distant kinship to the Lannisters of Casterly Rock. Foes and false friends are all around me, Lord Davis. They infest my city like roaches, and at night I feel them crawling over me. The fat man's fingers coiled into a fist, and all his chins trembled. My son Wendell came to the twins, a guest. He ate Lord Walder's bread and salt, and hung his sword upon the wall to feast with friends. And they murdered him. Murdered, I say. And may the phrase choke upon their fables. I drink with Jared, jape with Simon, promise Rhaegar the hand of my own beloved granddaughter, but never think that means I have forgotten. The North remembers, Lord Davis, the North remembers, and the mummer's farce is almost done. My son is home. Something about the way Lord Wyman said that chilled Davis to the bone. If it is justice that you want, my lord, look to King Stannis. No man is more just. Robert Glover broke into Ed. Your loyalty does your honour, my lord, but Stannis Baratheon remains your king, not our own. Your own king is dead, Davis reminded them. Murdered at the Red Wedding beside Lord Wyman's son. The young wolf is dead, Mandalay allowed. But that brave boy was not Lord Eddard's only son. Robert, bring the lad. At once, my lord. Glover slipped out of the door. The lad? Was it possible that one of Rob Stark's brothers had survived the ruin of Winterfell? Did Mandalay have a Stark heir? hidden away in his castle? A found boy or a feigned boy? The North would rise for either, he suspected, but Stannis Baratheon would never make common cause with an impostor. 
The lad who followed Robert Glover through the door was not a Stark, nor could he ever hope to pass for one. He was older than the young wolf's murdered brothers, fourteen or fifteen by the look of him, and his eyes were older still. Beneath a tangle of dark brown hair, his face was almost feral, with a wide mouth, sharp nose, and pointed chin. "'Who are you?' Davis asked. The boy looked to Robert Glover. "'He's a mute, but we have been teaching him his letters. He learns quickly.' Glover drew a dagger from his belt and gave it to the boy. "'Write your name for Lord Seaworth.' There was no parchment in the chamber. The boy carved the letters into a wooden beam in the wall. W-E-X. He leaned hard into the X. When he was done, he flipped the dagger in the air, caught it, and stood admiring his handiwork. Wex is ironborn. He was Theon Greyjoy's squire. Wex was at Winterfell, Glover said. How much does Lord Stannis know of what transpired at Winterfell? Davis thought back on the tales he'd heard. Winterfell was captured by Theon Greyjoy, who had once been Lord Stark's ward. He had Stark's two young sons put to death and mounted their heads above the castle walls. When the Northmen came to oust him, he put the entire castle to sword, down to the last child, before he himself was slain by Lord Bolton's bastard. Not slain, said Glover, captured, and carried back to the Dreadfort. The bastard has been fleeing him. Lord Wyman nodded. The tale you tell is one we all have heard, as full of lies as a pudding's full of raisins. It was the bastard of Bolton who put Winterfell to the sword. Ramsay Snow, he was called then, before the boy king made him a Bolton. Snow did not kill them all. He spared the women, roped them together, and marched them to the dread fort for his sport. His sport? He's a great hunter, said Wyman Mandley, and women are his favorite prey. He strips them naked and sets them loose in the woods. They have a half-day's start before he sets out after them with hounds and horns. From time to time some wench escapes and lives to tell the tale. Most are less fortunate. When Ramsay catches them, he rapes them, flays them, feeds their corpses to his dogs, and brings their skins back to the dread fort as trophies. If they have given him good sport, he slits their throats before he skins them. Elsewise, t'other way around. Davis paled. "'Gods be good! How could any man—' "'The evil is in his blood,' said Robert Glover. "'He is a bastard born of rape, a snow, no matter what the boy king says.' "'Was ever snow so black?' asked Lord Wyman. "'Ramsay took Lord Hornwood's lands by forcibly wedding his widow, "'then locked her in a tower and forgot her. "'It is said she ate her own fingers in her extremity.' and the Lannister notion of King's justice is to reward her killer with Ned Stark's little girl. The Boltons have always been as cruel as they were cunning, but this one seems a, a beast in human skin, said Glover. 
the Lord of White Harbour leaned forward. The Freys are no better. They speak of wags and skin changers and assert that it was Rob Stark who slew my Wendell. The arrogance of it! They do not expect the North to believe their lies, not truly. But they think we must pretend to believe or die. Roose Bolton lies about his part in the Red Wedding, and his bastard lies about the fall of Winterfell. And yet so long as they held Willis, I had no choice but eat all this excrement and praise the taste. And now, my lord, asked Davis. He had hoped to hear Lord Wyman say, and now I shall declare for King Stannis. But instead, the fat man smiled an odd, twinkling smile and said, And now I have a wedding to attend. I'm too fat to sit a horse, as any man with eyes can plainly see. As a boy, I love to ride, and as a young man, I handle a mount well enough to win some small acclaim in the lists. But those days are done. My body has become a prison more dire than the wolf's den. Even so, I must go to Winterfell. Roose Bolton wants me on my knees, and beneath the velvet courtesy he shows the iron mail. I shall go by barge and litter, attended by a hundred knights and my good friends from the twins. The phrase came here by sea. They have no horses with them, so I shall present each of them with a palfrey as a guest gift. Do hosts still give guest gifts in the south? Some do, my lord, on the day their guest departs. Perhaps you understand, then. Wyman Manderley lurched ponderously to his feet. I have been building warships for more than a year. Some you saw. But there are as many more hidden up the white knife. Even with the losses I have suffered, I still command more heavy horse than any other lord north of the neck. My walls are strong and my vaults are full of silver. Old Castle and Widow's Watch will take their lead from me. My bannermen include a dozen petty lords and a hundred landed knights. I can deliver King Stannis the allegiance of all the lands east of the White Knife, from Widow's Watch and Ramsgate to the Sheep's Head Hills and the headwaters of the Broken Branch. All this I pledge to do. If you will meet my price. I can bring your terms to the king, but Lord Wyman cut him off. If you will meet my price, I said, not Stannis. It's not a king I need, but a smuggler. Robert Glover took up the tale. We may never know all that happened at Winterfell when Sir Roderick Cassell tried to take the castle back from Theon Greyjoy's ironmen. The bastard of Bolton claims that Greyjoy murdered Sir Roderick during a parley. Weck says no. Until he learns more letters, we will never know half the truth. But he came to us knowing yes and no, and those can go a long way once you find the right questions. It was the bastard who murdered Sir Roderick and the men of Winterfell, said Lord Wyman. He slew Greyjoy's iron men as well. Wex saw men cut down, trying to yield. When we asked how he escaped, he took a chunk of chalk 
and drew a tree with a face. Davis thought about that. The old god saved him. Uh, after a fashion, he climbed the heart tree and hid himself amongst the leaves. Bolton's men searched the god's wood twice and killed the man they found there, but none thought to clamber up into the trees. Is that how it happened, Wex? The boy flipped up Glover's dagger, caught it, nodded. Glover said, He stayed up in the tree a long time. He slept amongst the branches, not daring to descend. Finally, he heard voices down beneath him. The voices of the dead, said Wyman Mandley. Wex held up five fingers, tapped each one with a dagger, then folded four away and tapped the last again. Six of them? asked Davis. There were six? Two of them Ned Stark's murderous sons. How could a mute tell you that? With chalk, he drew two boys and two wolves. The lad is iron-born, so he thought it best not to show himself, said Glover. He listened. The six did not linger long amongst the ruins of Winterfell. Four went one way to another. Wex stole after the two, a woman and a boy. He must have stayed downwind so the wolf would not catch his scent. He knows where they went, Lord Wyman said. Davis understood. You want a boy? Bruce Bolton has Lord Eddard's daughter to thwart him. White Harbour must have Ned's son and the direwolf. The wolf will prove the boy is who we say he is, should the dreadfort attempt to deny him. That is my price, Lord Davis. Smuggle me back, my liege lord, and I will take Stannis Baratheon as my king. Old instinct made Davis Seaworth reach for his throat. His finger bones had been his luck, and somehow he felt he would have need of luck to do what Wyman Manderley was asking of him. The bones were gone, though, so he said, You have better men than me in your service, knights and lords and maesters. Why would you need a smuggler? You have ships? Ships, Lord Wyman agreed, but my crews are rivermen or fisherfolk who have never sailed beyond the bight. For this I must have a man who sailed in darker waters and knows how to slip past dangers unseen and unmolested. Where is the boy? Somehow Davis knew he would not like the answer. Where is it you want me to go, my lord? Robert Glover said, Wax, show him. The mute flipped the dagger, caught it, then flung it end over end at the sheepskin map that adorned Lord Wyman's wall. It struck, quivering. Then he grinned. For half a heartbeat, Davis considered asking Wyman Mandalay to send him back to the wolf's den, to Sir Bartimus with his tails, and Garth with his lethal ladies. In the den, even prisoners ate porridge in the morning. But there were other places in this world where men were known to break their fast on human flesh. Daenerys Each morning from her western ramparts, the queen would count the sails on Slaver's Bay. Today she counted five and twenty, though some were far away and moving, so it was hard to be certain. 
Sometimes she missed one, or counted one twice. What does it matter? A strangler only needs ten fingers? All trade had stopped, and her fisherfolk did not dare put out into the bay. The boulder still dropped a few lines into the river, though even that was hazardous. More remained tied up beneath Mirin's walls of many-coloured brick. There were ships from Mirin out in the bay, too, warships and trading galleys whose captains had taken them to sea when Danny's host first laid siege to the city, now returned to augment the fleets from Carth, Tollus, and Eugis. Her admiral's council had proved worse than useless. "'Let them see your dragons,' Grolio said. "'Let the Yunkish men have a taste of fire, and the trade will flow again.' "'Those ships are strangling us, and all my admiral can do is talk of dragons,' Danny said. "'You are my admiral, are you not?' "'An admiral without ships?' "'Field ships. Warships cannot be made from brick.' The slavers burned every stand of timber within twenty leagues of here. Then ride out two and twenty leagues. I will give you wagons, workers, mules, whatever you require. I'm a sailor, not a shipwright. I was sent to fetch your grace back to Pentos. Instead, you brought us here and tore my sedulian to pieces for some nails and scraps of wood. I will never see her like again. I may never see my home again nor my old wife. It was not me who refused the ships this Daxus offered. I cannot fight the Carthine with fishing boats. His bitterness dismayed her, so much so that Danny found herself wondering if the grizzled Pentoshi could be one of her three betrayers. No, he's only an old man, far from home and sick at heart. There must be something we can do. Aye, and I've told you what. These ships are made of rope and pitch and canvas, of cohoric pine and teak from Sothoris, old oak from Great Norvis, yew and ash and spruce. Wood, your grace, wood burns, the dragons. I will hear no more about my dragons. Leave me, go pray to your Pentoshi gods for a storm to sink our foes. No sailor prays for storms, your grace. I am tired of hearing what you will not do. Go! Sir Barristan remained. Our stores are ample for the moment, he reminded her, and your grace has planted beans and grapes and wheat. Your Dothraki have harried the slavers from the hills and struck the shackles from their slaves. They are planting too, and will be bringing their crops to Marine to market and you will have the friendship of Lazar. Dario won that for me, for all that is worth. The lamb men, would that lambs had teeth. That would make the wolves more cautious, no doubt. That made her laugh. How fair your orphan, sir. The old knight smiled. Well, your grace, it is good of you to ask. The boys were his pride. Four or five have the makings of knights, perhaps as many as a dozen. One would be enough if he were true as you. The day might come soon when she would have need of every knight. Will they just for me? I should like that. Viserys had told us stories of the tawnies he had witnessed in the Seven Kingdoms, but Danny had never seen a joust herself. 
They are not ready, Your Grace. When they are, they will be pleased to demonstrate their prowess. I hope that day comes quickly. She would have kissed her good knight on the cheek. But just then, Miss Sandy appeared beneath the arched doorway. Miss Sandy? Your Grace, Scarhas awaits your pleasure. Send him up. The shave-pate was accompanied by two of his brazen beasts. One wore a hawk-mask, the other the likeness of a jackal. Only their eyes could be seen behind the brass. Your radiance! His door was seen to enter the pyramid of Zack last evening. He did not depart until well after dark. How many pyramids has he visited? asked Danny. Eleven. And how long since the last murder? Six and twenty days. The shave-pate's eyes brim with fury. It had been his notion to have the brazen beasts follow her betrothed and take note of all his actions. So far, his star has made good on his promises. How? The sons of the Arpi have put down their knives. But why? Because the noble Hisdar are sweetly. He is one of them, I tell you. That's why they obey him. He may well be the harpy. If there is a harpy. Skarhas was convinced that somewhere in Merin, the sons of the harpy had a high-born overlord, a secret general, commanding an army of shadows. Danny did not share his belief. The brazen beasts had taken dozens of the harpy's sons, and those who had survived their capture had yielded names when questioned sharply. Too many names, it seemed to her. It would have been pleasant to think that all the deaths were the work of a single enemy, who might be caught and killed, but Danny suspected that the truth was otherwise. Ah, oh, my enemies are legion. Hisdar Zoloric is a persuasive man, with many friends, and he is wealthy. Perhaps he has bought this peace for us with gold, or convinced the other highborn that our marriage is in their best interests. If he is not the RP, he knows him. I can find the truth of that easy enough. Give me your leave to put Hisdar to the question, and I will bring you a confession. No, she said, I do not trust these confessions. You have brought me too many of them, all of them worthless. Your radiance. No, I said. The shave-pate skull turned his ugly face even uglier. A mistake. The great master, Hisdar, plays your worship for a fool. Do you want a serpent in your bed? I want Dario in my bed, but I sent him away for the sake of you and yours. You may continue to watch his Zoloric, but no harm is to come to him. Is that understood? I'm not deaf, Magnificence. I will obey. Skahaz drew a parchment scroll from his sleeve. Your Worship should have a look at this. A list of all the Miranese ships in the blockade, with their captains. Great masters all. Danny studied the scroll. All the ruling families of Murian were named. Haskar, Merrick, Quasar, Zak, Razda, Gazin, Paul, even Resnek and Lorak. What am I to do with a list of names? Every man on that list has kin within the city, sons and brothers, wives and daughters, mothers and fathers. 
Let my brazen beast seize them. Their lies will win you back those ships. If I send the brazen beasts into the pyramids, it will mean open war inside the city. I have no trust in Histar. I have to hope for peace. Danny held the parchment above a candle and watched the names go up in flame, while Skahaz glowed at her. Afterwards, Sir Barristan told her that her brother Rhaegar would have been proud of her. Danny remembered the words Sir Jorah had spoken at Astabor. Rhaegar fought valiantly. Rhaegar fought nobly. Rhaegar fought honorably. And Rhaegar died. When she descended to the purple marble hall, she found it almost empty. Are there no petitioners today? Danny asked Resnack Bo Resnack. No one who craves justice or silver for a sheep. No, your worship. The city is afraid. There is nothing to fear. But there was much and more to fear, as she learned that evening. As her young hostages, Miklas and Kesmir, were laying out a simple supper of autumn greens and ginger soup for her, Iri came to tell her that Galazi Galari had returned, with three blue graces from the temple. Grey worm is come as well, Khaleesi. They beg words with you most urgently. I bring them to my hall and summon Resnak and Skahas. Did the Green Grace say what this was about? Astapur, said Iri. Grey Worm began the tale. He came out of the morning mists, a rider on a pale horse, dying. His mare was staggering as she approached the city gates, her sides pink with blood and lather her eyes rolling with terror. Her rider called out, She is burning! She is burning! and fell from the saddle. This one was sent for and gave orders that the rider be brought to the Blue Graces. When your servants carried him inside the gates, he cried out again, She is burning! Under his toka he was a skeleton, all bones and fevered flesh. One of the Blue Graces took up the tale from there. The Unsullied brought this man through the temple, where we stripped him and bathed him in cool water. His clothes were soiled, and my sisters found half an arrow in his thigh. Though he had broken off the shaft, the head remained inside him, and the wound had mortified, filling him with poisons. He died within the hour, still crying out that she was burning. She is burning, Daenerys repeated. Who is she? Astapor, your radiance, said another of the blue graces. He said it once. He said, Astapor is burning. It might have been his fever talking. Your radiance speaks wisely, said Galaza Galari. But Azara saw something else. The blue grace called Azara folded her hands. My queen, she murmured, his fever was not brought on by the arrow. He had soiled himself, not once but many times. The stains reached to his knees, and there was dried blood amongst his excrement. His horse was bleeding, Grey Worm said. This thing is true, your grace, the eunuch confirmed. The pale mare was bloody from his spur. That may be so, your radiance, said Azara. 
but this blood was mingled with his stool. It stained his small clothes. He was bleeding from the bowels, said Galaza Galari. We cannot be certain, said Azara, but it may be that Mirin has more to fear than the spears of the Yunkai. We must pray, said the Green Grace. The God sent this man to us. He comes as a harbinger. He comes as a sign. A, a sign of what? asked Danny. A sign of wrath and ruin. She did not want to believe that. He was one man, one sick man with an arrow in his leg. A horse brought him here, not a god. A pale mare. Danny rose abruptly. I thank you for your counsel and for all that you did for this poor man. The green grace kissed Danny's fingers before she took her leave. We shall pray for Estopor. And for me. Oh, pray for me, my lady. If Astapor had fallen, nothing remained to prevent Yunkai from turning north. She turned to Sir Barristan. Send riders into the hills to find my blood riders. Recall Brown Ben and the second sons as well. And the storm crows, your grace. Dario. Yes, yes. Just three nights ago she had dreamt of Dario lying dead beside the road, staring sightlessly into the sky as crows quarreled above his corpse. Other nights she tossed in her bed, imagining that he had betrayed her, as he had once betrayed his fellow captains in the storm crows. He brought me their heads. What if he had taken his company back to Yunkai to sell her for a pot of gold? He would not do that, would he? The storm crows, too. Send riders after them at once. The second sons were the first to return, eight days after the queen sent forth her summons. When Sir Barristan told her that her captain desired words with her, she thought for a moment that it was Dario, and her heart leapt. But the captain that he spoke of was Brown Ben Plum. Brown Ben had a seamed and weathered face, skin the color of old teak, white hair, and wrinkles at the corners of his eyes. Danny was so pleased to see his leathery brown face that she hugged him. His eyes crinkled in amusement. I heard talk your grace was going to take a husband, he said. But no one told me it was me. They laughed together as Resnick sputtered. But the laughter ceased when Brown Ben said, We caught three astropori. Your worship had best hear what they say. Bring them. Daenerys received them in the grandeur of her hall, as tall candles burned amongst the marble pillars. When she saw that the Estopori were half-starved, she sent for food at once. These three were all that remained of a dozen who had set out together from the Red City, a bricklayer, a weaver, and a cobbler. "'What befell the rest of your party?' the queen asked. "'Sleen,' said the cobbler. Yunkai sell swords, roam the hills north of Astapor, hunting down those who flee the flames. Has the city fallen, then? Its walls were thick. This is so, said the bricklayer, a stoop-backed man with roomy eyes. But they were old and crumbling as well. 
the weaver raised her head. Every day we told each other that the Dragon Queen was coming back. The woman had thin lips and dull, dead eyes, set in a pinched and narrow face. Cleon had sent for you, it was said, and you were coming. He sent for me, thought Danny. Well, that much is true, at least. Outside our walls, the Yankai devoured our crops and slaughtered our herds, the cobbler went on. Inside we starved, we ate cats and rats and leather. A horse-eyed was a feast. King Cotthroat and Queen Hoare accused each other of feasting on the flesh of the slain. Men and women gathered in secret to draw lots and gorge upon the flesh of him who drew the black stone. The pyramid of Naklos was despoiled and set aflame by those who claimed that Krasny's Mo Naklos was to blame for all our woes. Others blamed Daenerys, said the weaver, but more of us still loved you. She is on her way, we said to one another. She is coming at the head of a great host with food for all. I can scarce feed my own folk. If I had marched to Astapor, I would have lost Marine. The cobbler told them how the body of the butcher king had been disinterred and clad in copper armor after the green grace of Astapor had a vision that he would deliver them from the Yonkai. Armored and stinking, the corpse of Cleon the Great was strapped onto the back of a starving horse to lead the remnants of his new unsolid on a sortie. But they rode right into the iron teeth of a legion from New Gis and were cut down to a man. Afterward, the green grace was impaled upon a stake in the plaza of punishment and left until she died. In the pyramid of Eulor, the survivors had a great feast that lasted half the night and washed the last of their food down with poison wine. So none need wake again come morning. Soon after came the sickness, a bloody flux that killed three men of every four until a mob of dying men went mad and slew the guards on the main gate. The old brickmaker broke in to say, No, that was the work of healthy men running to escape the flocks. Does it matter? asked the cobbler. The guards were torn apart and the gates thrown open. The legions of Nugis came pouring into Astabor, followed by the Yunkai and the swords on their horses. Queen Hoare died fighting them with a curse upon her lips. King Cutthroat yielded and was thrown into a fighting pit to be torn apart by a pack of starving dogs. Even then some said you were coming, said the weaver. They swore that they'd seen you mounted on a dragon flying high above the camps of the Yunkai. Every day we looked for you. I could not come, the queen thought. I dare not. And when the city fell demanded Skahaz. What then? The butchery began. The temple of the Graces was full of the sick who had come to ask the gods to heal them. The legions sealed the doors and set the temple ablaze with torches. Within the hour, fires were burning in every corner of the city. As they spread, they joined with one another. The streets were full of mobs running this way and that to escape the flames. But there was no way out. The Yunkai held the gates. Yet you escaped, the shave-pate said. How is that? 
The old man answered, I am by trade a brickmaker, as my father and his father were before me. My grandfather built our house up against the city walls. It was an easy thing to work loose a few bricks every night. When I told my friends they helped me shore up the tunnel so it would not collapse, we all agreed that it might be good to have our own way out. I left you with a council to rule over you, Danny thought. A healer, a scholar, and a priest. She could still recall the red city as she had first seen it, dry and dusty behind its red brick walls, dreaming cruel dreams, yet full of life. There were islands in the worm where lovers kissed, but in the plaza of punishment they peeled the skin off men in strips and left them hanging naked for the flies. It is good that you have come, she told the Astapori. You will be safe in Merin. The cobbler thanked her for that, and the old brickmaker kissed her foot, but the weaver looked at her with eyes as hard as slate. She knows I lie, the queen thought. She knows I cannot keep them safe. Astapor is burning, and Murine is next. There's more coming, Brown Bren announced, when the Astapori had been led away. These three had horses. Most are afoot. How many are they? asked Resnick. Brown Ben shrugged. Hundreds, thousands, some sick, some burned, some wounded. The cats and the windblown are swarming through the hills with lance and lash, driving them north and cutting down the laggards. Mouths on feet and sick, you say? Resnick wrung his hands. Your worship must not allow them in the city. I wouldn't, said Brown Ben Plum. I'm no maester, mind you, but I know you got to keep the bad apples from the good. These are not apples, Ben, said Danny. These are men and women, sick and hungry and afraid. My children. I should have gone to Astapor. Your grace could not have saved them, said Sir Barristan. You warned King Cleon against this war with young Guy. The man was a fool, and his hands were red with blood. And are my hands any cleaner? She remembered what Dario had said, that all kings must be butchers or meat. Cleon was the enemy of our enemy. If I had joined him at the horns of Hasset, we might have crushed the Yunkai between us. The shave-pate disagreed. If you had taken the unsolid south to Hazat, the sons of the harpy— I know, I know. It is a rower all over again. Brown Ben Plum was puzzled. Who is a rower? A girl I thought I'd save from rape and torment. All I did was make it worse for her in the end. And all I did in Astapor was make ten thousand eroids. Your grace could not have known— I am the queen. It was my place to know. What is done is done, said Resnick Mo Resnick. Your worship, I beg you, take the noble Hesdar for your king at once. He can speak with the wise masters. Make a peace for us. On what terms? Beware the perfume seneschal, Quaith had said. The masked woman had foretold the coming of the pale mare, 
Was she right about the noble Resnick, too? I may be a young girl innocent of war, but I am not a lamb to walk bleating into the harpy's den. I still have my unsullied. I have the storm crows and the second sons. I have three companies of freedmen. Them and dragons, said Brown Ben Plum with a grin. In the pit, in chains, wailed Resnick Mo Resnick. What good are dragons that cannot be controlled? Even the unsolid grew fearful when they must open the doors to feed them. What of the queen's little pets? Brown Ben's eyes crinkled in amusement. The grizzled captain of the Second Sons was a creature of the free companies, a mongrel with the blood of a dozen different peoples flowing through his veins. But he had always been fond of the dragons, and them of him. Pets! screeched Resnick. Monsters, rather. Monsters that feed on children. We cannot... Silence, said Daenerys. We will not speak of that. Resnick shrank away from her, flinching from the fury in her tone. Forgive me, magnificence, I did not... Brown Ben Plum bawled over him. Your grace, the Yunkish, got three free companies against our two. And there's talk the Yunkish men sent to Volantis to fetch back the Golden Company. Those bastards feel ten thousand. Yunkai's got four Discari legions, too, maybe more. And I heard it said, they sent riders across the Dothraki Sea to maybe bring some big Kalisar down on us. We need them dragons, the way I see it. Danny sighed. I'm sorry, Ben. I dare not loose the dragons. She could see that was not the answer that he wanted. Plum scratched at his speckled whiskers. If there's no dragons in the balance, well, we should leave before them yunkish bastards close the trap. Only first make the slavers pay to see our backs. They pay the cows to leave their cities be, why not us? Sell Murrain back to them, and start west with wagons full of gold and gems and such. You want me to loot Marine and flee? No, I will not do that. Grey Worm, are my freedmen ready for battle? The eunuch crossed his arms against his chest. They are not unsolid, but they will not shame you. This one will swear to that by spear and sword, your worship. Uh, good, that's good. Daenerys looked at the faces of the men around her, the shave-pate scowling. Sir Barristan, with his lined face and sad blue eyes. Resnick Mo Resnick, pale, sweating. Bron Ben, white-haired, grizzled, tough as old leather. Grey Worm, smooth-cheeked, stolid, expressionless. Dario should be here, and my blood riders, she thought. If there is to be battle, the blood of my blood should be with me. She missed Sir Jorah Mormon, too. He lied to me, informed on me, but he loved me too, and he always gave good counsel. I defeated the young Kay before. I will defeat them again. Where, though? How? You mean to take the field? The shave-pate's voice was thick with disbelief. That would be folly. 
Our walls are taller and thicker than the walls of Astapor, and our defenders are more valiant. The Yunkai will not take this city easily. Sir Barristan disagreed. I do not think we should allow them to invest us. Theirs is a patchwork host at best. These slavers are no soldiers. If we take them unawares, small chance of that, the shave pate said. The Yunkai have many friends inside the city. They will know. How large an army can we muster? Danny asked. Not large enough, begging your royal pardon, said Brown Ben Plum. What does Naharis have to say? If we're going to make a fight of this, we need his storm crows. Dario is still in the field. Oh, gods, what have I done? Have I sent him to his death? Then I will need your second sons to scout our enemies. Where they are, how fast they are advancing, how many men they have, and how they are disposed. We'll need provisions, fresh horses too. Of course, Sir Barristan will see to it. Brownban scratched his chin. Might be we could get some of them to come over. If your grace could spare a few bags of gold and gems, just to give their captains a good taste, as it were, well, who knows? Buy them. Why not? Danny said. That sort of thing went on all the time amongst the free companies of the disputed land, she knew. Yes, very good. Resnick, see to it. Once the second sons ride out, close the gates and double the watch upon the walls. It shall be done, magnificence, said Resnick, Mo Resnick. What of these Estapuri? My children, they are coming here for help, for succor and protection. We cannot turn our backs on them. Sebastian frowned. Your Grace, I have known the bloody flux to destroy whole armies when left to spread unchecked. The Seneschal is right. We cannot have the Astapori in Murrin. Danny looked at him helplessly. It was good the dragons did not cry. As you say, then, we will keep them outside the walls until this, this curse has run its course. Set up a camp for them beside the river, west of the city. We will send them what food we can. Perhaps we can separate the healthy from the sick. All of them were looking at her. Will you make me say it twice? Go and do as I've commanded you. Danny rose, brushed past Brown Ben, and climbed the steps to the sweet solitude of her terrace. Two hundred leagues divided Mirin from Astapor, yet it seemed to her that the sky was darker to the southwest, smudged and hazy with the smoke of the red city's passing. Brick and blood built Astapor, and brick and blood its people. The old rhyme rang in her head. Ash and bone is Astapor, and ash and bone its people. She tried to recall Eroa's face, but the dead girl's features kept turning into smoke. When Daenerys finally turned away, Sir Barristan stood near her, wrapped in his white cloak against the chill of evening. Can we make a fight of this? she asked him. Men can always fight, Your Grace. Ask rather if we can win. Dying is easy, but victory comes hard. Your freedmen are half-trained and unblooded. 
Your sail swords once served your foes, and once a man turns his cloak, he will not scruple to turn it again. You have two dragons who cannot be controlled, and a third that may be lost to you. And beyond these walls your only friends are the Lazarine, who have no taste for war. My walls are strong, though, no stronger than when we sat outside them, and the sons of the harpy are inside the walls with us. So are the great masters, both those who did not kill and the sons of those who did. I know, the queen sighed. What do you counsel, sir? Battle, said Sir Barristan. Marine is overcrowded and full of hungry mouths, and you have too many enemies within. We cannot long withstand a siege, I fail. Let me meet the foe as he comes north, on ground of my own choosing. Meet the foe, she echoed, with the freedmen you've called half-trained and unblooded. We were all unblooded once, your grace. The unsolid will help stiffen them. If I had five hundred knights, or five, and if I give you the unsolid, I will have no one but the brazen beast to hold Marine. When Sir Barrison did not dispute her, Danny closed her eyes. Guards, she prayed, you took Carl Drogo, who was my sun and stars. You took our valiant son before he drew a breath. You have had your blood of me. Help me now, I pray you. Give me the wisdom to see the path ahead and the strength to do what I must do to keep my children safe. The guards did not respond. When she opened her eyes again, Daenerys said, I cannot fight two enemies, one within and one without. If I am to hold Marine, I must have the city behind me, the whole city. I, I need, I need... She could not say it. Your Grace, Sir Barristan prompted gently, a queen belongs not to herself but to her people. I need his da, Zoloric.